That was Albert Pujols' 700th home run. Just happened about half an hour ago at Dodger Stadium. Remember, he played for the Dodgers last year. He was first on the Cardinals for many years, then on the Angels for many years after signing a big contract. Came to the Dodgers as a backup player last year and returned home to St. Louis for this year in his final season in what's supposed to be his age 42 season, but most of you don't know this. Albert Pujols is lying about his age. He's actually 45. And I believe at the end of this season, he's on roids. I think he's been on steroids since July, and he's been on a tear ever since then. He's hitting like he's a young man again when he's really 45 years old. And I think baseball is looking the other way because he is a legendary figure of baseball. He is one of the best hitters all time in baseball. So they don't want to taint his legacy by testing him for steroids in what is for sure his final season as he pursues a milestone number like home runs number 700. So he did get there with two weeks left in the season, and it happened to be at Dodger Stadium where the fans really like him because he was a very well-liked member of the team last year. I admit that when he came to the Dodgers last year in the middle of the season, I was a bit concerned if he would fit in. Because here was a superstar, he was someone that was used to having all the attention on him, to playing every day, and now he was going to be a bench player, a part-time reserve, and I wasn't sure if he was going to take to that role very well. But he actually did, and he got a a number of uh, clutch hits and home runs for the Dodgers last year, and I don't think he was on roids last year. I think it's only since, like, July this year. And he also really, really was good in the clubhouse. He was very good with interacting with his teammates and rooting for the team from the bench. I mean, it looked like a young, fresh player who uh, was excited about his new team, except this guy was a veteran and one of the best of all time. So that part impressed me that he fit in so well, and the fans all really loved him for that reason. So this was a good place for him to hit his 700th home run. If it wasn't going to be at home in St. Louis, this was probably the second best place to do it. He did spend a lot of years in Anaheim with the Angels, but that did not end very well. They released him towards the end of his contract, even owing him money. He just was never happy there. So I think L.A. is probably like the second happiest place for him behind St. Louis. Anyway, regardless of whether or not he used roids in the final few months here, he was uh, definitely one of the best of all time as far as hitters in baseball. So congrats to him. And I decided to open the show with that because it just happened before the show started. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 has always been our number. You can also text that number at any time before, during, or after the show. 775-372-8355. And if you're texting during the show, make sure to mention at the beginning that you don't want your text read on air, if that's the case, if you would like me to read it on the air or don't care, you don't have to say anything, but you can text me anytime. We also have a call to listen line. This line is not a way to speak to me, but it's a way to listen to me. You can call 518-931-1189. That's 518-931-1189. We changed the phone number about a month or two ago, so please keep that in mind. And you just call up and you listen to the show. It's that simple. It does not require a smartphone or a data plan or an app or a computer or the internet. No, 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 no. It's just a number you call and you listen. And it never buffers and it never freezes, ever. I promise. 518-931-1189. 
It is free if you can call the U.S. for free, unless you have T-Mobile, in which case it's one cent per minute, which I don't get. We also have a chat room. You can go into the chat room during the live show and chat with other people in there. I don't read it very often because I'm doing so many things at once here, but uh, you're welcome to chat with others. And you can type something in there, and then I might respond to you. At least I won't type it in the chat, but I might respond on the air. So you can type something in the chat. I'd rather you text me, but welcome to go in the chat room during the show. We have various ways to listen to the show in the archives, because most of you don't listen live. Most of you listen in podcast form, and we have a lot of different ways to do it. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, the TuneIn app, which you can also use to listen live. There's two entries on there. Spotify, iHeartMedia, the Bullhorn app, which actually has its own call to listen line, in addition to using... Usual, you know, in, in addition to regular podcast uh, listening options. And you also can use Audible. You can use Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert podcast. Say it slowly, and it will put on the latest episode. And you say, next to go to the previous one, and previous to go to the next one. It's backwards, but that's how it works. And you can download or play the MP3 file of the show. I make that available every week on the Radio Archives forum of Poker Fraud Alert. And you can just click on it. It'll play on any device. doesn't need any external player. Or you can download the MP3 and keep it if you like. So we have a lot of different ways to listen to the show. If there's some other way you'd like to listen, please let me know. And if it's not too difficult or expensive then I will add it, because I want it to be easy for you to listen to the show. And that's how most of you listen, is after the fact. As much as I would like more live listeners, I realize I do this at a late hour. The free roll, as I mentioned earlier, is canceled. Um, We're having a different problem this week than previous weeks, so it's probably all related. Previous weeks, we just had people who couldn't connect to it. This week, I can connect to it, but the poker server isn't running. I cannot put the tournament online because the poker server itself is not running. And I have no way to do this with the control I have. Belly Buster is running it. And I'm going to try to work with him to get this working. I apologize. We've gone three weeks in a row with the free roll being down. That's the longest we've ever had. But hopefully by next week it's back up. And and soon it's going to be transferred to my control anyway. So this week there is no free roll. I was hoping that by today there might be, but there is not, so I apologize for that. But we've had one almost every show for over 10 years. You know, We've been on for 10 and a half years, so, you know, we miss a few weeks. I know it's not great, but that's not the main point of this is the free roll. In fact, most of you are not even listening when the free roll is running. That's why we don't get the biggest pools, which is good for the players, but uh, really the, most people listen are not listening for the free roll. So no free roll this week. Hopefully it'll come back next week. Here is the agenda. Then we'll get going. Daniel Negranu has decided that he likes Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And I don't think he's going to become a regular listener, but he at least liked last week's episode. And he, in fact, tweeted out a link to last week's episode. And we got the best ratings that we've had for a very long time because of Daniel Negranu's endorsement and his tweet of the link to our show, which I very much appreciate. And Believe me, I was not expecting. I didn't even think he would hear it. 
So we'll talk about Negranu's reaction to last week's show and why he was listening. Donna Morton is a name you probably don't know, but she was the chat moderator from last week's Ebony Kenny story who accidentally incited all of the controversy, or I shouldn't say all of it, but a lot of the controversy at the end of Ebony Kenny's appearance on Joey Ingram's show. Donna Morton was not expecting this, and she felt very bad, and she, in fact, deleted Twitter and was kind of hiding away for a while because this is the last thing she wanted. But she has come back on Twitter, and she made a statement about the whole thing, and I've talked to her directly as well. So we're going to talk a bit about the identity of this chat mod from last week, this Dark Angel 0715. Her name is Donna Morton, and uh, I'm going to tell you a bit about her, and I will read you her statement as an update to last week's Ebony Kenny story. We have the major update from Eric Benzamokin regarding the PayPal case. We will be hearing from him about that. The Venetian is causing controversy in poker once again. I know you're shocked. But they have canceled guaranteed prize pool events after a poor showing in earlier events of the Stairway to Millions series. So guarantees are now not guaranteed because the events have been canceled. And if you're saying, wow, I seem to be hearing that story a lot this year. Well, you're right. And that brings me to the next topic. I have decided that I am going to take it upon myself to lead an effort to put a stop to this sort of thing. What the Venetian did, what the Orleans has done, what the MGM has done, and what the Hustler has done, though my attempted action here won't affect the Hustler because it's going to be in Nevada. But I am going to, for the first time in my life, go to Nevada Gaming. I'm going to go to the Nevada Gaming Control Board, and I'm going to ask them to basically take a hard look at this entire situation. Not one or two casinos, but the entire situation with the guaranteed prize pools and how players are getting cheated and to treat this in a different way than they are treating it currently. So I'm going to ask them on a higher level to take a look at the whole thing. And I'm organizing this attempt, which may or may not work. I make no guarantees. They may shoo me away and brush me away and not really give me that much of a chance. But then again, they may listen and actually do something. I've never gone to them before, so I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm going to make my best attempt at this. And in fact, I will actually go to Las Vegas and go speak to Nevada Gaming with Vegas tournament poker pros to bring these complaints and to bring these points to them. That is my goal is to have a meeting with them with other local poker pros at my side. And not even necessarily ones I'm friends with, but ones that feel passionately about this situation and want to see it change. You don't have to like me or be friends with me to do this. If you, if you are a Vegas area tournament player and you'd like to be part of this, let me know. Right now, there is no meeting that has been promised to me yet, but I'm working on it. So I'm going to tell you about my effort and why this is important for me to do. Poker Go has banned two players from its events, at least for now. They've said this may not be permanent, but at the moment, they have banned accused cheaters Ali Imsrovic and Jake Schindler. That's very interesting. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about whether this is a slippery slope, since there's so many people in poker with allegations against them of some kind of malfeasance. 
Is this going to start a new trend where anybody who isn't living a pristine life might get banned from poker tournaments? And is it possible we could see people in the future banned for false allegations? So we'll talk about whether this is a good or bad thing, what PokerGo has done, and how I would like to see this sort of thing occur going forward. Whether I think this should continue, expand, not happen anymore, I'll let you know my opinion on that. A gambling-related scam on Twitch has led the platform to make a change regarding what type of gambling content you can put on Twitch. The question, how will this affect the popular poker streamers who use Twitch? Which, by the way, Ebony Kenny was actually one of them. Ebony Kenny was a big Twitch streamer herself. That's how some people got to know her. This is not going to be an Ebony Kenny story, but just mentioning that because a lot of you uh, heard that interview last week. So we'll talk about the Twitch scam and the action they've taken and how it affects poker. A class action lawsuit is seeking millions of dollars from MGM. And I don't just mean the MGM grand. I mean the MGM uh, corporation that owns all these casinos. They're seeking millions from MGM over the under $1 cash out tickets where you try to go to a machine to cash out your uh, money that was in the machine when you're done. So let's say you're cashing out $343.65. It will spit out $343. You go put in your wallet, and then it will spit out a voucher for the other $0.65 that you actually have to go stand in line to redeem. And as you might imagine, most people just throw those away, and the money ends up being kept, I believe, by both the casino and the state. So a class action lawsuit is challenging this. I would tell you how I feel about that and whether I feel it has a chance to be successful. I think you can already guess how I feel about it, though. Brent Butts, B-U-T-Z, kind of a funny name. Brent Butts of Poker Paint is back in the news. He has been hit with two cease and desist notices. In fact, I think three cease and desist notices from Poker News, Poker Stars, and maybe even Poker Go over using their content to then make his art from. We've talked about this before, but I'll give you the new update regarding the cease and desist notices he's getting and some of his interactions on Twitter where he's been complaining about it. Pennsylvania has fined a casino for failing to prevent minors from gambling there. They've actually caught a certain casino in Pennsylvania not stopping minors from gambling, including ones as young as 11. So I'll tell you which casino it was and what they were found to have done. By the way, I played as a minor in the Las Vegas Hilton in 1987. I know I've mentioned that before, but I played video poker and even more brazen, I actually played sports bets, which I'm pretty surprised thinking back now that they took because I did not look anywhere near 21. I was almost as tall as the average man at the time. I think I was like five foot eight. So my height wasn't the problem, but I did not have an older looking face. My face looked 15. Very obvious to anyone seeing me there that I was underage. But somehow I play sports bets with, with human beings there back in 87. They could have gotten in trouble for that one. Finally, we have three deaths to tell you about in the poker community. And one was kind of expected, but I didn't know this person was sick. 
and the other two were not expected and came on pretty quickly. The first one is uh, European poker pro Jan Sukanek, who is friends with uh, David Lappin and Dara Kearney, and I know they were very affected by this. I, I didn't know him, but he was, I believe, only 55 years old, so definitely not uh, someone who was expected to die soon, and he was not sick. Something came on pretty suddenly, and he died from it, so I'll give you the details there of what I have. Then old-school old poker and gambling figure Kat Holbert passed away of cancer. I believe she was 69. Now, she was sick with cancer for a long time. Cancer doesn't usually kill you quickly. Usually it's a, a slow deterioration, which is very sad to watch. But I had an experience with Kat Holbert. In fact, she and I were friends at one point back in 2004. But I will tell you what abruptly ended the friendship and I'll just tell you some things about Kat Hulbert in general. She was an interesting woman. And then Triton co-founder Ivan Liao, who also played a lot of Nosebleed Stakes events, a very wealthy man, but not a very lucky man, because he passed away at the age of 39, unexpectedly and suddenly, of a heart attack. That's not running very well. I don't care how well you do in business. If you die at 39, you've you've been very unlucky. So... A lot of people uh, kind of broken up and shocked by that one because he seemed healthy and everything was good. And he was only 39. That was the last person they expected to just abruptly die, but he did. So I'll tell you about these three deaths on our final segment. I've, I've put it at the end of the show because I don't want to depress everybody with a triple death topic. It's never a pleasant thing to talk about. And none of these people were old. I think Kat was 69. She was the oldest of the three. I think we had 69, 55, and 39. I I don't think anyone here is expecting they're going to die before any of those ages. Even 69 is young to go at this point. So anyway, uh, that'll be our final topic. And that's our agenda for this week. I want to talk about Daniel Negreanu and his reaction to our last episode. Trader Risky, did you have time to listen to the Ebony Kenny interview on last week's episode? Um, you didn't interview her, though, right? That was on uh, Chicago Joe. Right, right. It was, it was me talking about her, right? It wasn't my interview. Yep, yep. Okay. Well, I sometimes never know on this show how people are going to react to things. Sometimes I will complete a segment and say, oh, that's a great segment and I'll love it. I'll be very proud of myself. And then nobody cares. Like nobody responds. Nobody compliments it. I could tell it just didn't land all that great. Like I'm not saying it will get criticized, but I will sometimes think that something's going to be received very well and, and nobody really enjoys it that much. Then there's other segments that I complete. I just kind of shrug my shoulders and just move on. I don't think it's anything special. And then people end up loving it. So the Ebony Kenny interview, which, as Trader Ruski pointed out, wasn't an interview on this show. It was me playing her interview on Chicago Joey's show, and only the last 38 minutes of it, and even all of that I didn't play, and then I'm stopping it and commenting on it. I thought, when I did that segment, and that was our main segment last week, I thought that maybe people would be sick of this, because we already did that with a Chicago Joey topic the previous week. Now, it was about a completely different matter the previous week. It was someone else named Kenny. It was Bryn Kenny, and that's totally different, and he's not related to Ebony Kenny. But still, I was thinking people may be burnt out 
on hearing me comment on Chicago Joey interviewing other people. Even if the topic itself is interesting, I thought, oh no, another long segment where I'm breaking down a Chicago Joey interviewing someone else thing. And I thought, especially this one, because Ebony Kenny was not in controversy at the time. In fact, it was the opposite. She was being praised everywhere for having done very well at the Triton series where she was staked by ACR owner Phil Nagy and she cashed almost $2 million. So that was a a good accomplishment on Ebony Kenny's part and she was flying high and uh, she didn't get to keep the entire $2 million. I don't know what her deal was with Nagy and she won't say, but it doesn't really matter. There was an impressive accomplishment to have cashed big in two events at that uh, tough series. That's why she came on Chicago Joey's show And she and Joey were on very good terms prior to this interview. They had known each other for years. Someone even told me that they thought they may have dated at some point. I I don't have confirmation of that, but maybe that's even true. But at the very least, they were friends. And that's why she came on. She's like, okay, well, Joey has a big audience. And he just came back after a hiatus. And seems like it's going to be an easy interview because it's not about anything controversial. It's not like when Bryn Kenny came on there trying to defend himself against cheating allegations. Ebony Kenny was coming on to talk about her experience with doing so well at the Triton. So how could that become controversial? Well, as you may have heard last week, the last uh, 38 minutes had Joey bringing up some issues that uh, were a little controversial and... and, uh, she got very defensive and they were going back and forth and then the fireworks really flew at the end when a chat moderator who was named dark angel 0715 one of joey's chat moderators who was female made a comment that ebony kenny took out of context and first of all thought it was a guy that was being misogynistic when joey quickly pointed out it was a woman And it was very clear if you read the comment that it wasn't something that was either insulting or misogynistic, of course, because it was a woman making the comment. It was really something basically saying that women in poker should try to treat each other well and not be mean to one another. And she used the word bitch in there, but she wasn't calling anyone specifically a bitch. She was just saying that they shouldn't be bitches to each other and they should uh, support each other. That's what uh, this chat moderator said. Well, Ebony got furious about this and was saying that Joey should censor his chat and that it's terrible that his moderator would write something like this and this is causing women not to want to play poker and they got into a big argument about it and then Ebony walked off the show. So if you want to hear my analysis of that entire thing, you can go back to last week's show and you can listen to it. It's a pretty long segment. It runs uh, almost two and a half hours starting from about the 23-minute mark. But the reason Negranu was commenting on it, the reason Negranu even listened is because there was a big part about him. Because Ebony had made some allegations against Negranu back in May on Twitter about something that had supposedly occurred in 2008. And then Negranu at first didn't respond, but about a month later, when some other things were happening at the World Series with people hassling him and making false allegations, Negranu decided to answer to these allegations as well and brought up some pretty good counters to what Ebony was accusing him. And after I saw what Negranu presented in June, I believed him. I didn't think that what Ebony believed had happened did. I didn't necessarily think she just outright made it up, but I thought that she probably mistook whatever was going on at the table back at 08 as him being uh, someone who was rudely staring at her in, in a sexual way. Like, I just didn't believe that was happening, nor did I believe that 
when she brought it up to him that he bragged that he was staring at that too bad he's going to do it anyway. Like I, I just couldn't see him acting that way. It just didn't make any sense to me. And anyway, this was brought up by Joey during that last 38 minutes on the interview. And then she said a number of things about Negranu and tried to explain that she was fully telling the truth and tried to explain away his rebuttal. So basically, I broke the whole thing down. I played the clips. I would stop it. And I would answer. Now, you may think that, if you haven't heard it yet, you may think that I was going after Ebony Kenny because I wanted to make her look bad or I didn't like her, or maybe I'm just a misogynist who hates women and just wants to take the guy's side. No. In fact, at one point during the portion I was playing of that interview, I was defending her. When Joey was giving her a hard time about being an ACR pro and calling her a shill, I was on her side, and I was very clear about it. And I said that Joey was being unfair and that Joey just has this obsession with hating ACR. And while he has some points, I think he is overdoing it with how bad ACR supposedly is. It's not a perfect site. There's definitely some things that need to be changed there. But I feel that Joey is obsessed with hating them, and that kind of bled into the interview. So I actually took Ebony's side on that one and understood why she was irritated with Joey for the way he was behaving there. But the rest of it, though, I didn't like the way she was behaving. And I called that out, and I I tried to do it in a very fair and unbiased fashion. So anyway, Negranu was somehow told to listen to it, I have to assume. I did not contact him. I didn't say, hey, Daniel, I talked about you for a while. Go listen. I talk about Daniel a lot on this show. Sometimes I'm on his side. Sometimes I'm not on his side. Sometimes it's in the middle. I don't kiss his ass. You, In fact, uh, I had a feeling that Negranu didn't like me because people had gone to Negranu in the past and said, oh, Dan Druff's saying this about you, Dan Druff's saying that. And it kind of annoyed me because... I'm not a Negranu hater. I've never been a Negranu hater. Even when I've criticized him, I've not been a hater. I'm just someone who sometimes doesn't agree with him. And other times I do. So I, I really do the good and the bad with Negranu. And anyone who listens to this show and listens regularly knows that I just give you my honest opinion on Negranu. And it's really all over the place. And in this case with Ebony Canny, I felt he was in the right. And I felt that he was being treated very unfairly. And his reputation was being smeared without good reason to smear it, especially these days. You don't want that sort of allegation against you. I just do not and have never seen Negranu as a sexually harasser, a sexual harasser of women in any way. Her story didn't add up, especially when Negranu presented his counter-evidence, which is very strong. So I just felt that this was probably along the lines of a misunderstanding, like a true misunderstanding and that Ebony was being irresponsible making these allegations in that way, especially about something that happened uh, 14 years ago. So someone told Negranu to listen. I don't know who, but someone told him to listen. I didn't expect this. I didn't think he would listen. To my knowledge, he hasn't actually gone and listened to the show before. If he has, he hasn't told me. But he listened. And he really liked it. And he especially liked it because Matt Berkey also covered this topic on his show, And I guess Matt Berkey wasn't as clear that uh, he felt Negranu was uh, not in the wrong. In fact, maybe maybe Berkey didn't even think that. I I didn't see the Berkey thing, so I can't comment on it. But Negranu was unhappy with how Berkey handled the whole subject of Ebony's allegations against Daniel on his show. So then after that, Daniel was somehow directed to this show. And Daniel was quite happy to hear my take on it. 
And he was so happy that he actually tweeted out the Poker Fraud Alert tweet from the Poker Fraud Alert Twitter account that linked the show. This is what he wrote on September 16th. Thank you for absolutely nailing it. It was disappointing to see Matt Berkey fail miserably to address most of the points you laid out perfectly. This is aimed at me. Totally ignoring the circumstantial evidence that is absolutely relevant. That is about Berkey, not me. Well done. This is the take. And then he put a link to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. So a lot of people listened. And if you found this show because of Daniel's link, I hope you stick around. Because this is often how we get new permanent listeners is some high-profile incident occurs that we cover and that people find the show that way, or some person who has a bigger audience or reach than I do mentions this show in some way and people find it and then a certain percentage stay around and decide they like it. So if you're one of those people, this is a very long show, not just this episode, but all of our episodes are very long. I put timestamps so you can skip around if you want to just hear the stuff that interests you because I know not everybody has five to seven hours to invest every week. But we do a deep dive into everything. We have a very wide variety of topics in poker and gambling and the city of Las Vegas. And we even do segments like Mojave Desert and the Las Vegas history, which may sound boring, but actually is pretty interesting. And I will sometimes tell you old stories from my life that are amusing. It's a very broad show in the type of stuff we cover, but with a focus on poker, gambling in Las Vegas, especially stuff that has to do with frauds and scams, but not always that, but I try to get a number of those topics because we are Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And I hope you stick around and listen if you are a new user, a new listener who found this show because I saw the ratings we got last week and it was way higher than we usually do as far as the podcast downloads, way higher. So a lot of new listeners came through and heard this and I hope some of you came back. So anyway... Daniel also uh, communicated with me a little bit privately. I was wondering if he listened to the entire Ebony Kenny segment or just a few minutes, but he told me he listened to the entire thing, and he told me that he really thought it was right on, that he agreed with everything. So I, I thanked him for tweeting this out there because it gets Poker Fraud Alert publicity. I mean, he has a ton of followers, as you might imagine, And I'm never going to kiss anyone's ass in poker so they do this. And that was never my goal. Yes, my segment was pro-Negranu there, but that's because I felt that's what it was uh, appropriate to do because I was on his side. I thought he was in the right. I thought he was being accused unfairly and treated unfairly. So yeah, I'm going to be pro-Negranu if I see that. I'm going to be pro-anyone if I see that. And if uh, Negranu says or does something that I don't agree with, then I say it too, and you guys know it. So, I'm never going to kiss ass to any big-name pro just so they like me or so they promote the show. I had no idea he would even hear it. I swear to you, I did not ever make any attempt for him to hear about the fact that I was uh, talking about him here, even though it was positive. I made no such attempt. I was not expecting anyone to even bring it to him, but someone did. So, okay, great. I got other people messaging me privately who heard the show either for the first time or hasn't been listening that long, or even some people who have been listening for a long time that just really, really like that segment. I had a number of people sending me Twitter DMs, text messages, whatever, emails, complimenting that Ebony Kenny segment. 
It was a very, very well-liked segment, probably one of the best-liked segments we've had in a very long time, and I didn't get a single one criticizing it. Well, actually, that's not true. During the show, during the live show, I did get one person saying that I took too long to get to playing the clips, which they're right. I, I, when I went back and was editing, I'm like, oh, crap, I took, <laughs> I took too long to get to playing the clips. I rambled too much. But I, I guess it was fine because everybody else really, really liked that segment. And I don't usually brag about this sort of thing. Like, I, I know not every segment we do on the show is great. I know sometimes the segments uh, are of varied quality, and that's going to happen. You do a very long show, there will be some good parts, some okay parts, some not so good parts, and that's just the way it goes. But this definitely was a good one. And with all the praise it was getting, I actually went back and listened to it myself, which I don't usually do. I don't usually go back and listen to the show after I've done it because, you know, it was me. It was me talking, so why should I go back and listen to myself? It's one thing to listen to something very old, and that, that can be interesting because I, I forget, like, what I said. It's almost like listening to a new thing from me. But something I just did, I don't usually go back and listen. But this one I did because I wanted to hear... Uh, what people were liking about it. And I go, oh, yeah, you know what? This came out well. This was a good segment. So if you haven't heard it yet, if you're kind of sporadically listening and you haven't heard it yet, I really encourage you to go back last week and listen to the Ebony Kenny segment. And I thank Negranu for tweeting this out. He didn't have to do that, even if he liked it. And we're not buddies. And I don't even know how much he thought of me prior to this. Like, he knows me. He, he knows of me. We've played together We've talked before, but we're not friends. And I kind of got the impression in recent years he was kind of irritated with me because I just always speak my mind. But he definitely liked this one. And I appreciate that he put this out because he knows when he puts this out that it's going to get this show publicity. And that helps. So I'm never going to try to make it happen, but if somebody enjoys it who's a much higher profile figure than I am, and it gets new listeners, I think that's great. And not because it makes me any money, because this is a non-profit show. And if you're new to this show, I don't make money from this. In fact, I lose money. I have a little Amazon banner at the bottom of Poker Fraud Alert that you can click on before you make a purchase, and then I would uh, get a small percentage of your purchase. I don't see who you are. I only see what was bought. I don't see who bought it. But I, I get very little money from that. It does not cover the expenses of the site. It's just a, a small amount of money that gets deposited in my bank account every month, which is better than nothing, but it does not cover the expenses here. So this is a not-for-profit site, and it always has been. So this is not something that I'm happy about financially. It's not going to do me any good financially. But I want more listeners because I'm not doing this to speak to myself. I'm doing this to talk to the audience. And the bigger the audience, the better. So thank you, Daniel, for putting that out there. I'm not going to let this affect my coverage of Daniel in the future. If Daniel does something in the future that I don't agree with, I will say so. If he does something in the future I agree with or I feel people are mistreating him or being unfair to him, I'll say that too. And that's always the way I operate with everybody. And Daniel's never been anyone I've disliked. There's been no point in my knowledge of Daniel Negroni where I've disliked him. But at the same time, I'm not a fanboy. So I just put out my true opinion, which is what I always try to do on the show. And I think the reason a lot of you do listen is because I do that. Okay, so I want to move on to the second topic related to this Ebony Kenny story, and then we'll move past it. Last week, I mentioned that chat mod Dark Angel 0715, who was a woman, 
and she had made a comment near the end of Ebony Kenny's appearance there. In fact, it caused Ebony Kenny to leave the show after arguing with Joey. Something along the lines of women need to stop being bitches to one another and treat each other well. Something along those lines. And she was trying to say, and I can't read you the exact comment because she deleted it because of all the controversy. She did it because Ebony got upset and, and this woman didn't want to cause this controversy and this rift that was going on there. So she quickly deleted it and apologized. But there really was no apology necessary because all she was saying was that women in poker don't always treat each other well, which is totally true, and that they need to take some care to treat each other with respect and that will help all women in poker. If, if women are seen treating each other well, that will in turn make the entire experience for women more pleasant. Number one, just so they don't have other women being abusive to them. And number two, so the men don't see it normalized that women can be mistreated. So because if they see other women mistreating, maybe they want to get in on it too, which is not right. And I would never do it. And I'm not making excuses for the men who mistreat women at the table, but I'm saying that uh, she's raising a good point here, that there are women in poker who don't treat other women that well. And I don't mean they don't have the right to criticize other women. Of course they do. But sometimes I have seen things both on social media and at the table where, where mi women mistreat one another. And there's certain women who are guilty of it a lot more than others. So that's all that this chat mod was saying. It was not aimed at Ebony. It was not even implied that Ebony is one of the people who do it. It was just saying in general that this is what she feels women need to do. And this is a woman herself making the comment. So it's not some dude from the outside saying, I think women need to do this. Now, it's actually a woman in poker talking about women in poker. Totally fine. Totally fine. It'd be like if I'm commenting on uh, the Jewish community and something I'd like to see improved, I'm not an anti-Semite. Because I'm a Jew. I'm part of the community myself. I, I can make these comments. You know, you, know it, you can't make allegations that someone is discriminating against a certain uh, segment of a community if they're part of that themselves. So a woman in poker can definitely make comments about women in general in poker and how they should improve. You may not agree with those comments, but she definitely has a right to say it. And there's nothing wrong with saying it. And I thought the message was good. But the fact that she used the word bitch is what was getting... Ebony Kenny so angry, even though Ebony Kenny calls her own fans and followers, quote, the bad bitches club, which then she tried to explain away, oh, it's not the same thing. It's a different context. I don't believe in that. I think if you want to say a word is offensive and you shouldn't use it, then just don't use it. And if you're okay with a certain word being used, then you can't complain about it. Now, you can complain if someone is using a word to mistreat you, but that's not what was happening here. It wasn't like this dark angel said, Ebony Kenny is a bitch. She didn't say that. She didn't imply that. She wasn't even including Ebony in what she was talking about. It was a general statement about women in poker. Okay? So we talked about that last week. But who is this woman? Who is dark angel 0715, other than a chat mod in Chicago Joey's chat? Well, it turns out it's an English woman named Donna Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N. And this is not a secret. She's gone public with her identity, so I'm not revealing anything that shouldn't be revealed. She is not a young woman. She's very different than Ebony Kenny, who's not really that young herself, but she's not one of these flashy women who's getting all these sponsorships, 
she's not a high profile or young woman in poker. Donna Morton is 52 years old. She's in the UK. She's a recreational player. And she's more of like a fan of poker. This is exactly the type of woman who you do want to protect in poker. You know who doesn't really need protection in poker are the high-profile, successful women in poker who have a big following and who get all kinds of privilege from it, like Ebony Kenny. Ebony Kenny can't complain that she has struggled because she's a woman in poker. No, she's gotten a lot of benefit out of being a woman in poker, such as being staked into the Triton by Phil Nagy, despite not having particularly impressive tournament results. She doesn't have terrible tournament results, but she has nothing special as far as her tournament results, and yet she was staked there because of her gender and her looks. And she's not the only one. There are a number of women who get lucrative sponsorships or opportunities because they are young, they're at least fairly attractive, and because they're active on social media and people take notice of them, or they happen to get on TV making a final table and people take notice, and then they get all kinds of things that men and older women will not get. So if there's any women who are at a disadvantage because of their gender in poker and yet are not getting the plus of being a woman, they're not getting the benefits of being a woman, it would be recreational players, women like Donna Morton, who are not young and who uh, may not have the best experience when they play because of men mistreating them or maybe even other women mistreating them. And that's who you need to speak out about when they get mistreated. Not the high-profile names who are doing great and who get all kinds of benefits. Anyway, here's what she wrote on September 19th. This is after deleting her Twitter. Because keep in mind, this is not someone who's used to controversy. This is not a Twitter troll. This is not someone who likes to go on Twitter and write controversial things and, and argue with people. There are women like that. There are men like that. And you know what? I'm one of them. I'm one of the men on Twitter who will write controversial things expecting people are going to argue with me. I don't do it to troll people, but I will state controversial things that I know will get people angry, things I really believe in, and uh, I expect there's going to be fallout. So... That's me, and then there's others on Twitter like this. Even Daniel Negreanu is like this to some degree. But there are many people in the poker community, especially on the fringes of the community, people who are just recreational players, that do not want this. They don't want to be in the center of controversy. They don't want even to be part of any controversy. They don't want everyone looking at their profile and commenting on them and their actions and their words. And It's very stressful for people who really don't want that. And she's one of them. So this is just a nice middle-aged woman who's a mom that uh, is a fan of poker and a recreational player in the UK and was just trying to say something about how women in poker should treat each other better and use some colorful language. And then uh, she got thrown into this and attacked. So here's what she wrote after she deleted her Twitter and probably had a bad few days... uh, very stressed out about this. She decided to come back because she got some uh, support from her friends who were more high profile, such as uh, uh, David Lappin and uh, Dara Kearney. So Donna wrote, I have reactivated my Twitter account due to the outpouring of messages of support for me. I'm fine, but feeling really flat. I really want to thank David Lappin and Dara Kearney for fighting my corner 
Most of you don't even know me, and those that do only know a little bit of how I got into poker. Yes, I am a single mom of two kids. I got into poker because of my friend Rosary, a.k.a. Irish Rose. You see, I had just lost my mom, and at the funeral for her, they dropped the coffin. Yes, you read that right, so I wasn't in a great headspace for anything. That's messed up. It's bad enough your mom passes away. That's sad for anybody. But imagine your mom passes away, you're dealing with that, and then they drop her coffin at the funeral. That's awful. That's really awful. I feel very bad for her. Then she goes on to write, Rose was in the semifinals on Sky Poker to win a trip to Las Vegas. My dream play since I was three and saw a piece on Siegfried and Roy. The rest is history. I support women as well as men in poker. And what you see is what you get with me. No hidden agenda. I'm just me. Okay, let me stop there before I read the rest. Listen to what she said. That she was watching her friend play to win a trip to Las Vegas, not even in Las Vegas, but watch her friend play uh, some kind of tournament to win a trip to Las Vegas from Europe. And that Las Vegas is her dream place since she was three. And she's 52 now, so it's almost 50 years ago. But since she was a little kid in the 1970s, and she saw them do a piece on Siegfried and Roy. And from England, this just looks so cool. As a little girl, she's like, wow, look at this place. And this is 70s Vegas, which is less uh, flashy than it is today. But she was looking at Vegas, thinking it's so cool. She called it her dream place. And that kind of got her into thinking more about Las Vegas. And probably she eventually found poker later on when, when the poker boom happened in the early 2000s. She doesn't explain exactly how she got into poker from there. But this is someone who really is just a fan of poker from a distance. And... Uh, a fan of Las Vegas and has been since she was a little girl and enjoys being a, a little part of all of this. And she got to be a chat moderator in, in Joey's chat, which I'm sure she enjoyed doing as well. So this is just a nice older woman who is a fan of poker and just like being a little part of it. This is not someone who is trying to inject herself into controversy or be belligerent or be a troll. No. No, this is the total opposite of that. She goes on to write, Ebony took my support out of context. I said it, I own it, and I stand by it. I was at the first ladies game in the UK where there was only seven of us playing as have helped grow, grow the game and supported ladies for many, many years. So how can I be toxic to women? I don't know. Mountain out of a molehill springs to mind, which then turned into a volcano. I have spent thousands of hours not paid promoting not only getting women into poker, but poker in general. And if that makes me look like a bad, toxic person in someone else's eyes, then they don't know me. So you see here, like this is just a fan of poker who has never had a paid position promoting poker, but has just always tried to get people into the game and probably talks about it on social media a lot and has advocated for women playing and probably plays a little herself. Very nice. This is exactly what we want. This is exactly the type of female participation we want in poker. This is who you had to make sure to be nice to. This is who you had to make sure not to ever abuse at the table. Now, you shouldn't abuse anybody, but if there's anyone you should especially be careful not to be abusive to, it would be women who are recreational players, casual fans of poker that are trying their hand at playing. You don't want to give them a bad experience to run them off. The grizzled veterans, you shouldn't be rude to them either, but at least 
they know the game. They they they're used to it. They're used to everything that happens, the good and the bad. And the ones that are successful aren't going anywhere. But the but the ones who are the recreational players, the fans, that's who you want to really, really be careful not to drive away. And look what was happening here. I'm not rich, but I would give away my last penny if I knew it would help someone, she writes. I've done GoFundMe campaigns for people I wanted to help. I'm a big advocate for dealers to be treated fairly. So for one sentence to be picked upon and then spun out of proportion is, to me, stupid. I forgot as a moderator you aren't allowed to swear nor have your own opinion. You've got to try and moderate chat and keep it from being toxic. I'm really thinking about stepping away from modding on Twitch as CBA to keep battling anymore. I don't know what CBA means, but let's go on. This has drained me. Anyway, I'm back, but doubt I will be as active as I once was. Thanks for the DMs and messages. Not read any threads, nor do I want to. Run deep and run pure when you do play. Good luck. So she said this has drained her, and that she probably won't be as active as she once was. You see? This is someone who didn't want this sort of thing and didn't deserve it. And the reason she got it is because of two reasons. Number one, Ebony took this out of context and then just kept hammering with it, even after it was made clear to her this is another woman and that uh, definitely this was being taken out of context. I mean, it's one thing for Ebony to read this thing about the bitch thing and, and think maybe this is an insult, but after a short time passed and it was clear it was a woman and that was just like a general statement and it wasn't anything hostile, she should have dropped it. And I still haven't seen an apology from Ebony. In fact, I asked Ebony on Twitter to apologize to her, and Ebony basically gave me some snide remarks in return and and still didn't apologize. So I don't think she's ever getting that apology. I think an apology is very much deserved because Ebony is a fairly high-profile figure in poker. Donna Morton is not. And this has stressed her out big time when she's done nothing wrong. So when you talk about supporting women in poker... That's the type of woman you need to support. And that when I talked about last week of maybe someone like Ebony Kenny is not the best representative to get out and talk about how discriminated women are against in poker, that's exactly what I mean. Is that when you're getting a lot of privilege for being a woman in poker, you're not the best spokesperson for, oh, look how tough I have it. The ones you should be hearing this from are the ones who probably do have it tougher for being a woman. And you definitely shouldn't be abusing them. So if you are an advocate for women in poker, like Ebony claims to be, then you should be especially nice to women like this. And if you accidentally take something out of context and believe that they were attacking you and go after them on a highly watched podcast and then tweet about them later, and then you realize later that they were not meaning badly, you should apologize and say, you know what? Nobody should be mad at at, uh, Donna she was meaning well. She wasn't trying to say anything offensive. She's a woman in poker. She's the type of person we need to support being part of the game. That's what Ebony should have said and didn't. I just think we have a high-profile person here who gets a lot of privilege in the game and gets staked to things. And someone else who's just a longtime fan and recreational player who got attacked unfairly. That's whose side I'm on. So anyway, uh, from everything I can see, Donna Morton seems like a a nice woman and exactly the type of person we want to have in the game. So I feel bad for her that she had to deal with all this. And then there were some articles that were misleading or had misleading headlines that were talking about how Ebony Kenny went after someone that 
called her a bitch or used the word bitch and very misleading things like it was Ebony Kenny defending herself against someone who's uh, using the word bitch and like it was a righteous act there and it makes the person who used the word look bad the way it was phrased so there were some articles that I don't think meant badly but more were trying for an attention grabbing headline and kind of threw Donna under the bus at the same time so that wasn't good either and I know some of these headlines have been changed since then, and that part is good. At least these uh, publications saw their error and changed it. But you got to be careful. You got to be careful how you treat the recreational players of both genders, especially the female recreational players who are big fans of the game uh, that aren't high profile. Those are the ones you really need to make sure you don't drive out. I'm pretty much done with this topic for now. The whole Ebony Kenny situation from last week. I think I've said all I can say. I've spent as much time on it as I think it deserves. It's not a huge scandal by any means. It's not even really a scandal. It's just, I heard some things I didn't like and I had to speak up. That's all. And as you guys know, I will speak up about anything anyone says online or elsewhere that I feel is wrong, whether they are male or female. Think of all the different males I have been critical of on this show, including at times Mr. Daniel Negreanu. So it's not about gender. It's about actions. And I will never hold back. I will never be afraid to comment on someone because of their gender. I'm not going to say, oh, I can't criticize this person because they're a woman. But I'm also not going to go out of my way to criticize someone because they're a female, nor will I go against someone because they're female, but I'm just not going to artificially take their side either because they're female. I look at the person and their actions and the situation, and then I go from there. We're going to call up Eric Benzamokin to give us a PayPal update. He's got a major PayPal update, and unless you've read about it already, it's something you wouldn't expect. It's something I didn't expect, but there's kind of a creative direction that he is taking with this case against PayPal, where they are outright stealing money from both poker players and small businesses around the world on a massive scale. And when I say a massive scale, I really mean a massive scale. And when I say stealing, I really mean stealing. I'm not exaggerating. And if you go back and listen to the shows we did on this, you will understand what I mean, that PayPal is actually stealing from both poker players and from small businesses, and they even did it to Chris Moneymaker, which is what uh, got a lot of attention to the issue. Though I've been talking about this for many years, but the Moneymaker thing got the poker world's attention, and I brought it to Eric's attention, and uh, he actually retained Moneymaker until they actually paid Moneymaker to get him out of it because they didn't want the publicity of poker champ Chris Moneymaker being cheated by PayPal. Anyway... Let's get Eric on here to give us the update. Hello? Attorney Eric Benzamokin, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio once again. I appreciate you coming on here and uh, the continued uh, generosity of the free roll, which we can't use. Your your money is sitting safely, but uh, it cannot be used at the moment because our poker room has been down for three weeks. And I was hoping this week would be different, but uh, no, I can connect to it to administrate it, but I cannot get the server running to actually run the poker room. So I appreciate the donations anyway. We will uh, use yours and everybody else's that are waiting for this. But anyway, that's not why we have you on to talk about the free roll. Uh, You have an update for us on the PayPal case that you are involved with. Can you please let us know what is going on? 
Absolutely. First, nice to speak with you again. And um, so, as, as you probably recall, uh, when, at the onset of the litigation uh, with Lena Evans as our lead plaintiff, PayPal filed a motion to compel us into arbitration pursuant to the arbitration clause in their user agreement. And the federal district court in the Northern District of California agreed with PayPal's position and essentially ordered us into arbitration, which would have presumably ended the case. We've appealed that decision to the Ninth Circuit, and that appeal's pending. In the meantime, as promised, we simply didn't give up. We looked for a way around somehow the prohibitions against mass arbitration and class actions that protect these large corporations like PayPal and allow them to operate with impunity the way they've been doing, taking people's hard-earned money and confiscations and no real investigation and, and so on. And as part of our, our continued effort to find a way to bring PayPal to justice, we partnered now with a third firm based in San Francisco who actually had a very novel idea. And essentially, I mean, to, to, to just make it very simple, rather than 10,000 people all bringing claims against PayPal one at a time or one claim each, so there's 10,000 claimants, each of whom have one complaint, we looked at doing this in reverse where we would have one claimant with 10,000 complaints or 10,000 claims. And that's how we have decided now to move forward. So we partnered with a third firm and using blockchain technology, we are going to essentially allow people to assign their claims to a third party entity that will be managed by the attorneys so that it's just one entity bringing a massive amount of claims, but it's not a massive number of people each bringing individual claims, which would be mass arbitration and class action. So this is the way around that. Yes, and uh, I've got a question for you to maybe explain to the audience. When you say assign the claims to a third party, can you explain to the audience what that means? Sure. So I can essentially sell you or assign you any claim that I may have at any time. I mean, that's people do this every day in the legal system. And so essentially we're going to utilize one entity like a, like an LLC or a company. We're and, and we're going to allow the individual claimants to fill out a form and assign their claims to this company or this entity that's created for this purpose. And then by doing so, they will be able to download a token uh, through a wallet, you know, and, and that's how, that's their confirmation that they filled out the claim form and assigned it to this entity that we've created. And that's going to ultimately be how they collect the money at the point of settlement, assuming we get to a settlement, which I'm more confident we will uh, as this moves forward. And so they will ultimately utilize the token and that's what we'll give them. The token will be unique to each claimant and the dollar amount of that claim. So we'll know exactly what they'd be entitled to and how much the claim is for and, and so on. Yeah, so this so, is very interesting. So Eric's, uh, this, this not him personally, but this uh, firm they partnered with there, they are actually 
utilizing uh, blockchain technology, there's there's going to be tokens issued only for people with these claims, and the only value of this token will be to eventually get a piece of the settlement that hopefully uh, PayPal will make. And uh, can you explain to the audience why this is being used at all? Why are they even using this uh, blockchain technology as part of the whole uh, strategy here? Well, one, we believe it's the most efficient way to track claimants and to ensure that the integrity of the claim process remains in effect. So there's no cost, by the way, to the user, to the claimant. You know, the token's free and there's no cash value to the token at this point and there's no charge to download it or anything like that. So that hasn't changed, right? There's no upfront fees to anybody. Um, but utilization uh, of this token and ensuring that the token that is now put into the individual claimant's wallet matches their claim form, that's how we maintain the integrity going forward so that we know exactly that claimant A submitted a form on this date, he received this token with this wallet address and this unique identifier, and then we know that that's always going to belong to that claimant and that amount that the claimant submitted and so on. Now, as we get further into arbitration and we go forward with the documentation, we, we know that there's going to be some that maybe they don't have enough documentation, they can't prove up their claim, and that's kind of the nature of the business. But ultimately, we'll get this in front of a tribunal, uh, and you know, an arbitration tribunal, and that's when you know the real the real work starts. Okay, and so you mentioned there's there's more than one reason to this besides just uh, keeping track of uh, of people. Uh, is is there a second uh, reason for utilizing this token? Yeah, the the way that we're doing this, we're actually bringing this under the PayPal user agreement from Singapore, not the U.S. PayPal agreement. Now, the, the Singapore PayPal agreement allows for this type of arbitration and class action under the Singapore court's jurisdiction, and the agreement allows us to arbitrate with any arbitration tribunal we want, and it says specifically that it applies to all PayPal users worldwide. Then, in the Singapore PayPal Singapore... Oh, that's not good. Trader Ruski, hello. I you, you didn't replace Eric, by the way. You were you were on here with him, and we lost him. So we're gonna we're gonna put him back on. Yeah, I decided. <laughs> That's brilliant, though. Huh? It is brilliant, uh, and uh, we're gonna probably get Eric. What's he must have had some reception issue. Right, sorry about that. Okay, yeah. yeah so happened. anyway, uh, Eric, while you were uh, gone for a few seconds, there we said hello to Trader Ruski. He's with us as well. Oh, hey, I, I'm glad he's on. I wanted to. Uh, I'm glad he was on. I was going to mention. Uh, he also helped out quite a bit by putting the information out last time I was on about the class action and you know the, the steps that we were taking, and it's very, very much appreciated. And that's very, very much the reason why um, you know this is this this only succeeds at this point using like by sheer numbers. And so, putting aside the the Singapore aspect of it, because that's also important. So that that's actually the best way to effectively manage the kinds of numbers that we're talking about as of today. I think we've, still, we've got over 8,000 people, mostly from the, the Far East, that have signed up and downloaded the tokens and have installed them in their wallets or placed them in their wallets. Now, and, and the other nice thing about this, there's no longer a concern about the dollar amount. There's no amount too low or too high. Geographic region is no longer a concern. In, in theory, this is open to everybody. And so it's really a no-risk proposition. Again, there's nothing to lose and no cost up front. And, you know, sign up and we'll take it from there. And so this applies to anybody who has 
had money confiscated by PayPal at any point, or is there a certain period in time where it has to be? What, what is the criteria for anyone who wants to join in with this? Usually there's a four-year statute of limitations, but that's something that we'll deal with as the arbitration can, you know, commences. And so there may be claimants that get disqualified because they waited too long before action was taken. That's possible, but until that happens, we're just encouraging everybody to sign up because, again, there's nothing to lose. If the claim is too old or time-barred, it would have been either way. I see. And and what if it's very recent? What if it just happened like yesterday? Is that still okay? It is, um, but honestly, we encourage people not to do it right away because there may be a chance that PayPal... Uh, unfreezes the account or, or, you know, allows them access to their funds again. We've seen that happen a few times. Um, if they join in and we begin in the part of the arbitration, it's not likely that PayPal is just going to release right away. Um, you never know. Um, the closer you are into the end of 180 days, I think the more likely that they're not going to give the money back. We've also seen a number of instances where they, PayPal hasn't actually confiscated the funds yet, but it's already gone beyond 180 days. Some cases, it's like two years has gone by. Weird. And the money is still, yeah, it's, it's still in limbo. Huh. It still shows available, but they can't access it. So we're going to throw all those in, too. Okay. <laughs> now, how do people sign up for this if they uh, want to get involved with this uh, latest attempt to finally bring PayPal to justice and give people their money back? All they have to do is go to the special website that we created, which is www.paypalclassaction.net. On that website is where we do all of our updates, our news releases. You'll be able to find the form. It's called the contribution agreement. You'll be able to find that, plus the instructions to uh, access the token and, and apply it to your particular uh, wallet or use the wallet that, that comes with it. So www.paypalclassaction.net. Make sure you guys know it's not .com. And uh, I, I have one more question for you here. There are some people, especially some of our uh, older listeners, we, we don't have a young audience here. I, I don't seem to uh, appeal to the youth movement here. So we, we have an older audience, and some people here, they have no interest or knowledge of anything uh, crypto. They, they don't want to get involved with anything they hear that's on the blockchain. They don't understand it, even if they want to get involved in it. Uh, so let's say you're someone like, uh, say, my mom, who's a very smart woman, but just uh, has no knowledge of this type of thing and would it would be pretty difficult for her since she's uh, she didn't grow up with this sort of thing and she never really had interest in it. So she's an old woman. She, she would uh, have a hard time understanding all of this. So how would someone like my mom learn how to do this since it's not super simple? No, that's a great question. And in the coming weeks, we're going to establish some kind of like a tech support line, and we're also going to have links to uh, the support page for the company that's providing the uh, wallet and the token. We'll probably do some kind of team viewer support where you know somebody from my office or the support center can just promote access and help walk people through the process. We also have posted the step-by-step instruction guide, uh, but assuming that that might be too technical for some people, which very well could be, we're going to implement some support staff to help people that are having trouble. We already had a few people reach out to us by email that they were having issues. We were able to refer them to the site's tech support, uh, the company that's providing the blockchain, and we also have downloadable instructions on the website as well. 
Okay, very good. And I'm going to make an offer here. See, something, I, here's a hidden talent of mine, some of you may not know, is that I'm very good at kind of like thinking like the novice user. And in fact, they when I had a regular job before I was a, the poker degenerate, uh, they actually used to use me to write the user manuals, which I didn't like doing. I hated it, but I was the only one that they uh, felt was capable of putting together a good user manual because I could think like the average user, not like the engineers putting it together. So, uh uh, if, if you'd like, if you could, if when you put the tutorial stuff together, if you'd like me to take a look at it and give my feedback of whether I think this is going to be good for the average person, I'll be glad to uh, to volunteer and do that for you for everything you've you know, you've done here. I think that's the least I can do, and uh, and you know give some feedback if if you're going to be producing it uh, in house. That is, yeah, we are, and that'd be very much appreciated because it's it's not really my background at this point, you know. But um, we're, you know, we're trying to keep this as close to budget as we can. Because we're essentially myself and the other firms are, you know, laying out all the costs for everything up front. Yeah. So, okay. So I'll be I'll be glad to take a look and tell you, you know, yeah, I think I think a novice could easily do this, or no, I think you should put this in too, or hey, I'll give you my feedback, my honest feedback on the whole thing, because the goal, of course, is to get as many people successfully signed up and and not be intimidated by the process, which isn't that difficult if if you just follow the instructions, but uh, can be kind of unnatural for people who are unused who are not used to it. So anyway. Uh, Eric, thank you for coming on tonight, and uh, I, I really hope, I sincerely hope, I'm not just saying this for radio, that this is successful in some way, because PayPal deserves it. They are thieves. They are stealing from our community. They're stealing from small businesses. They're doing it out of greed, and the fact that they're even abusing the arbitration process by uh, compelling people into this forced arbitration, most of whom don't even know they're agreeing to it, and that's totally against the spirit of uh, mutually agreed upon arbitration. That really is something which should, in my opinion, be two small businesses together that want to avoid a legal uh, battle that would be very costly for both, not for a big corporation to cram it down on an individual so they lose their rights. So the whole thing disgusts me like from start to finish, and I'm so glad that you're taking them on here, and I really hope this uh, succeeds. So uh, definitely anybody who's lost money to PayPal, don't blame yourself. If they've taken your money, even if you know you violated the terms, that's no excuse for them to steal from you, uh, definitely go to www.paypalclassaction.net and uh, if you've got any questions, you can uh, feel free to reach out to me and, and I'll refer you to Eric or the appropriate party to answer them. Because if you've been a victim of this, please uh, join in with this and uh, it may result in money in your pocket that you never thought you'd see again. Oh, I really, Eric, really appreciate it. Yeah. Sure. Let me just tell you, I did, apparently Stripe's doing something similar. Maybe not exactly similar, but I did refer a couple people to you. I don't know if they contacted you yet. Well, I'll tell you, we've heard this happening not just with PayPal, but also recently we've heard this about Amazon. And there's a good chance yep. that, you know, this is sort of a novel approach. This is, in a way, an unprecedented approach at getting getting past these anti-arbitration, anti-mass arbitration clauses, anti-class action clauses. If we're successful, we're going to not stop at PayPal. We're going to look at Amazon and eBay and, and Venmo, even by direct correlation to PayPal. I just think that this is happening on, on such a widespread basis. And when one large company starts to get away with it, the others follow suit because they see, you know, they're leading by example. Yeah. So, you know, that's it. So we, if we can get through this first one, th this is going to be 
what we do. Yes, that, that, that would be great you know, because, because these the the consumers need this protection and and the companies deserve uh, comeuppance for what they're doing here. This is a straight up stealing. And uh, as as someone who runs a show calling out fraud and scams, I mean, this isn't directly about poker, but it has hit poker players. And uh, even if it hasn't, it just to to see this just gets me so mad. And the way these uh, they're abusing even the legal mechanisms to be able to worm out of uh, what they think. You know, could be any consequence, so they find ways to stop people from asserting the rights they should have. It, the whole thing is just disgusting. So I, I really want to see this succeed, and uh, I'm glad this is going. And I hope, I hope not only does PayPal uh, lose here, I hope that you guys can take it on to other companies who are doing similar things. That's that's the goal. You know, we, we want, we're going to take baby steps, and we, you know, we got to get through this first round. Yeah, um, we anticipate between ten and fifteen thousand claimants in this first round. Wow. All righty. Well, that is uh, very interesting, very creative what you guys are doing here, and I approve. I give it a big fat thumbs up, and let's hope it works. I will give you guys any update. And again, anybody who may have been a victim of PayPal, big or small, please uh, let me know if you have any questions, or just go to uh, paypalclassaction.net and sign up yourself. I, uh, I, hey, Todd, I really appreciate you giving me the time and uh, letting me use the platform to get this message out. It's just you know, it's so important. And, uh, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for, for helping with, with all this. Yeah, no problem. It's, it's a great cause, actually. As far as uh, legal causes, this is one of the best ones I've seen. So uh, de- definitely from a financial standpoint. So I'm, I'm very happy to uh, help out, get the word out, and uh, hopefully it will result in something great. So thank you uh, for coming on, Eric, and uh, we will talk to you later. All right. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Eric. That was attorney Eric Benzamokin. And, you know, he, he goes to bed early. He's not like me with... Uh, staying up all night he and i are the same age and we have some other things in common from our background we're also both jews but that's just one of many things one thing we don't have in common for sure is our hours and when he comes on this show he uh usually is doing it right before bed so so i sometimes feel bad keeping him awake and uh, he's probably going to bed right after this appearance but it was an important message to get out Trader Risk, are you still with us? Starting to fade. Okay, well, you, you can drop off whenever you like, but I've got a question. The Venetian, have you heard about the controversy there recently regarding the canceled tournaments series? Is that the one you covered last week? Or no, I... I no, that, no, I didn't. No, this is one I haven't talked about yet, but uh, I'm definitely going to talk about it this week. This is a tournament series that is ironically named Stairway to Millions, but I think it's a stairway that uh, falls off into the abyss because they ended up doing something very unethical, and that was they canceled events that had a guarantees prize pool after they noticed that prior events that were part of this series were not meeting the guarantees, and they were afraid that these upcoming events would not, so they just outright canceled them. And what's even worse is that some people had already satellited into these events that were canceled. And what they did at that point was pay out these seats in cash. So they, you know, they can't cheat the people who won the satellite seats. They have to, by law, pay them something and pay them the value. But there were registrants in these events. By definition, if you satellite into an event, then you have a seat in that event. 
for those of you that don't know, satelliting means you play a smaller tournament to win a seat into a bigger tournament. So they canceled these events. In fact, they canceled events that overall together had a guaranteed prize pool of $1 million. Actually, $1.1 million. This is a pretty big cancellation. And the poker community was furious about this. So there was a tournament that was expected to be a 25K buy-in, actually 25.5K buy-in, with 500,000 guaranteed. Now, that's not a huge number of people they have to expect. It's 25K buy-in and 500K guaranteed. It just needs 20 people, but I guess they thought they weren't going to get there. And then they also canceled some other events that ended up adding up to $1.1 million. And people were very upset about this, and rightfully so. Now, I'm going to quickly again explain the whole poker tournament guarantee situation for those of you that don't know. There are two different ways you can run a poker tournament. You can run it where just whoever enters, you add their money into the prize pool, and then when registration closes, you see how many people are going to pay, usually a a predetermined percentage of the field, and then you split up the prize pool from first all the way down to what's going to be the min cash, and that's the prize pool. So the prize pool is basically all the money collected from players who are playing minus whatever fees the house is taking. That's the standard way to run tournaments. That's the way most tournaments are run and always have been run. But guaranteed tournaments are promising a minimum prize pool regardless of how many people enter. So if they get very few entrants, they're still guaranteeing that amount of the prize pool. So that's very beneficial to players if they show up to play in this event and then not that many people enter and they would not have reached that prize pool. It's basically free money from the casino being dumped into the prize pool. But wait, why would casinos ever do that and leave them on the hook for this? Well, when you run a guaranteed event, it does attend uh, it does tend to attract more people than if you didn't run a guaranteed event so people will play it number 1 because they're excited that they know the prize pool will be at minimum a certain amount and number 2 they will always have the hope that hey maybe extra money will be thrown into the prize pool if they don't reach the guarantee a condition known as an overlay so if you're a poker player you're thrilled to be in a tournament which has an overlay For example, if you're exactly an average skill tournament player and there is an overlay, then you are actually positive expectation in that event because instead of being negative expectation if you were exactly average because of the house juice, the house fee they take out of each tournament prize pool, here you're getting extra money in the pool. So overall, if you played these tournaments over and over and over again and got a very large large sample, you would make money even if you were an exactly average tournament player who otherwise would be break-even or worse. So it's basically free money added on for anyone who cashes when there's an overlay. And that's what's great for the players. And that's what does bring people to play these guaranteed tournaments, as well as just the confidence that the prize pool will be a certain size and you're playing for more money than it otherwise might be. So the casinos offer these to get more participation. And what the casinos hope, of course, is that so many people show up because of the guarantee that they end up not needing to even honor the guarantee because it hits anyway. 
So for example, if there's a $100,000 guarantee event with a $1,000 buy-in, that would take 100 buy-ins to reach that break-even point. So let's say 120 people play. Well, then the prize pool would be $120,000. We're ignoring the fees here just for simplicity. Well, then the guarantee doesn't matter because the guarantee was 100K and they have 120,000 in the prize pool anyway. So there the guarantee doesn't play into it, but maybe more people showed up in the first place because of the guarantee. So in that case, the casino ended up making extra money. So that's why casinos like it, but they are taking a chance. That is gambling. The casino is actually gambling when they hold a guarantee tournament because if it does not attract the expected number of people, they are on the hook to add money and they lose a lot of money from the whole thing. Not only don't they make money from the fees, but they actually have to add money to the pool. But nobody is forcing tournaments to be guarantees. It's up to the venue itself. So if a card room does not want to take a chance of an overlay occurring and being out money because of it, then very, very simple. Don't run any guaranteed tournaments. Just like if I do not want to possibly lose my hard-earned money tonight, then I don't have to go to a casino. But the second I set foot in a casino and play something at the casino, no matter what it is, if I gamble at the casino, I am taking chances that I'm going to lose money. I may walk out losing money. And if I do, I can't say, oh man, I wish I hadn't gone tonight. I wish I hadn't decided to risk this money tonight. This really sucks. I want that money back. Hey, casino, give me back the money I lost. If I said that, you'd say I'm an idiot. But that's exactly what these casinos are doing when they try to worm out of these guarantees, where basically they only want to keep the guarantee if the guarantee doesn't matter anyway and they don't have to do anything. But once they actually have to pay the guarantee, where they have to add extra money in to make it, that's when some casinos get shady and try to worm out of it. And when I say some, I mean some. There are plenty of card rooms that do not pull these shenanigans and that perfectly honor their guarantees. And if they fall short, they feel stupid, but they pay it out and lesson learned, and then they do something different next time. So props to the casinos that keep their word on these guarantees, and there's many of them. But unfortunately, we have an epidemic of more and more casinos. This year, it's been worst ever. More and more casinos that are finding ways to either worm out of the guarantee or offering kind of a fraudulent guarantee in the first place. So we're going to have back-to-back topics here about this. One is about the Venetian itself, and then one is going to be a general discussion of this topic and what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to be spearheading an attempt to put a stop to this legally. So let's focus on the Venetian for right now. So they had this uh, Stairway to Millions series. It was actually on Poker Go. It's the Poker Go Stairway to Millions series. It had a number of events, looks like uh, all the way through September 19th, There were 12 events total that were scheduled. Some of these had guarantees. Some of them did not, but most of them did. Only a few events in the middle didn't have guarantees. But the guarantees ranged from 25K all the way up to 600K. The last two were 500K and 600K, and these were high roller events, one for... uh, um, 
I'm seeing $26,000, but then I'm also reading twenty five five. It doesn't matter. It's pretty, pretty close. But uh, either twenty five or 26000 buy-in with a 500K guarantee, and then a 52000 buy-in at a 600K guarantee. Those were the two that were canceled even after people had satellited into them. And that has gotten people very angry about the situation. So here's how it all went down. Adam Hendricks who finished in second place in event number nine at Stairway to Millions for 37K, uh, earned a seat into the final event. And during play, he was informed that the uh, guarantees for the event number 12 and 11, the ones that had the 500K and 600K guarantees, would be removed. So at this point, they were not going to cancel the events, but they were informing people who had uh, won a seat into those events, such as Adam Hendricks, that there was not going to be a guarantee anymore. They announced the guarantee before, but the guarantee is going to be removed, which is really unethical. So on September 17th, Adam Hendricks tweeted out the following. You can find this on Adam Hendricks, that's H-E-N-D-R-I-X 10, Adam Hendricks 10. He wrote, Yesterday played 10K Stairway to Millions event, and prize pool consisted of three people being paid out with cash and each person receiving seat to 25K tournament with 500K guaranteed. Today I play the 15K, and upon busting, the floor tells me they are removing the guarantee of 25K and 50K tournaments that are being played on Sunday and Monday, respectively. So at this point, three people won satellites to... Sunday's 25K and the ongoing 15K event I just busted out of registration is including three seats to 50K, was offered rake-free or cash for my seat. So this is a little confusing what he's writing here, but basically he's saying here that he was informed that he can, uh, if he wants to continue and actually play these two tournaments where the guarantee is being removed, that... Uh, they can either just give him cash for the seat, whatever the cash value is, or they can actually remove the rake and give him the cash value of the rake if he wants to continue playing the event. That was the offer that was given to him. He said, canceling a guarantee to a tournament you won a satellite into already is unacceptable. Canceling a guarantee to a tournament you won into a satellite is unacceptable. Then eventually they canceled the whole thing. Ryan LaPlante who is a very, very prolific tournament player who's based out of Vegas, wrote, they, so they canceled $1.1 million in guarantees of a series that had $2.15 million overall in guarantee. That's a good point, that they canceled half the guarantee in the whole series by killing those two events, and did so less than 20 hours before one tournament and less than 48 hours before the other, and after registration closed on a tournament that was a satellite to both. Yeah. Pretty bad. I mean, that sums it up very well. This is after they canceled those two. That they basically wiped out half the overall guarantees in the series, because these were high guarantees, and second, that they actually had finished registration for a tournament that was satelliting into these two. At first, I said to, uh, to Adam Hendricks, you know, as far as giving you the cash value, that's not bad, because the very most that a tournament seat can be worth is its cash value. So from that standpoint, that is all the seat's actually worth. 
But a separate issue, and these can't be put together. Some people are saying, oh, you know, maybe the seed is worth more because of a potential overlay or maybe because of the skill of the player, blah, blah, blah. That, that's not the Venetian's problem. The value of the seat is what you could buy in for. If you could buy in for the seat for a certain amount of money, that is the maximum amount the satellite into the tournament could be worth. I mean, that's just common sense. But a second and more troubling issue is the fact that they are just canceling it. That's the whole thing we need to talk about. Not, not that he got cash for his satellite win instead of getting the seat. It's the fact that they canceled a guarantee. Because if there's no guarantee, if they just if he satellited into an event that he thought was a soft event, and then they say, sorry, we're canceling the event, here's cash, if there is no guarantee, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. The problem is that there was a guarantee. And canceling any kind of guarantee event is very unethical. That's the problem here. The satellite, the satellite only comes into this because by the very fact that people had won seats to it already... That meant that people had tickets to that event. And canceling an event that already has people with seats to it when it has a guarantee versus canceling it before anyone's registered, neither are good, but canceling it when people are already registered is much worse. And we'll get into that more when we have our general discussion of the whole thing. The Lodge Card Club in Texas, which is part owned by Doug Polk, we've talked about it before, they had a championship series in May, and they had to eat over 300K in overlays, which Doug Polk frequently bragged about. But, you know, I guess this year with this happening so often with people getting screwed, I guess that is something to brag about, that you're actually not shady. It's pretty sad that these poker rooms offering these guaranteed tournaments that don't screw people actually have bragging rights saying, hey, look, everybody, we don't screw people. But that's where we are today. There's so many, there's so many uh, casinos and card rooms that are doing this that not doing this is starting to become more the exception than the rule, which is really bad. So people are very frustrated here because what happened was Venetian realized from, number one, the lack of registrations. I don't know how many they got, but they probably weren't getting many for these high rollers. And the previous events that were running in that series that were falling short of the guarantee. For example, the 10,400 event had 18 players and a 200,000 guarantee, so the Venetian had to kick in 20k. At the 15,500 tournament with a 300k guarantee, again, there were two players short, so that was an overlay of about 30k. So they had already thrown in 50k worth of uh, overlay money and they were getting tired of this and they were getting scared about these high roller events coming up because they might even fall shorter they were much more on the hook for the 500k and 600k guaranteed than they were for the earlier ones that had guarantees that were like a half or a third of that so rather than continuing to take a bath they just decided to first remove the guarantee and then just cancel the event altogether after people already had seats there. Now, what about Nevada Gaming? Was Nevada Gaming called? I was told, yes. I was told that Nevada Gaming was called and that ultimately the players were told there's nothing that can be done. And we'll get into that in our next segment. But that it was very frustrating because Nevada Gaming, which is supposed to protect players, in this case did not because they felt that legally 
Venetian had not committed any violation. Gaming can only do something if they feel there's been a legal violation. They they can't just say, oh, we don't like this. We think this is kind of crappy, so we're going to force Venetian to do this or that. They have to do it based upon legality. They're, They're actually law enforcement. These are actually state police officers who show up. So it's understandable if gaming thought there was no law being broken or no regulation being violated that they didn't do anything. But that's what I'm seeking to change because I, I don't think that's the right decision. I think there was a regulation violated. So the community's really getting fed up. Poker News attempted to get comment from Venetian and Venetian would not give comment. All they would say was, yes, we are canceling the last two events, period. Nothing further. Venetian has been hostile in many ways over time to the poker community, and they just don't care. They just don't care. At one point, they had what I called a fake guaranteed event. In fact, it's kind of an anti-guarantee. These were events that had a fixed prize pool. Not a guaranteed prize pool, but fixed. So once they get more players then they would need to get the guaranteed money. They just pocket the remaining buy-ins. Isn't that awful? So it's not like 400,000 guaranteed. It's 400,000 prize pool, period, no matter how many people enter. That's really crappy. Now, apparently, some card rooms experimented with that format in the 70s. So this is not innovative, but it's unethical. It's not the first time it's been done, but it hasn't been done in the modern era until Venetian did it. And that was crappy. So we've had things like that before. And a lot of the players registering didn't quite understand this because it was something that hasn't been seen in the decades since it last happened. So most people playing had no memory of that occurring or weren't even born at that point. So this was something that misled people, in my opinion. But this is even worse because this is just outright canceling tournaments where they're afraid they're not going to hit the guarantee. So what's the point of a guarantee? If they're only going to run guaranteed events when they are not going to fall short, then what is the point of having a guarantee? Not only what is the point, but it's basically cheating everybody because any upside of the guarantee for the player is erased if they're just going to cancel it if they don't like the participation. So it's like a fake guarantee. So people uh, come down thinking they're playing a guaranteed event and the guarantee sometimes will just never happen. Guaranteed should mean guaranteed. So that happened at Venetian, and many players are upset about this. There's been a number of these already in 2022, and probably more than I'm aware of. I'm just aware of certain ones that have been brought to my attention, but I'm sure there's others. It does appear that this is something that is happening more now than ever before. And why not? Because the casinos can get away with it, and they can save money. And then get people down there for these guaranteed events. And then, you know, if they don't get enough people, okay, we just cancel the event or don't pay the guarantee and we move on. And people bitch about it on social media, but they know they don't really care because the average player showing up for these either doesn't read social media or this isn't enough to dissuade them. So yeah, maybe Ryan LaPlante will boycott them, but... They don't care about Ryan LaPlante. They, they may not want him there anyway because he's good and he wins money. So 
They're not going to be disappointed if a good tournament pro like Ryan LaPlante stays away. They know that it's overall probably worth it to them to just not pay it, take a little bit of a hit on social media, not comment, and move on. Financially, this may not even be a bad decision. Ethically, it's a very bad decision. Financially, it may not be. And I think that's why they're doing it at Venetian, and I think that's why other rooms have done it this year in Vegas and elsewhere. Like, look at The Hustler. We talked about that last month, where they just didn't want to pay the guarantee. They just removed the guarantee and cut off starting flights and said, we're just going to pay out the pool we have. There's a lot of shaming on social media, and Hustler somewhat back down and and did kind of like a half solution to it. But I think the only reason they did that is because they have a very valuable show attached to it, which is Hustler Casino Live, which is only a year old. So the last thing they wanted to do was taint this immensely popular show that has eclipsed Live at the Bike and basically taken over in the streaming of live poker games world and has very good ratings. The last thing they wanted to do is ruin all the goodwill they've gotten from that. So that's why they came up with a solution, is, is my guess. I, I can't say for sure. I'm not in the head of the management of the Hustler. But I think that's the only reason that they backed down at all was because of Hustler Casino Live. And it's also very possible that the owners of Hustler Casino Live, Nick Vertucci and Ryan Feldman, were very unhappy and said, look, you're screwing our brand here. So Hustler probably backed down somewhat. But that was unusual. Most of these rooms don't ever back down. And again, Hustler's not even in Nevada, so we're more talking about Nevada. But this happens in a lot of places. I've even seen this happen in Europe over the years. So this is not something that is just in Las Vegas. Some people have said, well, what if we just do like a mass boycott? That never works. It never works. It's just there is no way to get enough poker players to participate in such boycotts to where it'll make a real impact, especially long-term. It's one thing to boycott one or two events coming up, but eventually people lose zeal for the whole thing and time heals the wound and they kind of miss playing in certain events they'd really like to play. And they go, okay, I guess it's all right to come back now. I'm I'm not thrilled about what happened, but whatever. And they come back. So these boycotts have never worked. There has never once been a boycott, to my knowledge, that has worked in this fashion in the poker community. So that's not a solution. I've seen that solution presented on Twitter over this Venetian thing. That's not a solution. That's not to say you should give Venetian poker your business when they're behaving this way. You shouldn't. And I would encourage that you don't play in their poker room if they're going to behave this way. But it's not going to stop them. They are very aware that there's going to be social media bitching about this and some people who will not come back because of this, but they have made the calculated decision that it's still worth it. So what can be done? I just told you some people called gaming who came down and said, sorry, nothing we can do. So is that it? End of story? Venetian can keep doing this? Other rooms can keep doing this and no problem? Or maybe we have a problem, but there's nothing we can do to stop it? Do we just have to take it up the ass as poker players in Las Vegas and elsewhere where these guaranteed tournaments are not honored? Well, maybe not. Maybe there is something we can do. Because I have been thinking about this, and I want to put a stop to this. Not because it's going to do very much for me. I don't play very many of those tournaments. 
But it's wrong. I don't like seeing it happen. It's cheating our community. It's unethical. It just needs to stop. Guaranteed should mean guaranteed. Do the poker rooms care about my opinion? Not really. So how will I stop it? Well, I can't guarantee I will stop it. But I do have a possible way to put an end to this issue. I have decided that I'm going to take this whole situation to Nevada Gaming. And you might say, wait a minute, but they already did that. And they were told no. They were told there's nothing that can be done. So why are you wasting your time? Furthermore, how could I even bring a complaint to Nevada Gaming since I was not a victim of any of this? I was not at the Venetian when this happened. I did not win a seat to one of these events. In fact, I haven't been screwed by a guarantee that wasn't honored ever. Personally, this has never happened to me. So why am I doing it? And how could I bring a complaint to gaming about third parties? Well, I really can't if I were to do it the normal way. Usually the procedure with gaming is that when an incident occurs at a casino, you call up gaming, who is on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you explain to them that you believe a violation of the law or a violation of some regulations are occurring, and they will send a gaming agent down to listen to your complaint, and they will talk to the casino, and on the spot, the gaming agent will make some kind of decision. They may compel the casino to do something in the player's favor. They may say, we agree with the player, you have to do this right now. They may tell the player, sorry, you're in the wrong. Legally, there's nothing that can be done. And sorry, we can't take any action and leave. Or there can be kind of a middle solution where they say, we're going to investigate this further. So we're leaving this matter open, but we're not taking action at this moment. I've seen that before where it takes a little while for gaming to decide on the situation where they can't give you a yes or no answer. Notice that in what I just described, you have to call gaming as something is happening, and they send a single gaming officer down. And by the way, these are state police officers. They have the same power as any police officer in the state of Nevada. They can make arrests. They are law enforcement, uh, but they only deal with gaming matters. So you don't call Nevada gaming if you get mugged in an alley in Las Vegas. You call them only about things that happen in casinos and only things related to the operations of casinos or things on the property of the casinos that, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be actual games. You can sometimes call them about uh, other issues that are at casinos that you feel that are cheating you in some way or that are violating regulations in some way. But it has to have some sort of uh, tie to gaming. Like if... Uh, you have uh, an issue with another patron there. Uh, that is something that's handled either with the cas casino security or with uh, Las Vegas Metro Police. So anyway, just making a call and having a gaming agent come down and make a snap determination whether you have any recourse is not going to get this solved. And I'll tell you why. Casinos have a protection from promotions that they regret. Let me give you an example. So let's say the Venetian has a promo for the month of October 2022 that they're going to pay you an extra 25% on all royal flushes you hit on property. 
This doesn't exist, by the way. I'm just making it up. But let's say they had this. And then let's say, because this is a very good promo to pay 25% extra on every Royal, that they are invaded by Casino Advantage players who realize this makes some of the video poker machines positive expectation, and they start hammering them all day and all night with heavy play. And let's say, after a week, the Venetian realizes they screwed up big time, that this promotion's killing them, that people are playing the hell out of these machines because they know these machines are a positive expectation, and you have teams of people coming in to play them, and they don't want to run this for a month. They're, they're losing money hand over fist from this whole thing, and they realize it was a mistake to do this in the first place, but it is only October 7th, and they go, oh my god, we can't run this for another 24 days. It's going to kill us. So, they do have the right to just end the promo. So they can just end it and say, okay, promo's over, guys. You're not going to get the extra 25% anymore on Royal Flushes. Now, they can't go retroactively. If the promo's still running and you hit it, then they have to pay you. But they can end the promo and make it clear they've ended the promo. And it doesn't matter if you put out expense to come to Vegas to play the promo. So let's say on October 8th, that you have flown out from New York to Las Vegas to play this promo, and then you get the bad news that uh, on October 7th they canceled it. You can't make a complaint to gaming, or if you do, you'll be dismissed, because they have a right to terminate or modify promotions early. So they could either just end the whole promo, they could bring it down from an extra 25% to an extra 5%. They can modify it any way they like and end it at any point. And that is their right. And the reason that this is the situation is because gaming doesn't want casinos to be forced to hang themselves because they inadvertently offered a stupid long-term promo which bleeds them dry. Basically, they, they want to limit the damage that can occur in the long or medium term from a poorly designed promotion that will really hurt the casino. Because if they didn't, then some of these casinos would end up going out of business. So they have to give them some consideration to correct things like this. And I think that's fine. I think it's fine that casinos can't be forced to run a promo for the length of time that they claim they're going to be running it. Now, some casinos will abuse this and use this to get out of paying people in various ways. And that's a whole different matter. And that's highly unethical and, in fact, illegal and shouldn't be happening. But we're not going to talk about that here. The point I'm making is that Casinos do have a right to cancel or modify promotions at any point. So, getting back to what happened with the guaranteed prize pools, if you call gaming when a guaranteed prize pool is either removed or when it is uh, completely canceled altogether, when the whole tournament's canceled and the tournament hasn't started yet, the casino defends itself by simply saying, look, we haven't started the tournament yet, and this was a promotion. So we've decided to rescind the promotion. If you look in the fine print, it says we can rescind or modify any promotion at any time. This falls under that heading. So it is our right to do. And the gaming agent says, yep, that is the right to do. And the player is left empty-handed. The player does not get the justice they deserve. So what can be done about this? Well, Gaming has to be convinced. And when I say gaming, I don't mean an individual gaming agent who comes down at 11 o'clock at night. I mean gaming itself, Nevada gaming itself, needs to look at this differently and 
First and foremost, they need to understand that guaranteed prize pools are not a promotion. They are a different form of a poker tournament where the prize pool is guaranteed. And the reason it is guaranteed is they guarantee it with the expectation that this will draw more people to the event than if it were not guaranteed. And that casinos have the right at any time to offer a tournament that has no guaranteed prize pool. In fact, that tends to be the standard. So if they're going to take a risk offering a guarantee, then they have to honor it. A guarantee is only ethical if it cannot be reversed unless the venue is physically unable to host it due to a natural or man-made disaster. So, for example, if there's some sort of major weather event that prevents people from getting to Las Vegas or from going to the casino to play and they don't pay the guarantee or cancel the tournament, that should be fine. Or if there's some sort of massive tragedy like the Stephen Paddock shooting and that interferes with being able to offer the tournament and they don't offer it for that reason. Okay, that is something that is acceptable as well. But other than extraordinary circumstances like that, which should not happen very often, it should happen very, very rarely, if ever, guarantees should never, ever, ever be reversed. Once a casino offers them, they should be compelled to pay them. So what needs to be done is that gaming needs to understand the larger problem. They need to understand this is an epidemic that is increasing over time and not just leave it up to individual agents who are used to treating these guaranteed prize pools like a promotion. I bet your next question is, how could they be making this mistake? I thought Nevada Gaming is supposed to be experts on Nevada Gaming. So why should I have to teach them about anything? Shouldn't they already know? Well, the problem is gaming is always evolving. So Nevada Gaming is very good when it comes to things they're really used to. But when it comes to things that they don't know all that well, like a guaranteed prize pool tournament, they just may not have much experience there with thinking about what a guaranteed prize pool tournament really is. To them, it looks like a casino promo, and I think they would have to take a hard look at it to understand what really is a promo and what is not a promo. And this definitely is not a promo. So that's where these type of things can end up being allowed to occur. There are also some issues with the way Nevada Gaming has been dealing with online poker in Nevada. That's also an area they don't have the best understanding, in my opinion. And I think they could also use some education on the way that all works and the issues surrounding that. So I I feel the online poker regulations are not written well. So the more Nevada gaming has experience in dealing with something, the better job they do. So the type of gambling that they've seen for many, many decades, the type of gambling that they are regulating and and responding to complaints about that has existed before I was born, they're great at that because they have loads of experience. But guaranteed prize pools, how often do you think they get complaints about this? They, they probably have rarely dealt with it. And when they do, it just seems like a customer who doesn't understand that casinos can cancel promos. I mean, they probably get calls all the time about such and such casino isn't running a promo anymore. Make them. 
And then they go down and they go, no, no, no. See, we can't make them continue running a promo. And they explain it to the customer. And the customer may not like the explanation, but in many cases, gaming is right. But in this case, because it is not a promo, then they should compel them to offer it. And that is where gaming needs to take another look at this so they can better understand what's really going on. Let me tell you different ways that casinos and card rooms have cheated their players out of guaranteed prize pools in recent history. There's eight different ways I've found that this has been done. Eight. Number one, cancellation of future events. A casino cancels a guaranteed prize pool event after it's announced, but before anyone has registered. Often this occurs because the casino realizes that the demand for the event is going to be a lot lower than expected. Venetian did this and more, by the way. But this particular violation I found occurred twice in 2022 at the Orleans, where they canceled, I think one was in March and one was in June, where they canceled upcoming events where nobody had registered yet, but these were announced events with a guarantee that they just canceled because they saw that the series wasn't getting very good numbers. Number two. Discounting buy-ins or giving free buy-ins at the last minute to make up the difference between the guarantee and the money collected. Now, you may say, what's wrong with that? If they want to discount people's buy-ins or give preferred customers a free ticket in, what's the problem with that? Well, because what they're doing is they're stuffing additional players in that you have to compete with that either aren't paying or are paying less because they figure they have to put the money in anyway. So if they have to add 50K to the prize pool, rather than just throwing the 50K in, they can say, you know what? We're just going to throw in 50K of players that we like, and now the turn will have more entrance. So, you know, at least we'll have some players happy with us, or we'll, we'll sell these seats at a discount to get more bodies in there and, and get us closer to the guarantee. So that, again, destroys the value of the, what the players are getting from the overlay. Because if they stuff in players for free that they like, you know, like frequent gamblers or whatever, then there is no more overlay if the casino is putting them in. So this is basically artificial insertion of new players who are getting in for cheap or free, which corrupts the entire point of a guarantee in the first place. A guarantee means that the prize pool is going to be this much. And if they don't reach that from buy-ins, then you get to all play with this extra money. It doesn't mean that at the last minute, the casino will stuff a bunch of people in for really cheap or for free, so you're not getting extra value. That's not what people expect. That's not what is advertised. This occurred at the Westgate in April 2018. In fact, a player went down when it was announced that they would be letting people in for half price. This was announced through a popular poker streamer at the time named The Trooper. So they had the trooper announce this, and then people ran down there to get in for half price, which is very unethical to the rest of the players. And someone went down there and recorded them talking about this, and then gave it to me, and I played it on this show. That was uh, Darren Atterbury, and we had him on this show later over an entire different matter. Interesting guy, but uh, he got them admitting they were doing this on recording. And that was quite interesting. By the way, in Nevada, you can do that. Nevada is a single-party consent state where you can record anyone without their knowledge as long as you're recording yourself. Like, you can't secretly record two people talking without their knowledge, but as long you can bring a hidden recording device 
on your person or even over the phone to record someone else saying something in Nevada, and it actually can be used in a court of law because it's known as a single-party consent state. Uh, other states are different, but Nevada does allow that, so Darren was not even doing anything legally wrong there when he gave this to me to play. But that was definitely unethical, and this should not be happening. Number three, hidden or semi-hidden conditions to trigger the guarantee. So some casinos are afraid to offer guarantees where they can potentially absolutely get clobbered. So let's say the guarantee is $200,000, and then they only get 40000 worth of buy-ins. Well, then they've got to put in 160000 which can be pretty tough. So some casinos say, hmm, we don't want to be potentially on the hook for that much. So how about we force this many players to enter before the guarantee is honored? So if we don't get this many players, then there's no guarantee at all. And often this is in the fine print or somewhere that players are not aware of it. So they just think they're playing in such and such amount guaranteed tournament, and then it doesn't get the minimum number of players. And, oh, guess what, everybody? There is no guarantee because we didn't get the minimum number of players. And sometimes they set the minimum so high that it's already close to the amount they need to get in order to break even. This occurred at the MGM Grand in July of 2022, where a $3,000 guaranteed event, not $3,000 buy-in event, but $3,000 guaranteed total prize pool event, only ended up paying $1,500. And I have a funny and disturbing picture of that event where it says... On the top of the tournament clock, $3,000 guaranteed, blah, blah, blah. And then it says first place, 1000 second place, 500 This has happened in July of 2022, even just to save 1500 bucks. <laughs> it's not even like they were trying to get out of a huge overlay. This is a $1,500 overlay. They paid out 1500 on a 3000 guarantee. Their excuse at the time was, well, we're going to cancel the guarantee, but we're going to tell players beforehand, before the whole thing starts that the option is to either play with no guarantee or we'll just cancel it, and that everyone agreed to play with no guarantee, which is probably true, but that should not be allowed. Once they announce there's a 3000 guarantee, there has to be a $3,000 prize pool. That should be the way it is. Number four, cancellation of a future event during registration or after satellite seats have been won. Now, that is exactly what happened at Venetian at the Stairway to Millions, as I just described in the previous segment. So this is similar to number one, But it also has the worse addition to it where there are people already registered in some way, whether it's registration from just normal cash buy-ins or people satelliting their way in. Once people have existing seats to the event, to cancel it because it's not going to meet the guarantee is really, really bad. What is the point of a guaranteed event if they're going to cancel it when an overlay will occur? They can't even say, hey, no one's registered yet, so no problem, we're just going to take it off the schedule. Here, there are people registered, and they're like, ah, we're not getting enough people. Oh, we're going to end up with an overlay. Okay, no guarantee anymore. We only do a guarantee if we're not going to have to pay any guarantee. Number five, conversion of a future guaranteed prize pool event during registration to non-guaranteed. So this is what happened at first at the Venetian Stairway to Millions, where they were telling people, that uh, it's no longer going to be guaranteed. It's still going to run, but it's not going to be guaranteed. 
and the satellite people they gave them some options to get out of it if they wanted so that uh, is what they did there they ended up uh, ultimately canceling it but that was the original plan number six endless addition of starting flights until the guarantee is reached now this one doesn't get talked about enough but this is a big problem so some of these guaranteed prize pool tournaments don't just have one starting flight. Some of them have flight 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D. So these are separate starting flights, sometimes on different days, sometimes at different points on the same day. But where they keep having more and more starting flights, and of course with every starting flight that adds players to the pool. So let's say it's announced that there's going to be six starting flights on a 200,000 guaranteed tournament. 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 1E, 1F. But then as they get close to reaching day 1F, they're noticing that they're way behind. Let's say they only have uh, 100,000 worth of buy-ins on this 200K guaranteed, and they're coming into the final flight. And they're going, you know what? We'll probably get more people for this flight than others because of the overlay coming, but we don't think we're going to get enough to get it up to 200,000. And even if people do realize what's going on and rush down here, we may not have enough room to host enough people to get it all the way up to uh, 200,000. Sometimes the reason they have these multiple flights is because they just don't have enough room at the venue to run giant field tournaments. So whatever way it happens, they go, well, crap, rather than paying out an overlay, why don't we just keep adding starting flights and delaying day two over and over and over again until we finally get the people? So we'll get someone for every flight. So, okay, we haven't collected 200,000 worth of buy-ins in 1A through 1F, but why don't we then add a 1G? Well, then we'll get some more buy-ins, get closer. Up, 1G didn't get us there. Well, hey, guys, now there's 1H. Up, we didn't quite get there yet. We're close, though. Uh, We're going to have 1I also, our, our ninth starting day, even though we only said there were six. Okay, you know what? We got enough people on one eye. Now we finally hit 200,000 worth of buy-ins. Okay, guys, time for day two. Okay, good. We didn't have to pay anything out in an overlay. Very unethical, isn't it? So there should not be this situation allowed. You, you should not be able to add starting flights in order to avoid paying as much of the overlay. I've also seen, and this is alleged about uh, Venetian, in fact, uh, I'm going to read you a text I got about this yesterday. I haven't verified this, but uh, I believe the person. This person texted me, For event number 10, registration online was set to close at 4.30. When registration was set to close, 13 players were registered. We came back from break, and then break is extended about 45 minutes while the floor calls in whoever they can, meaning the floor is calling people and say, hey, how about you come down and play? There's there's an overlay. Uh, one leaves because it wasn't going to overlay. Uh, six more players show up. The other five all registered, and the event barely overlays. I called gaming on the spot for this, but they sound clueless about poker tournaments. They said it's in the rules. It's always in the fine print. Management can change or cancel which is their way out of any liability, which I just talked about. This is from the guy who texted me from the uh, 951. Yeah, that's right along the lines of adding starting flights, which is delaying time rather than adding flights. They're just saying, okay, well, we're going to allow even later registration. In fact, we're not going to have you keep playing while we extend late registration. We're just going to have an extended break so people can keep coming down, and then they quickly get on the phone and go, come on, come on down, come on down, and we have an overlay, we have an overlay, and they, do, they try to get people to come down there and play and avoid the overlay. Again, 
very, very unethical. Now, if they want to market, that's fine. They have a right to market the tournament. So if they see an overlay's coming, it's fine to market that an overlay's coming. It's fine to call people they think might be interested in playing, provided these people pay the full amount to buy in and the casino is not subsidizing it. That's fine to do. They can spread the word all they like. But to delay the end of registration or add starting flights is very unethical. So that's number six. Number seven, as far as ways they cheat players in guaranteed prize pool tournaments, subtracting hidden fees for other promotions that come from the guaranteed prize pool. This should not be allowed, even if the subtracted money goes into other promos, which ultimately end up in the players' pockets. Guaranteed should mean guaranteed, not guaranteed minus 3%. So this also occurred at the MGM Grand in July in Las Vegas, where a $20,000 guaranteed ended up paying out 19700 something along those lines, because they were taking out, uh, I think, 1.5% for some kind of free roll they were going to hold at the end. The reason this isn't good, even if it's coming out to ultimately pay to other players, is that this is misleading. If you say 20000 guaranteed, even if it's in the documentation somewhere that, oh, we take out one5 from all pools, guaranteed tournament should be excluded from this. It should be excluded. And the reason it should be excluded is because when people see such and such guaranteed, that should mean that the prize pool itself is that much. Not the prize pool is that much before such and such fee. This is more minor than the other things, but it's something that also shouldn't be allowed. Finally, number eight, which is the very worst one, not paying a guarantee during an event and simply reverting to paying out the prize pool as if there was no guarantee. Now, this is different than changing it during registration or changing it before registration begins. The very worst is where the tournament's actually running and then in the middle of that tournament that it is told to players, sorry, no more guarantee. I saw that in the past in Europe. This happened much more recently at the Hustler in the LA area in August of 2022. That is the very worst of them all, where people are actually playing a guaranteed event. They're actually in the middle of playing and then they're told, sorry, no more guarantee. So as you have heard some of these are worse than others but they're all a form of fraud and deceptive business practice it's very simple guaranteed should mean guaranteed period end of story no excuses no shenanigans no shenanigans no tricks if you say we guarantee this amount is going to be paid out in this tournament that should be it there shouldn't be any way they can worm out of it there shouldn't be any fine print There shouldn't be anything that the public finds misleading. There shouldn't be any trickery. It should be very simple. If you say a tournament has a guarantee, you must pay out that amount to the players in full unless a very extraordinary event occurs preventing people from getting to the card room. So what can be done, though? We still haven't gotten to that. I told you what I'd like to do is go to gaming speak to some high-level people there, get them to take another look at this and how they're going to handle these in the future. But it's one thing for me to go to gaming and say, hey, guys, I think this is wrong. I think this is unethical. Stop it. And another thing for me to say, hey, I believe these casinos are actually violating regulations. 
number two is much, much stronger. If I just say, I think this is wrong, I think this is unethical, they'll say, okay, Todd, well, that's your opinion, but your opinion does not make the law. We can't compel a casino to pay out a guarantee just because you don't like how they're operating, because you think they're unethical. Your opinion doesn't matter. And that's true. So the only way to get them to change the way they're handling this is either to get them to change the laws or regulations or to enforce existing ones that they may not be enforcing. Well, of course, the latter is much easier to do. And there may be one which they are violating. Section 5.011, actually 5.0.11 of the Operation of Gaming Establishments document, which can be found on the gaming.nv.gov website. I won't give you the whole complicated URL, but you can find it in the thread that I made about this on the Scam, Scandals, and Shadiness forum. You can see this in the fourth post I made there. I have a link to that document. But here's the relevant part of it. 5.0.11, grounds for disciplinary action. So basically they're saying, here are various things the casino could be doing that we will discipline them for. The board and the commission deem any activity on the part of any licensee, meaning the casino, his agents or employees, that is inimical to to the public health, safety, morals, good order, and general welfare of the people of the state of Nevada, or that would reflect or tend to reflect discredit upon the state of Nevada or the gaming industry, to be an unsuitable method of operation and shall be grounds for disciplinary action by the board and the commission in, in accordance with the Nevada Gaming Control Act and the regulations of the board and the commission. Without limiting the generality of the foregoing, the following acts or omissions may be determined to be unsuitable for methods of operation. Let me go back to this again, because it was kind of a run-on sentence and kind of complicated. Let me go back to the parts that really jump out at me. That is inimical to the public health, safety, morals, good order, and general welfare of the state of Nevada, or that would reflect or tend to reflect discredit upon the state of Nevada or the gaming industry. Well, yes. I mean, that's exactly what this is. This is something that looks very deceptive. That's going to piss people off. If people from out of town play there, they'll say, what the hell? Why aren't they paying the guarantee? This is fraud. We're being cheated here. This definitely violates morals and would reflect badly upon the gaming industry and the state of Nevada. But That's very general. There's something a bit more specific, though, in term number four of 5.0.11. It says, number four, failure to conduct advertising and public relations activities in accordance with decency, dignity, good taste, honesty, and inoffensiveness, including but not limited to advertising that is false or materially misleading. The last part is what matters. Advertising that is false or materially misleading. Would you say that advertising a tournament that is $500,000 guaranteed that they choose not to hold because they don't want to pay the guarantee is false or materially misleading? Yes, because it's not guaranteed then. They're not guaranteeing anything if they're going to cancel it because they don't like the participation. So that is very false advertising. Guaranteed is a very strong word. It's not like they say 500,000 projected prize pool, 500,000 assumed prize pool. 
500,000 prize pool under the right circumstances. No. 500,000 guaranteed. They're using the word guaranteed. How is that not false or materially misleading? It is very false and materially misleading. So they are violating it right there. 5.0.11, term number four. Right there. Right there in black and white. So a strong case could be made that the advertising of these guaranteed prize pools is false or materially misleading if there are many, many ways they can avoid paying out these guarantees and do. And that these ways are not clearly disclosed to patrons before registration. Just because they buried in the fine print does not mean they should be able to do it because it is misleading and it is false. Now, does this term specifically mention anything about guaranteed prize pool tournaments? No. Does it mention anything about poker? No. Is there anything in 5.0.11 about poker? No. So is this a slam dunk? No. The term is very broad and can be determined many ways. But I feel it does indeed describe the highly deceptive actions that are being taken by some of these Las Vegas poker rooms. I feel that gaming could, if they choose, use this section, 5.0.11, to stop playing fast and loose with these guaranteed tournaments. That's what they're doing right now. The challenge, of course, is going to be getting gaming to see it our way. Almost every poker player I know agrees with everything I'm saying here. So I'm not saying controversial stuff from the standpoint of the poker community. There are sometimes situations, which I talk about on this show, not about guaranteed tournaments, but about just general things happening in poker, where I have an opinion and then people say, no, you're wrong. But this is not one of them. In poker, everyone's of a single mind about this. But we can think one way, but gaming has to see it our way, or otherwise nothing's going to happen. So how do we get them to change their tune? Well, I feel that we need to stop being reactive and be proactive. So proactive is to set up that meeting I'm talking about with me and several Las Vegas tournament pros to come there and talk to them and tell them about this epidemic, say, we're not here to complain specifically about the Venetian or the Orleans or the MGM Grand, but we are complaining that this is happening over and over in multiple places around Las Vegas. And that when gaming is called, unfortunately, nothing gets done because this is being seen as a promotion, which we feel it really isn't. And that's how they're getting away with it. There's just outright fraud, and here's why. And that we feel it's a violation of Regulation 5.0.11, as well as a violation of common decency and fairness to patrons of these casinos. And hopefully that'll cause gaming to reconsider the matter and then give guidance to the agents who go down to treat this differently, to tell the casinos, no, you can't do this, you can't cancel the guarantee. Maybe even give guidance to these poker rooms and say, going forward, you can't do this anymore. So here's what I will be requesting become the new rules. And by the way, this is just my request. Even if they agree with me, even if they say, you know what, Todd, you're 100% right, it's possible that they will think that my requests are not feasible or not what they want to do or they don't agree with them all. So this is what I'm going to recommend, but they will ultimately do what they do. But this, what I'm about to list here would make it totally fair and would basically make the guaranteed prize pool thing bulletproof as far as being used to defraud people. Number one, once announced, guaranteed prize pool tournaments must take place and the guarantee must be honored. 
The only exception will be if a natural or man-made disaster prevents the tournament from operating. Number two, no additional starting flights may be added to a guaranteed prize pool tournament, nor may additional time be added to the late registration period once it has been announced. Number three, no discount may be provided to any player entering a guaranteed prize pool tournament, nor may the house buy in preferred players for free. Number four, no promotional money may be taken out of a guaranteed prize pool tournament unless it's printed on all advertising material in the same font and location as the guarantee amount itself. That means no fine print, no smaller fonts, no putting something where you think people aren't going to read. If you're going to write $20,000 guarantee, it has to say next to it, minus whatever percentage for promotional event afterwards, and uh, it has to be in the exact same font, just as big as the guarantee is written. So everyone sees it. Number five, no minimum number of players can be specified to trigger the guarantee. The guarantee either exists or it does not, and it can never be tied to a number of registrants. I haven't yet selected who I will ask to attend with me. I have received a few messages on Twitter from Vegas area players that would like to attend with me, and I told them that I will definitely keep them under consideration. But no point to discuss this or spend too much energy on who to pick if this meeting has not been scheduled yet. It's possible gaming will just say, we're not doing it. Thank you for your interest, but uh, we don't want to hear from you. Just If it happens, call at the time and we'll look into it, but we don't want to have a meeting about this whole matter. They may say that to me, and I can't compel them to do otherwise. They can do what they want. But if they agree to such a meeting, I will attend, and then I will invite various people to attend, including some who messaged me already. I I tweeted that I'm going to be doing this. That's why I'm getting some messages. But who will I invite? So I'm not going to name names, but here's the criteria that they would have. Number one, they have to be Las Vegas locals. Because I want to have people with me who live in Vegas and not outsiders. I know outsiders play in in Vegas tournaments, but uh, it will make more of an impact on the board if the people with me are frequent tournament players. Number two, they need to be respected within the poker community with no significant scandals or baggage associated with them. Because the last thing I want is to bring someone there that if gaming looks into them, they're going to see that they're accused of scamming and, and other shady things, and then they, they don't have the credibility that they would need for gaming to respect them. So I, I need people that with no significant scandals. And I don't mean... I don't want anyone who hasn't been in some controversy or hasn't pissed people off. Like I, I only care about significant scandals that would really undermine their credibility. Number three, people who are articulate and able to explain why these actions are harming Nevada residents and tourists. So I, there are players out there who are great players, but if asked to speak about something like this would have a very hard time. They're very quiet. They get nervous when they're having to present anything, they have social anxiety, whatever it might be. So while these might be great players and great human beings, they wouldn't be good for this. So I need someone who can speak about this well. And number four, people who are regulars in the Las Vegas or Reno tournament scene. Remember, Reno's part of Nevada too, so that's fine. But I would need someone who regularly plays in the Nevada tournament scene, not just someone who plays once in a while. So that's the criteria I'll be looking for. And then 
Maybe some people I invite will say, sorry, I can't make it. Sorry, I just don't really want to do this. Whatever. But I will get some people, I'm sure, because there's a lot of interest in resolving this. In fact, I'm not just going to invite people who are friendly with me. I'm not going to invite people who hate me because it'll be hard to work with them. But even people who are just neutral on me or barely know me, or even people who kind of don't care for me that much, but we don't have that much of a problem, I'll be glad to bring with me. I just want to bring the best people for this. The only exception would be ones who really, really strongly dislike me because I do have to work with these people and it just wouldn't be a good fit. So I already have a number of people in mind, others who have already contacted me, so I'm sure that part of it, if it comes to that, will be easy to get players to come with me. When will this take place? Well, I don't know. It hasn't been scheduled yet. If it does take place, it will probably be in October, November, or December is my guess. I don't know what gaming has on their schedule at the moment. I don't know how far out they schedule these things if they agree to do it. Have I done anything yet, or am I just talking about it? Yes, I have done some things behind the scenes. I'm not going to say what they are yet, but I'm at the very beginning of the process. I have spoken to gaming already. I have not been made any any promises or any kind of even implied promises. I've been told what I have to do to even request this meeting in the first place, and I'm in the process of putting that together. And then I'll see what response I get from them. If I get a positive response saying, yes, we'd love to meet with you and give me a date, then I will be there and I'll round up the relevant poker players to come with me. And if they say, no, we don't want to meet with you, I'll take another shot with convincing them why they should. If they ultimately just say, no, we're not interested, we're not doing it, I can't do anything about it. Then I've tried my best and I'm stuck and that's it. So that's why I'm saying there's no guarantees. Don't go around saying, oh, Dandruff's going to get this changed. Well, Dandruff would like to get this changed, but I may not get this changed. I may fail. I may fail through no fault of my own if they just choose not to hear about this. But I'm going to try, and we will see. People have told me this is an uphill battle. People have told me that this is a long shot. That might be. But I don't think it's such a long shot to where it's not worth trying. I'm not going to put a 1,000 hours into this. But I will put some time into this to get it going, and I'll even put a little more time to try to convince them otherwise if they don't want to meet with me. Because that would be nice. Wouldn't it be nice if this could just stop? Wouldn't it be great if gaming sees it our way, and then they tell all the casinos, don't do this anymore? Guarantee means guarantee. You can't cancel it. Someone on Twitter said to me that this is going to kill the guarantees in Vegas. There was one person who was not for this effort, saying, we understand what you're trying to do here, but if you make this too hard on the casinos, where they have no way out of these guarantees and are big time exposed, they're just going to say, we're not having these anymore. What is my response? Good. Good. I don't want guarantees in Vegas if they're not going to honor the guarantees. A guarantee is absolutely useless if they get that number of people entering anyway. Or if they hold it as a free roll for themselves, where they will only honor the guarantee if there's nothing to honor. So even if it does attract more people to the tournament, that is not worth it 
if ultimately the guarantee is either not going to be honored or barely honored, barely meaning that they'll they'll pay it if it's going to be very close, but if it's going to be something that's uh, of any significance, they're going to find a way out of it. Then they shouldn't run them. Then they shouldn't exist. I would rather they just don't exist if that's the plan for these casinos. Guarantee tournaments either need to be done ethically and fairly or not at all. And if the casinos say, well, we can't screw people anymore, and that was kind of our business model with this, so no more guaranteed tournaments. Well, then so be it. Then it's not a great loss. But you know what? We're not going to lose them because the World Series of Poker has guaranteed tournaments, and they've never pulled this. They never will pull this. They would never taint their brand that way. So that'll still exist. And even though that's only for seven weeks every year, and most of the events are not guaranteed, there will be other venues, ones that don't pull these shenanigans, that will continue to offer guaranteed tournaments because they haven't been pulling these shenanigans in the first place. They will be unaffected by any new enforcement if they haven't been doing anything wrong. So you'll still see guaranteed tournaments. You'll just see a decline in the number of them offered by these shady places that try to cheat people. And that is a great thing. So I think it's totally fine if we see fewer BS guaranteed tournaments being offered. That would be great. That's my response to any concern about that. I never like the reasoning of we should let X company do Y really shady thing or they can't continue to offer such and such service. My answer to that is always no. No. They have to find some other way for loss mitigation or whatever else their concern is. You can't just say, well, we have to let them do this shady thing or, or they just uh, won't exist or the product or service won't exist. Misleading people and cheating people is never the proper way of doing things. I've heard this about hospital emergency rooms. I've heard, well, the patients who actually pay, they get overcharged and in many cases cheated because hospital emergency rooms lose so much money from those who just show up, get care, and never pay. Now, that does happen. Hospital emergency rooms get stiffed all the time. But I say, look... I understand if prices have to be higher because of that. It's kind of the same lines that a place that gets shoplifted from a lot has to raise its prices to make up for it. But you can't justify cheating the good-paying customers to make up because others are defrauding you. That's the classic case of two wrongs don't make a right. And you can't say, well, these ERs can't operate otherwise. Well, no, they have to find other ways around it. The answer is never to scam the patients. And same with it here. With the guaranteed tournaments, you can't just say, well, they, they have to find ways of keeping themselves from being too exposed or otherwise they could go out of business. They, and so they just can't offer these guarantees. Okay, then don't. Guaranteed tournaments are not the majority of tournaments that run. So you don't have to have them. They're not a necessity. 775-FRAUD-55 775-372-8355 is the number if you would like to reach the show. You can also text me at any time at that same number. From the 509, can you ask Eric Benzamokin if there's any nonprofit organizations that have had donations confiscated? I would have if I got this text in time. <laughs> but uh, I'm guessing there probably was. They, they've hit so many people around the world. So many people and businesses around the world have been hit by PayPal in this way. 
from the 530. Ebony Kenny segment was amazing. My favorite part was the comparison of a man wearing a fleshlight around his neck versus her wearing the vibrator, LOL. Yeah, I keep citing that to people who give me a hard time about criticizing that. Oh, you know, she's just sex positive. Oh, you know, who are you to say she can't do that? Oh, you're such a misogynist. I go, no, I'm not. I would be just as critical of a dude who was wearing a sex toy around his neck and talking about masturbation at the poker table. I would say that guy is a weird pervert and is creepy and shouldn't be doing that. That's what I would say. That's what most people would say. So I'm holding females to the same standard. From the 651, number seven is slightly anti-semantics. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but, uh, all right. He's also asking, how do I pause the live stream or fast forward or rewind? There's a little player that is on the radio page. I don't think it has fast forward or rewind. It does have pause, but then it just resumes of where it is. Now, you can jump to the current by just reloading it. But I, there is no fast forward or rewind. Obviously, fast forward, unless you've already rewound, is impossible because you'd be forwarding yourself into the future and hearing what I'm going to say before I say it, which would be an interesting feature. I'd love to have that, but it's uh, something I don't think is possible, at least at this time. But you may be able to do it if you use the TuneIn app because the TuneIn app can be used to listen live. On the TuneIn app, we have a we have two entries in the TuneIn app. We have the live Poker Fraud Alert radio entry and the archives of Poker Fraud Alert on TuneIn. And you'll be able to tell the difference is one of them just starts playing and the other one gives you a big list of shows to choose from. So the one that's playing is either playing the streaming reruns or the live show if we're on live. And that one, I believe, you can drag your finger on the bar that's uh, above the play button and move back and then move back forward. So that is one solution if you want to get the TuneIn app, which, by the way, is free. Poker Go has done something which is getting some attention regarding two of the players who are facing cheating allegations this year. In the spring of 2022, Ali Imsrovic and Jake Schindler were called out by various people in the poker community for various forms of cheating. The first one to do these call-outs was respected poker pro Alex Foxen, who has been in some controversy himself over two things. Number one, he has pretty like right-wing, anti-vax COVID views, and that pissed off a lot of people. Not me. I, I didn't agree with a lot of his takes, but he's welcome to his opinion, and he's welcome to express his opinion. So I don't see why people got so mad at him. But some people got very mad at Alex and his wife about this because she was saying the same stuff he was. And then also, a few years beforehand, he was in a three-handed tournament. It was him, his then-girlfriend, now-wife, uh, Kristen Bicknell, and a third player named Kali Burns. And, and Burns was accusing them of soft-playing each other, three-handed with him. And he was offered a deal by them beforehand that was pretty equitable, that would have prevented this three-handed game, which was going to be awkward with the longtime boyfriend and girlfriend being two of the three, but Burns turned it down and then he felt they were soft playing, which there's a good chance they were. But aside from that, he has a good reputation. He's known as an excellent tournament player. 
And aside from that one soft play allegation, he's never been the subject of any kind of scandal. As I said, some people didn't like him because of his COVID views, but overall he has a good rep. And he was the first one in April to call out Ali Imsrevic. He said, poker blacklist can't come soon enough. Ali is banned from GG for multi-accounting and real-time assistance. That is using a program to give you information on the optimal way to act, like botting. I have witnessed numerous chip dumps to horses, meaning people that he's putting in the tournament, and many suspicious changes in play from people known to be his horses when deep in online multi-table tournaments, referring to ghosting that someone suddenly takes over who's a better player when people who are playing under him get deep. So a lot of allegations there. He, he made other allegations such as showing pictures of Ali playing in a live stream in the Seminole, Seminole Hard Rock uh poker bowl that he is alleged to have looked over at Paul Fua's whole cards because Paul Fua was not protecting his cards very well that Ali was making a real effort to look at his cards and then successfully did so and made a move that he could only have successfully done knowing what what, uh, Paul Fua's cards were. This really caught fire and while there was never any smoking gun proof there was a lot of strong circumstantial evidence that was presented and what was even more suspicious was the fact that ali did not defend himself at any point he wouldn't defend himself online when people would see him in person and say do you have a comment about this he would just say i have no comment which is weird you don't say that if you're wrongly being accused of cheating you can say whatever you want but it's a weird way to react to it if you're innocent If you have never cheated, if you've never used real-time assistance, if you haven't multi-accounted, if you haven't chip-dumped, if you haven't ghosted, if you haven't looked at people's whole cards when you're playing live, if you haven't done these things and a prominent player like Alex Foxen says you have, then you come right back out and say, no, Alex, you're lying. You cannot show that I've done this because I've never done this. You're full of crap. These are false allegations. Stop it. Ali did not do this. Ali had nothing to say. So he lets a very prominent player with a big following make these serious allegations and he has nothing to say back? Who would do that unless they're guilty? So his silence was incredibly telling. And eventually it came out that there was a second person involved with all of this, and that was another successful high-stakes player, Jake Schindler. So by the time this year's World Series came around, there was a lot of animosity towards both Ali Imsravik and Jake Schindler. People hated them. Jake Schindler won a bracelet, and people were very unhappy about that, and people were rooting against him very strongly. And people were wishing that neither of them were allowed. People were hoping that the World Series was just going to ban them, even though this wasn't about World Series play. They were hoping the World Series would just uh, basically disinvite them and say, we don't want you here, which would be their right to do. So poker has been waiting to see if some of these tournament venues would disinvite certain players who just have a bad reputation for cheating in recent times. Just ones that people don't want to see. Which is, as I said, the right of any casino to do. The casinos don't have to prove that you cheated either at their venue 
or other venues to say, we don't want you here. The only reason that they can't kick you out is something that is a federally protected class. They can't say, you can't play here because you're gay. You can't play here because you're a woman. You can't play here because you're black. That they can't do. But they can say, you know, we just don't like you. We don't want you on our property. We don't want you in this tournament. They can say that. And there's nothing you can do. They can kill you. They can kick you from the whole property. They can exclude you from certain games on the property. So they can say, for example, you can't play blackjack here. They can say you can't play poker here. They have every right to say that, and there's nothing you can do. You can't call gaming and have gaming compel them to allow you to play, nor can gaming force them to prove the reason that they don't like you. They just simply don't have to let you in or don't have to let you play certain things that they don't want to. So casinos have a right to blacklist people they don't like. The question is, should they and will they? So Poker Go has decided to finally take a stand. Poker Go is not a casino, as you know. It is a poker streaming service, but they do hold their own events and they have decided to make a decision regarding Jake and Ali. This is the statement they just put out. This is on September 22nd, yesterday. It was on their Twitter, at PokerGoNews on Twitter. Statement regarding the PGT, which stands for PokerGo Tour, status of Ali Emservic and Jake Schindler. The PokerGo Tour today announced the indefinite suspensions of Ali Emservic and Jake Schindler from tour play, effective immediately. The suspensions will extend through at least the 2022 Poker Go Tour season, upon which time a review will take place. The Poker Go Tour is committed to upholding the highest standards of integrity and emphasizes proper conduct to ensure the safety and security of its players and events. Both players have been ruled ineligible for this season-ending PGT Championship and have been removed from the 2022 Poker Go Tour leaderboard. So they're actually on the leaderboard from previous events, and Poker Go, Poker Go said, nope, no more. You're not going to play as part of our tour anymore. We're booting you off the leaderboard so you can't win anything. And we will review at the end of this 2022 Poker Go Tour if we want to extend your ban. And I'm not sure what criteria they're going to use, but basically they're making a decision for the moment that for this season, they don't want you to be part of it. And maybe next year they'll change their minds. But maybe not also. They'll take some more time to review it again. But right now, no, you're not coming. Well, that is an interesting move because Ali and Jake are not accused of having done anything on Poker Go. They're accused of having done things elsewhere. So Poker Go is just saying, we don't want these two. They're known cheaters. We don't want them. And they do have a right to do that. But how far is this going to go is the question. Who else might be excluded from Poker Go events? Is it possible that Bryn Kenny is next? Is it possible that they're going to reach back further in time? And anybody with cheating allegations from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe they won't be allowed either. What about people who owe money? What about people who chronically owe money? Like uh, Chino Ream or Eric Lindgren, ones who acted unethically to owe the money in the first place. And they owe it to tons of people. Will they be banned? 
And what about people like Justin Bonomo? Justin Bonomo was a known and admitted multi-accounter back in 2006. He did it pretty egregiously. He has admitted that he did it. There's no question he did it. But it was in 2006, and Justin Bonomo was very young. Since then, Justin Bonomo is not known to be a cheater in any way. He's known to be a douche on Twitter sometimes, but he is not known to be a cheater since what he was caught doing 16 years ago. So at some point, do we forgive him and say, okay, this was wrong back in 06, but you were young and you've reformed, and we've seen 16 years of behavior that has not involved anything unethical. So, okay, Justin, you're fine. Or do we say, no, you were caught cheating in 06, you can't play. So what is the statute of limitations for this, so to speak? What is reasonable? But what about Russ Hamilton? Russ Hamilton has a horrible reputation for his super using on UB in the 2000s. But it was in the 2000s. So might we say the same thing as we said for Bonomo? Could you just say, well, yeah, Russ Hamilton was super using, but he did this in 03 through 08. It's been 14 years, so time to let Russ back in the game. Now, Russ was doing much worse than Justin ever was on a much larger scale. Also, Russ was not a young guy when this happened. Russ was already an older man at that point. So there's a lot of reasons that you would still say no to Russ that are pretty obvious. But I'm just throwing out various questions that will come up regarding banning people from poker tournaments. Could it be a slippery slope? What if they just decide they don't like people? For example, what if they ban me, not that I'm trying to play, what if they ban me because I've criticized anything about Poker Go, which I don't really criticize very often. That's not a good example, but let's just say hypothetically, I'm pretty critical about Poker Go. And they say, you know what? Todd would tell us is banned because he's an asshole. They could. But once they get into banning people, are we going to start having it where there's cliques who are just getting people banned because they don't like them and inventing reasons to ban them, even without directly accusing them of cheating, just saying, okay, we're now banning this person too. End of story. Notice they're not saying why they're banning Ali and Jake, just that they're banned. Now, we know why, because we know their reputation. We know the reputation hit these took, these two took in the spring of 2022, which extends through today, and people are pissed off that these guys will not address the allegations and just keep playing as if nothing's wrong. And people are irritated to see this. They just keep showing up to these high-stakes events. They, they've been doing well at a number of them, and they will not address what is being alleged about them, which makes it really seem like it's true. And people are like, why are they being welcomed to play among the other high-stakes players when they will not address these very serious allegations against them? And that's a good point. So here's my feeling. We do not need conclusive, 100% proof of guilt to have certain people considered unwelcome at tournaments. Nobody has an inherent right to play poker tournaments. In the five months since the allegations, Ali and Jake have declined to comment, as I mentioned. That's highly suspicious. They almost surely would have rebutted the allegations of innocent. They took huge reputational damage from the allegations, so it would make no sense for them to stay quiet if they didn't do it. And I think the community can judge for each of these bans whether it's justified. And when a venue bans someone without good reason, that reflects badly upon them. So I don't think this is going to be something that's going to be abused. I think... 
if anything, it'll probably be underutilized, where they probably will only ban the most egregious of the accused cheaters. I don't think they're going to ban every person that's known to have cheated or thought to have cheated or has a reputation to have cheated, especially if it's from a long time ago. I think the criteria that's going to be used and should be used by this venue, this and other venues, just is there a recent major scandal involving this player to where it will upset people to see this player? Either a recent major scandal or a scandal from a while ago that's so big people can't get over it, like Russ Hamilton. That's another one. I don't see him playing these, but if Russ wanted to play the Poker Go Tour, they'd probably do the same thing. Because people don't want to see him. It upsets people to see Russ Hamilton there after what he's done to poker, even 14 years later. So really the criteria is, will it upset a lot of people to see these players there given what they've been accused of? If yes, and if it looks like the allegations are credible, even if not 100% proven, then ban them. Totally fine. Totally fine to do that. You know why? Because anybody who is falsely accused can say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not true. Prove it. Because it didn't happen. You won't be able to prove it because it never happened. Here's my rebuttal. A, B, C, D. And then if they raise good points, then people will say, yeah, okay, so I've got some questions here. Maybe they are innocent. But we're not seeing that. None of these people are, they're either not responding or they're responding with vague answers where you read between the lines and you can kind of get an idea of what's really going on and it's not good. Like Bryn Kenny. Bryn Kenny has answered somewhat in these interviews, but you can see from what he has to say that there were definitely things that were done that were not good. Even he admits that there was some ghosting. (laughs) So it's not even like he's saying he's 100% innocent. So anybody who is falsely accused has the opportunity to present their side. And then the public can make a decision. And I think if these venues only ban the cheaters who are strongly believed to have been guilty, to where it's very hard to picture how the allegations could be wrong, I think if they stick to that and stick to only the major cases of this or ones where people are caught red-handed, then I think nobody will object to it. And I think there won't be any abuse. It's one of these things where there's potential abuse, but not really likely abuse as far as banning of people who shouldn't be banned. If this becomes a pattern, if we start seeing Poker Go do this more, and the World Series does this, and the WPT does it, and other tournament series do this, I have a feeling that it'll go a very long time, if ever, before we find someone who is banned without justification. Someone who is banned that doesn't deserve it. As I said, I think if anything, there will be more people who deserve to be banned that aren't. I can't think of one case ever in poker where someone had a reputation of being a big cheater that turned out not to be. Where it turned out when you unpacked the whole thing, they were innocent. And it was a big conspiracy to smear their name when they hadn't done anything wrong. Can you think of one in all the years that you've been following poker? Can you think of one, a major cheating scandal where the accused was probably innocent? 
I bet you can't. I can't think of one. That should be your answer right there. And you know why? Because number one, serious cheating allegations are not usually made unless the person making the allegation has either a lot of proof or a lot of people that will back them up. And number two, anyone who is wrongly accused will just about always respond aggressively to false allegations. So that's why these false allegations don't happen very much. And when they do, they don't get very far. And there have been some, by the way, that I believe that also didn't get far just because there's not enough to go on. I've heard such and such person is cheating in such and such way. Such and such home game is shady and such and such person is responsible for setting it up and recruiting suckers to go play there. I've heard these stories before and sometimes they're even tweeted out and it never really goes anywhere because it's like he said, she said. It's very hard to tell if these things really happened. And even if when I read the whole thing, I think it kind of did, even I walk away going, well, I I really can't say for sure. And that's kind of how everyone reads it and it never really goes anywhere. It has to be something pretty strong to make a major hit to someone's reputation, like what has happened with Ali and Jake or what has happened with Bryn Kenny. So if they want to ban these type of players, great, do it. Not only do I think it's the right thing, but I think it may dissuade people from doing this. It may dissuade people from engaging in these shenanigans if they know that there will be a consequence, that if caught, they may not be able to play these events they want to play. They'll be blackballed, that'll be it. The worst thing you can do is just have outrage on social media and then no consequence. Because time passes, people forget, people lose their zeal for being mad about it, and then these people go back to their old ways and cheat again. And others watching the whole thing will go, hmm, well, that person got out of the whole thing without much damage. Maybe I should cheat too. So I think this is good. I congratulate Poker Go for making this move. I want to see Ali and Jake banned everywhere. There are some rumors that we will not see Ali, Jake, or Bryn at the 2023 World Series. And when I say rumors, I mean rumors. I'm not saying that this has been promised. I'm not saying that I have a lot of information on this. I'm just saying I've heard some rumors that before the 2023 World Series takes place, which is a while away, we're talking about uh, late May 2023 when it begins. We're only September 2022. But that when we get there, we're not going to see those three. Very interesting to watch going forward now. Which other poker tours are going to take a cue from Poker Go? And which players will be banned? Ali and Jake are the easiest two to ban here. Bryn, I think, for as shady as he's been acting, there's not quite as much to ban him for as there is for these two. I think most people believe Bryn engaged in a lot of wrongdoing and they don't really believe his story and I think a lot of people don't like him now and I don't think there will be a lot of crying if he's banned. But Ali and Jake have just been so arrogant about this. They just won't answer. They smugly say no comment if you ask them in person and they just keep on playing as if nothing's wrong. And that really gets people pissed. It's like they smugly think they got away with it and just can move forward. We don't 
have a right to have any concern. So shutting them out and saying, "Uh uh-uh, you won't address this so you're gone, I think that is great. So I want to talk about the Twitch situation. I had a lot of people texting me about it as it was happening because they knew it was something good for this show. And it's an interesting story. And even though the catalyst of this story didn't have to do with poker, it is a scam story. And it has an implication for poker very much. So very appropriate for this show. Thank everybody for sending me this story. I probably would have found it anyway, but really anything you'd like to see me cover, you're welcome to send me articles, especially if you haven't seen me post about them yet on the forum. Usually stories I post about on the forum, I'm going to cover if I think it's worth covering. But if I don't post about it at all and nobody else has, then it is good sometimes to let me know about a story you think I may have missed that may be good for the show. So here's what happened. Twitch is a streaming service. There's been a number of these over the years. You remember Justin TV a while back, like in the late 2000s? And there was Stick'em. There were others. But they're all along the same lines where a person can turn on their webcam and then viewers can join and watch them and interact with them. And then there's a chat room where people can talk to them. And Twitch has become popular for certain poker streamers, people who put on their online poker play and they talk to their viewers as they play. And you get to watch them, usually on some kind of delay. But there's a number of Twitch poker streamers out there, some of whom have become very popular. As I mentioned earlier in the show, one of the things Ebony Kenny was known for was being a Twitch streamer. But there's so many of them out there. And some of them make some good money from this, or they parlay it into other opportunities, like Ebony Kenny did. So there's a growing Twitch poker community. I don't watch any of this stuff, but I I know people who do. And I know some people really like that stuff. And the reason people like it is because they feel like it's real. It's not produced. It's not something that is presented with only the good sides. You get to see someone as they're playing poker. You get to have like a window into their lives. So that's why some people like it as as fans of these Twitch streams. As I said, it doesn't do much for me, but everybody's different for what they find appealing, but I know a lot of people like them. But most of Twitch is not poker. In fact, most of Twitch is not gambling. There's a lot of gamers on Twitch. That's what it's really big for. You get to watch people play various video games. And as you can imagine, it has a pretty young audience overall, Twitch, because who's going to watch gamers? It's going to usually be young people, like people my son's age, sometimes a little older, sometimes a little younger, but it's kids, teenagers, early 20s. That's that's who's mainly watching these gaming Twitch streams. And some of these Twitch streamers have become huge. I'm not talking about the poker ones, but there's some Twitch streamers in the gaming world who have become very, very big and semi-famous. So something happened on Twitch, which is uh, 
getting a lot of people upset. So there was a streamer named Silker. I'm not familiar with him, but there was a streamer named Silker. And he was borrowing money from other streamers. And at first, nobody thought much of it. And Silker was doing pretty well. So it was assumed that he was just uh, needing to temporarily borrow money and nothing was really seemed to be wrong. However, it turned out that Silker was a degenerate gambler. And the reason he was borrowing money was because he was broke because he had gambled all his money away. This is not a guess or a theory. This is true. Silker has admitted that he was borrowing money from people to feed a gambling addiction and lying about why he was borrowing the money and that he actually started gambling when he was playing on, uh, when he was trying to get these uh, skins on this game known as CSGO. And I've talked about this before, where basically you buy these uh, mystery boxes and then depending on what's in the box, it can be something very valuable that you can sell or trade later or it can be some crap. And people have likened it to gambling because you're buying something for a fixed value which then returns something that is either uh, fairly worthless or worth a lot of money that can be resold. So that's why this is seen as gambling in some way. And there's been some controversy about this. So he actually was claiming that that's how he got into gambling and then he transitioned to real gambling from there. So I'm going to play you some clips about Silker talking about his borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars from both streamers and other viewers as his gambling addiction got worse and worse. And then I'll go into the fallout from this whole thing. Because if this were just a regular guy who borrowed money from his friends and wasn't admitting what he really needed the money for and then turned out he was an addicted gambler, this wouldn't be a huge story because that happens all the time where addicted gamblers find ways to borrow money and don't admit the truth of what's really going on until they're really hitting rock bottom. But because this was a Twitch streamer who used the Twitch platform to enable this borrowing under false pretenses, now Twitch and its streamers are all up in arms over the whole gambling presence on Twitch. And the question becomes, should Twitch support any kind of gambling? Even though it wasn't the gambling channels that are to blame for this, but Let's hear Twi- let's hear a Silker's story first, and then we'll get into the greater issue. I genuinely mean this. I genuinely mean that I do apologize for everyone that I borrowed off. I, uh, I'm not asking for forgiveness, but every single day I felt guilty. Every single day. Taking off these innocents, viewers from streamers, viewers that don't even fucking work, man. Viewers that don't even work. Viewers that would need it because they, they're going to school and I'm being stupid. It would stack and stack and stack. People outside I'd borrow from in real life. And um, um, I've been in situations where I was scared. Um, they'd pull up, uh, have uh, like uh, warned me and uh pop my tires for my car and these are these are friends and i know um people are going to be like what friends do you have um they don't know about they don't know about 
ever since CSGO, not to blame, but ever since CSGO launch came out, I was, it, it was the first time I went on that site, and I, uh, I was, it was, it was a f gamble skins and stuff, and, um, uh, wow, eventually I found out you could gamble with money. Okay, so then he talked about how he got $100,000 from another streamer named Trainrex, but just chunked it off. Message him. I'd be like, bro, I'm in a situation. And he would even, he gave me like $150,000. No, sorry, not $150,000, $100,000. And I know people are going to be like, the people I owe, you're going to be like, what? I have borrowed in a month. I had to pay 50000 In a month, I would have to pay someone 50000 And then uh, Trainwreck himself commented on this. This is the guy who gave him the 100000 Confirmed that this story was real. He really gave him 100000 But then, actually, Silker came back to him and tried to get more. And apparently, Trainwreck wouldn't give anything more. Yeah, I gave him a lot of money. USD. Just a gift. Like I literally said, just give it, you know what I mean? Straight gift. And I wasn't even happy about it. Like, don't get me wrong, I wasn't like, oh, you know, have, no, no, no. I was like, listen, like, get your shit together, I'm pissed, we're done though. I mean, that was the trade-off. It was like, we're done. That's interesting. So, Trainwreck there is saying that Silker asked for the money and that Trainwreck gave it knowing that it was not going to be repaid. He's basically saying, here's 100K to get yourself right. But that's it. I'm giving you nothing further. So this wasn't even a loan. This is actually a gift of 100K, which is pretty damn generous. It's funny that this guy's named Trainwreck, who seems like he's not a train wreck, And then you have Silker, who should be called Trainwreck. But let's listen to the rest of what Trainwreck had to say. He said, yeah, I did. I yelled. I yelled in all capital letters. Because it was shameless. Because like, it, it was two increments. Like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, he came to me at first. He's like, yo, bro, like, you know, I'm in a bad place. Can you consolidate my debt and just, you know take it all and get, give me a big lump sum I'm like listen bro I'll do better I'll just give you a lump sum pay it all off as a gift and that first one was like I don't know 45k I think 50k 45k I believe two months later same story and I was like bro like so I don't know why he didn't just consolidate this guy's debts and pay it off instead of giving it to Silker. That that wasn't a very smart use of money. If you're a nice guy like this train wreck apparently is and you want to help this fellow streamer who's gotten himself into a mess with gambling debt, you don't say, hey, compulsive gambler, I know I could just pay your debts to the people that you owe, but instead of sending it directly to the people you owe, how about I just give the addicted gambler 100k to pay them back on his own? <laughs> oh my god that's stupid oh my god that's stupid <laughs> and then Silker had the nerve to come back to him anyway I guess why not he gave him 100k the first time and then uh, a video came out of Silker lying to one of his viewers asking for money and saying that his bank had locked his account and that's a common trick used by scammers who are broke the old bank is locking up my money story which is funny because let me tell you something. I have thought about like, what if I'm at a place where I don't have access to money I need to gamble? You know, something that, whatever it might be. I'm at some casino or poker room and I lose money and I don't have any left and I want to keep playing. 
and there's people there that I know but aren't like really close with me that I would like to borrow from that I'm definitely going to pay back immediately when I get home. You know, I'll send them a wire, I'll, I'll send them a check, uh, send them a crypto, whatever it is, but I, I just can't write at that moment. And I've thought about like I could show them that I have the money in the bank, but then might they think it's like one of those banking scams again? So I bet I would probably be rejected if I asked for this, except if it was someone who just knew they could probably trust me. As also would depend how much money it was. If I asked to borrow like 2K, I'm sure the answer would be yes. If it was like 50K, I, I might get looks like, uh, I don't think so. But okay, let's listen to Silker, him lying to his viewers about the bank freezing his account, but that he has the money to pay them. Yo, Typhoon, what's up, baby? Um, I hope you don't hate me on this. It's so cringe, and I'm cringe for asking my brother, please do not hate me. Please, keep it personal as well. Basically, um, my bank account got locked. This has happened for like three, four days. I've been asking around people. Sadly, um, today, well, tomorrow is the last day um, until my credit starts getting fucked up. It got locked out, and I was looking for people that actually work, and that could I, and I could ask if I could borrow from, and I'll pay back. Genuinely, give me two months, and I can pay back. If you can't, no worries, my brother. If you that, that's a tremendous red flag that it's locked for two months. I thought he was going to say, give me two days. <laughs> he says, give me two months. My banking account's locked. Somehow it's going to take two months to resolve. How does that even make sense? Don't By the way, that, that's, that sucking sound was him like throwing a kiss to the guy. I don't think sexually. I like, kind of like that you know, you're such a good friend. But please um, feel forced to say yes. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't get in the call to do this. It's so, I'm, I feel genuinely embarrassed. I've asked a few streamers, they couldn't help, and yeah, I don't mind it, it's okay. Um, so I just went out, asked a few subs I've noticed, and yeah, that's why I also asked for you. Ugh. He's asking a few subs he's noticed. So basically, he's going to big fans of his that he's, quote, noticed, and Say, hey, buddy, you know, just keep this quiet, but my bank account's locked. Could he send me some money? That, that's really slimy. He's going to his own viewers who are fans of his and asking if they can help him out and claiming he has the money, just the bank account is locked. So uh, apparently there were uh, a number of people who came forward after that who said that he asked them similar things and got money out of them and never paid them, didn't keep to his promises, gave them BS explanations for why he needed the money, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not in question. This happened. And Silker ripped off people for hundreds of thousands of dollars collectively. But what is the fallout of this from Twitch? Well, some Twitch streamers, not gambling ones, but the non-gambling Twitch streamers have thought, you know what? Twitch needs to just kick all gambling channels off the platform. And their thinking was that gambling streams encourage people to get addicted to gambling and ultimately lead to things like this. That if you're going to have a fairly well-known Twitch streamer screw both his own viewers and other well-known streamers out of hundreds of thousands of dollars collectively because of a gambling habit, that isn't it hypocritical to leave gambling streams on Twitch, which can create others like him. That, that was their point. I'm not saying I agree. That was their point. So some of the top streamers on Twitch 
such as a guy who goes by Pokimane, another one who goes by Mizkif, they were demanding that Twitch kick the gambling streams off. And they wanted all gambling streams off. They wanted any stream of anyone who was streaming anything with gambling. So it could be casino games, it can be poker, anything else. If you're gambling on Twitch, they wanted Twitch to kick you off. And they were looking to do a boycott of Twitch if Twitch did not agree. They were considering doing a one-week strike over Christmas when there'd be a lot of people viewing because the kids are home from school and have a lot more time to watch something like Twitch. So over the Christmas holiday period, the idea was to have the major streamers, the 10 to 20 biggest streamers, they said, would try to get together and just not stream during that entire week and state beforehand why they're not doing it during the most high traffic week of the year for Twitch. And then the ad revenue of Twitch would probably plummet. And then Twitch would be forced to do this. So they tried to get like the top 20 streamers into this. Uh, They didn't come close to getting that. They got three that said that they will do it, but the other ones either said no or hadn't yet responded. And one of them said, I think that you have to make the fruit hang low enough that people want to take it. It won't be that huge of a hit, but it'll be significant enough to Twitch that they take a look at it. So these were actually other streamers looking to do something about it. This wasn't Twitch saying, oh, wow, this is a bad look. Let's ban gambling channels. Twitch wanted to do nothing. It was the other streamers who just decided to take a very strong anti-gambling stance, which I don't agree with. I don't think that's the way you should go about it. Because it's not even like watching a Twitch gambling stream is what caused Silker to become a gambling addict. In fact, maybe you should boycott all gaming because it was initially gambling through gaming with those CSGO skins that got Silker to become an addicted gambler in the first place. So then why not boycott all games or all games made by the company that makes CSGO? Why not take it that far? I I don't agree with that either, but I'm saying to, to just blame gambling in general and say it just needs to be banned isn't right. What's it really accomplishing? So anyway, Pokimane said, if you really think gambling is bad, you should be able to take a week off when he was appealing to the other streamers to do this boycott. Another streamer said that Twitch should have done a platform-wide ban of gambling streams a while back and that uh, Twitch has been ignoring the problem intentionally. And this streamer actually said that they had left Twitch completely because they were disgusted by the gambling there. This is not uh, one of the two guys I was talking about. This was a guy named Devin Nash that said he had left the platform entirely. So what's happened since then? The the poker streamers got pretty worried about this because this was going to be the end. The ones that were mainly making their living from poker streaming or who were using the poker streaming as a springboard to other opportunities, uh, they no longer had a way to do this. Like, this is going to kill their income. This is going to have to make them completely rethink their career. <laughs> like, I guess they could just go back and play normally and try to support themselves that way. But this is really going to kill a major income stream for these uh, 
popular poker Twitch streamers, and also they'd have to find a way to remain relevant to where their fans would really be able to access their content and continue thinking about them. So that was the concern at one point. But things have changed a little bit. Things have changed actually uh, in favor for poker streamers, and they have much less to worry about now. So Twitch decided to do something, but they're not doing as much as was asked for by these Twitch streamers who are angry about it. So this is what Twitch tweeted on September 20th. An update on gambling on Twitch was the title of the tweet. Here's their statement. Gambling content on Twitch has been a big topic of discussion in the community and something we've been actively reviewing since our last policy update in the area. Today, we want to update you on our plans. While we prohibit sharing links or referral codes to sites that include slots, roulette, or dice games, we've seen some people circumvent those rules and expose our community to potential harm. Now, what they're saying here is that you can have these affiliate links where you get a bonus of some sort or a piece of the revenue or what have you, depending on which site it is, if someone clicks your link and signs up with that site and loses money. So what Twitch is saying is we don't allow this to be done, but people are finding slick ways to do it while technically not breaking the rules, and, and we don't like this. So going on, they write, so we'll be making a policy update on October 18th. I don't know why they're waiting almost a month, but that's what they're doing. To prohibit streaming of gambling sites that include slots, roulette, or dice games that aren't licensed either in the U.S. or other jurisdictions that provide sufficient consumer protection. What they mean by that is U.S. or a first world country is what they're trying to say. So you can't say, well, we're licensed in Curacao. Uh, we're licensed in Costa Rica. No, because if those sites screw you, you basically have no recourse. So they're saying it's got to be U.S. or a first world country with a real gaming commission. These sites will include stake.com, rollbit.com, dualbits.com, and rubet.com. I haven't even heard of anything except stake.com. However, we may identify others as we move forward. We will continue to allow websites that focus on sports betting, fantasy sports, and poker. We'll share specifics on the updates to our gambling policy soon, including the full policy language, to make sure everyone is clear on our new rules before they take effect on October 18th. I don't know why they're not banning Bovada and Bet Online because those are two big sites aimed at Americans with casinos, and those are not licensed by U.S. or other first world jurisdictions. I'm surprised why. I'm surprised they're mentioning Rollbit.com and these other ones I haven't heard of, but they may get to that by October 18th. This doesn't take effect until the 18th of October. But notice they mentioned that sports betting, fantasy sports, and poker are okay. Now, there's a reason that these are being excluded from the ban. Because they are seeing all of these as games of skill. So they don't mind if someone is sharing their sports betting tips. They don't mind if someone is streaming their poker play. They don't mind if someone is sharing their fantasy sports play or advice. Even if they show themselves playing on sites that provide these games. Because these are all skill games. Is there a luck element to all of these? Definitely. 
I always hated when it is said that poker is just a game of skill. It's not. It, you can't compare poker to something like chess. Poker has a major chance element to it. In the long term, skill will win out, provided that you're managing your bankroll properly and game selecting properly. But in the short term, anything can happen. In the short term, a very bad player can beat a very, very good player in poker. And they can't in games that are pure skill. And the same is true with sports betting, that a long-time losing sports better could have a hot streak. And the same is true with fantasy sports, that a very, very good fantasy sports player could go through a cold streak or a bad one could go through a temporary hot streak. So they are basically taking the stance that just casino games on unregulated or very, very weakly regulated sites, they don't want. But that if it's a skill game, they don't care what site is being shown, they're fine with it. And if it is a pure gambling game, again, like dice or roulette or slots or blackjack, whatever it is, then they will only allow it if you're playing on a casino that has real consumer protection and problem gambling regulations. And that's all they're comfortable with. And part of the reason they claim is so greedy Twitch streamers don't try to sneak their affiliate link in there to make money off of suckers. Because I'll tell you what the real concern is. You may say, well, all of these forms of gambling, you can lose money. Is it really any worse for someone to gamble on slots on their Twitch stream than play poker if a bad poker player can lose money very rapidly the same way a slots player can lose money very rapidly. In fact, some poker players would be better off playing slots. So why are they carving out these skill games since not everybody's going to be skilled? And those who are likely to get a gambling addiction are probably not that skilled. So why are they doing this? Well, because of the first paragraph, they're making very clear that there's a lot of predatory behavior where people mislead others of how well they're doing. What you have are these streamers who show themselves winning in some way. Either they've pre-recorded it and only showing the winning sessions, or they're playing with fake affiliate money. There's a lot of different ways it's done on these shady sites. And then they show themselves winning a bunch of money, and then they post a link up in some way saying, hey, if you'd like to win like me, click this link and join. And then you click and you join. And you lose, and they get up to 35% of your losses. So Twitch doesn't want this. Twitch does not want to be an unwitting accomplice to these scammers. So that's really what they're concerned about. They're not really concerned about creating another silker. They, they don't want another silker, but they're not so worried about that. They're worried about scammers using their platform to pretend they're winning big money on shady casinos and then sneaking in affiliate links to get other suckers onto this casino and getting a commission on their losses. So that is what uh, Twitch is attempting to stop. I think Twitch made a good decision. I didn't have a lot of faith in them, but I think they made a good decision because they are allowing useful gambling content, entertaining gambling content that isn't misleading, and they're making it a lot tougher on the affiliate scammers out there. 
I don't think this is going to necessarily prevent problem gambling, but there's only so much you can do with this. I'm not a big believer in don't show such and such to the public because they may see it and they may become an addict. They may emulate this behavior. I've never been a believer in that. I mean, yes, with with little kids, yes, but beyond that, I, I just don't think that is the right way to do things. And yeah, there is an argument that Twitch has a young demographic and you will have minors watching it. But there's so much minors can access on the internet that you're really not protecting very much. So I think this was a good middle ground decision. Rather than throwing off all gamblers, they are allowing all skill game content, no matter what site they're playing on, and casino gambling if it's on a regulated site. Like look at YouTube. They're not banning any of that. They're not even banning the gambling scammers that are obvious scammers. So at least Twitch is trying to get the scammers off. Slow Roll, who is a listener to this show and occasional forum poster, he wrote this. There is a demographic of Twitch viewers who spend a lot of time watching these streamers play online slots for hundreds of thousands of dollars on the offshore casinos. The, the legitimacy of these funds is certainly questionable, but the following they've developed is very real. He's referring to the fake affiliate money that these streamers are given by these online casinos to pretend like they're playing high stakes when they're really not. He said, I'm wondering, number one, will some of these people find online poker due to Twitch's regulations? Two, will some of the streamers get picked up by online poker sites? So he's basically asking, will some of these big streamers with huge followings say, okay, I can't do this online slot stuff anymore and, and post affiliate links? Um, or, or even I don't post affiliate links. Like, I just can't do this anymore. It's now against the rules. Uh, am I going to move on to poker now? I think the answer is actually no, because people wouldn't be good. It's going to be a lot harder to fake that they're good poker players, to fake that they're winning. So I think they may not do it. Now, ones that already have some poker experience and might be able to play okay, yeah, they could transition to that. I think as far as any of these streamers getting picked up by online poker sites... Probably not, unless they're really, really big. The online poker sites have really gotten a lot tighter as far as who they give these promotional positions to. They really want someone who is going to bring them value. I guess some of these streamers could bring them some value in the big following they have, which is his point. But they have to be big enough to where the site really wants to bring on someone who otherwise has no association with poker. Like, let's say Mr. Beast, who is a, a YouTuber, but let's say Mr. Beast decided that he was willing to be picked up by an online poker site and promote it. Now, there'd be a lot of online poker sites that would pick up Mr. Beast, and he plays poker sometimes. You, we've seen him on some poker streams. So I'm sure he would take a sponsorship from one of these poker sites, and I'm, I, I'm not sure he would take it. But I'm sure they would offer it to him because he has such a huge following. It'd be very valuable. He could bring in a lot of new customers. He'd probably demand a lot of money, which is probably the reason he's not currently promoting one of these sites. But is Mr. Beast known for his poker play? Is he known as a great poker player? No, of course not. He's a very rich YouTuber who just so happens to enjoy playing poker sometimes. So this is someone who would be valuable, but if they're going to sign a lesser version of Mr. Beast, like a much lesser version, it, it's got to be someone they think is a, at least a big enough name to associate with that it's not just someone who happens to stream Twitch and has somewhat of a following and might get some new players. Because it just doesn't look good for the site if they just sign these unknown streamers who have somewhat of a following. 
So I think it had to be like a huge streamer or a fairly big streamer that has some connection to poker. Also, you have to understand that uh, it isn't that easy for miners to gamble online because what don't miners have? What don't what does a miner usually not have access to? Money. Miners just can't get money that easily. Think about yourself as a miner. And you may say, well, that's a long time ago. I mean, let's say you were a miner 30, 40 years ago. But it's not that different. Like if Benjamin decided he wanted to gamble online today, he would have a very hard time doing it just because he doesn't have a way to get the money online. Nor does he have the money to put on. So... Uh, yeah, I, I guess he could steal my credit card and, and, and deposit, and then you know I, I would catch it quickly, and that would be the end of that. He wouldn't do this, by the way, but uh, I'm saying theoretically what he could do. So most kids, they really don't have a way to develop a long-term gambling habit if the parents don't cooperate, just because of the lack of access to funding options and just the money itself. Even if they're from a rich family, parents typically don't just give their minor kids access to just unlimited cash. So I've never been that worried about minors getting into gambling unless their parents already know about it and are okay with it. You have a few of these stories from old school online poker. People like Annette15 who would run up a free roll into a little bit of money and then take that to real money tables and run that up and all of a sudden they have a big role that they ran up just from their great poker skill. But those are outliers. You're not going to get many Annette 15s out there. And Annette 15, at least at the time, was a, an excellent player who won a lot of money. This wasn't an addicted gambler. I think she uh, she was an interesting case. We, we've talked about her before. I don't want to get on a big tangent here. But if you remember, Annette 15 was dominating and then she kind of just fell off. She didn't abruptly leave poker, but like she changed her look. She lost a ton of weight. She, she got very into fashion, and I remember I played with her even, and I, I'm looking and I'm going, you know what? It kind of looks like she's taking her eye off the ball. It kind of looks like her main focus isn't poker, and she's just not the same player she once was. It seems like she's gone from a girl who focused on nothing but poker to someone who was focusing on fashion and, and her weight and uh, and trends and everything. And like she, she stopped really thinking much about poker and just lost the edge she had. And then sure enough, her results went in the toilet and then she, she quit and she became like a makeup YouTube streamer and then she got married and so you don't see her anymore. That was kind of an interesting story because, boy, she was a really good online player at one point and she literally worked it up from zero. But that's an outlier. And this is someone who didn't lose. But how many kids are going to be able to put money online and just lose a fortune without their parents' knowledge. They really can't. So I'm not that worried about kids becoming addicted gamblers. The, the ones who get to worry about becoming addicted gamblers who are young are young adults. But then there's the argument of, well, these are adults. Why, why should you restrict them from seeing content because it could lead to bad habits? That becomes where the government or large companies are becoming too paternalistic. It, it, you got to let people see things that are unhealthy, and if they choose to engage in that in an unhealthy way, that's on them. And you can put out public service announcements and education material to prevent that, but you don't just stop dissemination of that material. You don't say, well, we're not going to ever have gambling streaming because people could watch it and want to gamble. That's, that's not the right way to do things. So anyway, I think Twitch did the right thing. 
I wasn't expecting it. I really thought it was going to come down that they're just banning all gambling and they're done with it because the gambling channels are not their main channels. Their main channels are gaming related, not gambling gaming, but uh, video gaming. So they really could shed the gambling channels without taking a big hit, but it looks like they don't want to do it. It looks like they say, okay, well, we're going to get rid of these, but not the rest. Basically, we're going to get rid of the ones that seem likely to lead to scamming. Okay. Now, why did they take this stance? Well, I can't say for sure because I wasn't there when they made the decision, and I don't have any context at Twitch, but I believe it was just the pure pursuit of money. This was a financial decision because the gambling channels do generate some money. It's not the majority of their money, but it's not nothing. It's not a pittance. So they do want this continued revenue. So they must have discussed this among themselves. We can't just do nothing because these major streamers are making a huge deal of this. And not only might they boycott us, but they are making us look irresponsible. So we've got to come up with some answer that does something but we don't want to do too much. So here's our middle ground where we're mainly aiming this at scammers or potential scammers and and leaving everyone else alone. And we hope that's okay. I haven't seen yet how the big streamers have reacted to this. I don't know if they've found it to be okay, but that is their decision. Moving on. We're finally seeing some movement to do something about the very obnoxious cash-out tickets. I've talked about this before on the show. In fact, I remember Brandon came on and we discussed how much money is being collected by both the state and casinos with what's known as the uh, Superman 3 scam. In the movie Superman 3, Richard Pryor's character near the beginning of the movie is shown amassing a lot of money from a huge company that he was working for by taking a few cents out of everybody's paycheck in each pay period. And they don't notice who's going to notice a few cents disappearing, but you add up all those different employees and all those different pay periods and a massive amount of money is being moved over into his account and nobody's the wiser. So that was near the beginning. And then a form of that was done again in the movie Office Space, actually mentioning Superman 3 as kind of a joke that the character who wants to do this is stealing the idea from a movie. But of course, this is a movie itself. So sometimes people refer to it as uh, the Office Space move as well. But either way, whether you want to say it's Superman 3 or Office Space, this is something you always have to watch out for where there's some sort of very small theft from a massive number of people. And that is actually where class action suits will often come in. Not the type that Eric Benzamokin's doing, because that has people who are hit for a lot of money. But I've seen class action lawsuits, like where a cell phone company will shove something on the bill, some kind of $1.50 surcharge they're not supposed to put on, that should be illegal to put on, and they put it on anyway. And every one of their customers in the state of California pays this $1.50, And then some attorney notices this is not legal and sues them. And there ends up being a massive settlement because they collected $1.50 so many times from so many people that they made a fortune. And each individual is not out very much money at all, of course, like $18 a year. But you see how that would add up tremendously. So 
this can be very lucrative if it's being done to enough people. And this is definitely happening at casinos around the country. And it's very obnoxious. In general, whenever something changes at a business that is customer hostile, and then they have a seemingly noble reason for it, you should never just accept the reason and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, uh, I don't love it, but we've all got to do our part. You know, these, these are tough times. You should never say that because they're usually hiding behind things. And one of the biggest catalysts to this sort of behavior was COVID. So a lot of businesses, not just casinos, not just hotels, but a lot of businesses seriously reduced services or offerings to customers without lowering the price or anything and blamed COVID. And then as COVID became less of a big deal or new things were learned about COVID, such as that it doesn't transmit on surfaces, so anything that's being changed in order to save people because of uh, transmission on surfaces should have been, or surfaces should have been re- reversed, uh, it never was. Why? Because it was never about COVID in the first place. It was like, wow, here's an opportunity to save money. Even customer service. How many places are hard to reach on the phone these days? Or you, you reach a foreign call center all the time. Or you, you reach someone who's working out of their house who has very little power because they can just use the automated tools they're given and they have no easy way to contact someone above them because they're not actually in an office. These are all things that changed during COVID that companies realized also was saving them money. So when COVID became less of a big deal, they just stayed the course. So one of these things that was partially about COVID, but also partially because they were going this direction anyway, was the cash-out tickets you get at casinos. So let's say you play a machine, video poker, slots, whatever, and you end up with change as part of the amount that is due to you. So you, you have uh, $310.25. And you hit the cash out button and it prints a ticket for you saying $310.25. Now, if you bring this to the cashier where there's often a big line, they will give you $310.25. However, if you don't want to stand on that line, then it's very tempting to go to the cash out machines where you just insert the ticket. And there's often little to no line for these machines because they are very quick and it will spit out $310. But what about the 25 cents? Well, the 25 cents will come out in a separate voucher of 25 cents that now you have to bring to the cashier to redeem. Well, you can imagine what most people do. Are you going to stand on a long line or even a short line to get back 25 cents? In fact, even if there's no line, are you going to cross all the way to the other side of the casino where the cashier is located to get 25 cents? Or even if the cashier is right there, you may not want to go up to the cashier to get 25 cents, either out of feeling it's not worth your time or out of embarrassment. Now, I will confess, and you may have seen this on Twitter, during the World Series, I played on a machine a little bit Bally's, and I did have that remaining 25 cents. In fact, that's exactly what I had. And I said, I'm not letting them get away with this. So, I walked my 25 cents voucher over to the cashier and the line wasn't very long but one or two people ahead of me I brought it there and they handed me my quarter then I walked to the entrance of Bally's and took a picture of myself with my thumb up and the quarter right next to my thumb 
and a big smile on my face. And I said, not this Jew. You're not going to get my quarter. I really did this. Look on Twitter. You can find it from June. Sadly, I can't say I always do this. I, I had like a 75 cent voucher and I just never got around to doing it at the end of the summer there at the World Series. Not the end of the actual summer, but the World Series summer. And I just left. And it's it's now dead. And that brings me to my next point. Why is my 75 cent cash out voucher from the World Series dead? Since I got it in July and it's only September. Why can I not just bring this to my next trip and either insert it into a machine or cash it out then? Because they only last 30 days, which is awful. 30 days. Now, what's the reason for that? Well, I'm sure you know the reason. Because they don't want you saving the voucher and using it next time. They figure if you give you 30 days, you're probably not going to be back in time, unless you're a local. If you're from out of the area, you're probably not coming back to Vegas in 30 days. So you're just about guaranteed to leave with one of those vouchers that you're never going to cash in and will go to zero value. Now, how are they getting away with this? Well, number one, technically, you can get your money. It may be inconvenient to get the very last portion of it, but they're not refusing your money. That would be illegal, but they're saying, hey, you can go to the cashier at any point and get the remainder. Number two, they are justifying it by the coin shortage. Now, the coin shortage was kind of related to COVID, and that is a real thing or was a real thing. And that was because coins stopped circulating because people were not uh, using cash very much. What ended up happening was uh, businesses were not receiving enough coins from people during COVID. And coins just ended up in people's homes and just weren't circulating enough. And the businesses would just run out. So there was a national coin shortage. And the casinos were saying, oh, it's the coin shortage. So we just don't have coins for these machines. Because keep in mind, these machines could dispense coins. You probably remember going to one of these machines and it would drop quarters to you. It would drop nickels and dimes and sometimes even pennies. So what happens? How are they taking a step back? How do they have a reversal of the technological ability to do this? If they could do this in the 2010s, why can't they do it in the 2020s? Why can't they just keep the same machines running? Well... They claimed it was the coin shortage. They claimed, well, we can, but we just don't have the coins to do it. But then that begs the obvious question. Okay, if you run out of coins and you absolutely can't get coins, then fine. Then there's nothing you can do. If the coins don't exist, you can't give the coins out. But why don't you have the option to get coins for as long as you have them? Why don't you guys refill it with coins as much as you can get access to? And then when you've run out... Then it prints the voucher. Why is it that nobody gets coins? How does it go from we're giving everyone their change no matter what to nobody gets their change because of a coin shortage? How about a middle ground of we'll give out as much change as we can, but then you have to go to the cage to get the rest? Why not that? It also doesn't make sense because if the expectation is that everybody will get their change which is supposed to be what it is when they're printing these vouchers for you, then it shouldn't be any different to be getting at the machine or the cage. So basically what they're saying is there's a coin shortage and we're expecting some of you to just throw away these vouchers and just eat the money. And 
only a small percentage to go to the cage, so we need to keep fewer coins on a hand, which is a pretty nasty assumption. But just to make the decision they're just not giving any coins is obviously predatory. But are they really doing this to steal Superman 3 style? Or there, could there be another motivation? Well, Vital Vegas, who has been covering this topic extensively on and off, has a different theory. And he may be right. He thinks that the real reason for this is to prevent the hassle and expense of the labor required to keep coins in these machines. Because apparently, so many coins get spit out of these machines from so many vouchers being cashed out, they run out very quickly, and they have to keep sending employees over and over and over to fill it with coins. And especially with a worker shortage, it's just hard for them to do. So when they found they could get away with not dispensing these coins in the machines, they jumped at it because they save a lot of labor money and it's just easier to run everything. Now, that's not an excuse, but that's his theory and it might very well be correct. The way the money gets distributed when it's not claimed is that 75% goes to the state and 25% goes to the casino for, quote, administrative purposes, meaning they just get to keep it. That's their share of it for administrating this whole thing. There has been a tremendous jump in the amount of unclaimed tickets of their total worth. In 2012, there was $4.2 million of unclaimed tickets. And then in 2022, Nevada had $16.5 million worth of unclaimed tickets. That's a fourfold increase in just 10 years, and that is because of the vouchers that people don't redeem. It's expected to even go up in the fiscal year ending in 2023 because part of the 2022 fiscal year includes a portion where people were not coming as often because of COVID. The fiscal year ends in the middle of the year. So it may be even higher in the 2023 fiscal year, which will end in July. But what can be done about this? The state's obviously okay with it because it's some revenue for them. Vital Vegas thinks the casinos are not really doing this for revenue because they just don't get that much each. It's just kind of a drop in the bucket to their overall budget. And then there's some bad will that's generated from this. So they, they may not really be gaining much other than the ease of not having to maintain these machines and keep all these coins on hand and keep the labor on hand to do it. So that's probably where they are really gaining. I think he's correct. There are some casinos in Vegas that have not resorted to doing this. All Boyd casinos are still paying out change as they always were. So that's nice they do that. And they said that they are going to do it because it's their customers' money and they don't want to steal it. They don't want to take it that They want the customer experience where the customer gets all their money, which is great. There are a few casinos in Vegas that allow you to donate the money to charity. The Cosmo, the M, and the Win allow you to do a donation of the change. But before you feel really good about that, keep in mind that they get the tax write-off for it. You're obviously not getting the tax write-off, so they will get the tax write-off for donating this to charity. So... I guess it's better than throwing the tickets away. 
I guess it goes to charity, but they get a write-off, so you're still, in a way, giving money to the casino. I always say, if you want to donate to charity, just do it. Donate on your own. Don't donate through corporations, because all you're doing is giving corporations a write-off. Also, Caesars was pulling shenanigans with these tickets initially that would just say, amount requested, amount dispensed, and that would be it. And then it would be up to the customers to figure out how they get the rest of it. So you'd have to actually look at the ticket and understand that it didn't dispense the full amount and understand you need to go to the cashier. Well, on social media, they were getting bashed pretty hard for this. So they ended up printing something at the bottom of each ticket saying, for partially paid tickets, please present receipt to the casino cashier, receipt void after 30 days. So this is actually worse than what MGM is doing. MGM actually spits out a real ticket for like 75 cents, 50 cents, whatever they owe you. Caesars gives you something that just looks like a receipt. You had to look at it carefully to see that they still owe you money. That's really slimy. And initially, they didn't even tell you what they now do at the bottom, that you need to take the ticket to the cashier to get the rest. Anyway, there's a lawsuit about this. There is a lawsuit against MGM, not Caesars for some reason, but MGM, that is alleging that MGM Resorts International has shortchanged gamblers by millions of dollars. This is a report from uh, BloombergLaw.com. And it says, MGM Resorts International literally keeps the change when casino players cash out, shorting them by millions of dollars, a new proposed class action in Mississippi federal court alleges. So this is a federal lawsuit. And then it explains the situation that I just uh, told you, which I won't bother reading. It says there's no signs posted saying the kiosks don't dispense change, which is true, and no notice on the ticket that can be cashed only by a cashier. Casino patients have casino patrons have quote been deprived little by little of millions of dollars by MGM Resorts no change policy. And the causes of action are breach of contract, conversion, unjust enrichment, and quantum merit. I'm not sure what that is. I'm not sure if that differs from Quantum Leap, the old 1990s sci-fi show that has just come back on TV. But this is Quantum Meriut. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly. They're looking for damages, attorney's fees, and costs. The potential class size is unknown. It's that whatever number of patrons that played at an MGM Resorts casino from September 19th, 2012 until the present, about a 10-year period. MGM has not commented on the lawsuit and this was filed on September 21st so a very recent lawsuit but what chance does it have of being successful they do raise some great points that not only is this inconvenient for patrons but that uh, they don't even know this when they go to the machine that they go to the machine first and then get the bad news that it's only change that they're owed. And furthermore, that the machines themselves don't say this. However, I do have an answer that MGM can give that's pretty strong. And that is, yeah, but they can still go to the cage at that point. It's not like we just take their money at that point. We give them a ticket for the remainder. So either way, you're making one trip to the cashier if you want the full amount. That would be their answer to this. 
the answer back, and I think would probably is the strongest claim here, but I don't know how it'll hold up legally, is that they are creating an undue burden on the customer to retrieve a small sum of money that most will deem not worth it, and that this is intentional. That they're forcing customers to waste a lot of time to collect very little money, which strongly encourages all customers to walk away and not collect. And I don't know how that can be translated into a claim against them that would hold up in court. But that really is the crux of this whole thing. The failure to warn people isn't really a great point, even though it's true. It's not that great of a point because nothing happens when you take the ticket to a machine that prevents you from then going to the cashier. It just wastes a little bit of your time at the machine. It's worth saying, it's worth noting because the customer is taking time to cash out and have to cash out a second time at the cashier, but usually the lines are much longer at the cashier. It's a much slower process and there are much fewer cashier outlets than there are of these machines. So the machines are usually closer to where you are on the gambling floor. Often it's even just a case of walking across or even finding the cashier. So if you've got a 30 cent change coming to you, you don't even know where the cashier is. You're going to go search for it for 30 cents? No. So that's what I would press hard if I were the attorneys who were attempting to bring this case. I think this should not be allowed. This simply should not be allowed. What is the actual solution? By the way, there isn't a coin shortage anymore to my knowledge, but let's say there still is. What is the solution? Well, there have to be ways that the patron can get the money that doesn't require this burden on them. I would think that one partial solution is to print tickets with a very, very long time frame to redeem. Two years, three years, something like that. And the casinos can say, oh, this is a big burden on us to keep track of. No, it's not, because you do it electronically. So it's not a big burden. You're, you're not having a human being write this all in the books or enter this into a computer. This is all being done electronically. So if you can, do, if you can hold it for 30 days, you can hold it for three years. There's really not much difference. These maintenance fees or expiration of tickets, all these types of things that are all electronic, it, it's also companies can steal your money. It's not because they can't hold it. It's not that uh, their computer's data expires or that the data is expensive to store. It's very cheap to store. I could probably store all this data. Not probably. I definitely could still store all of that data on my laptop with plenty of space to spare. So they, they're not going to have a data storage burden. They're not going to have a processing burden. They're not going to have a computing power uh, burden. None of this. They're not going to have a record-keeping burden. It's very easy for them to honor these tickets longer. And the 30-day window is arguably the most offensive part of this whole thing. In fact, even sports betting tickets, you tend to have a year to cash. And that's to encourage patrons to place sports bets on their way out of town. Because if you only had 30 days to redeem sports bets, then people would never bet on their way out of town because they would never be back in time to collect it if it was only a month. But if you give them a year, they'll say, okay, I'll be back in Vegas within a year. Okay, no problem. Or maybe you can find a friend to go redeem it for you. So you don't worry so much if your winning ticket expires a year from now. If it expires a month from now, there's no way you're going to place that bet. 
So if they can do it for sports betting tickets, they can definitely do it for these change tickets. So at the very, very least, if they absolutely can't dispense the coins, I think the solution here is, the closest we can get to it, is to make a sincere attempt to provide the coins like they used to. How come they could do it in the 2010s and not anymore? So make a sincere attempt to provide the coins, and if they run out, then give a voucher that is good for two years. I think that's good enough. Then people can keep them at home in a drawer, and when they go back to Vegas, they can bring it back. And there'll still be plenty that don't get cashed or thrown away. But at least people have the opportunity to save them. Here you don't. So it's really, really obnoxious. Now, why do you think they make it expire after 30 days other than just greed to keep your money? Because remember, they're not keeping a fortune here because if only $16.5 million was kept throughout all casinos in Nevada in 2022's fiscal year, and if the casinos only get a quarter of it, that's only $4.1-something million that the casinos are all sharing combined. So none of them are making bank on this. So then why are they doing this? Well, the 30-day thing, I have to think, is just a way, again, to prevent people from redeeming them at the cage and clogging up the cage. So this way people don't come into town and walk up and do that first. They just really want most of these thrown away. And it's probably also so they can easily get a little bit of money. Probably a little bit financial, a little bit, uh, again, labor-wise, they just would prefer not to deal with these, that basically when you leave town, it's done. There may be some other legal reasons involving why they can't hold it for longer than they do, but the 30 days is BS. I could see maybe past the year there could be some issues with unclaimed property and stuff like that. I don't know Nevada laws as far as that, but 30 days I can't understand other than just uh, greed and laziness. I remember when I saw the 30 days, I was shocked. I knew about what they were doing, the tickets, but when I saw 30 days it said on there, and this is common throughout all the casinos, it's not just MGM, it's not just Caesars, I'm like, wow, they really, really are trying to not ever let me use these credits. They're really, really trying to get me to throw this away. And it worked. I I I threw one of them away, the one I I left with. I was kind of in a rush to leave that day. And on principle, I actually wanted to redeem it. I kept it around in my wallet and then uh, I just didn't have time. And I'm like, ah, oh, I could go do this now, but no, nah, I got to get on the road. I got to leave. I'm not, I'm not hassling with this. So I just threw it away. If it lasted more than 30 days, yeah, I'd, I'd bring it back next time I go. Maybe when I go to meet with the Nevada Gaming Commission about the guaranteed prize pool situation. So we'll see if this class action goes anywhere Vital Vegas is not an attorney by any means. He's just a promoter and social media guy, so take it for what it's worth. But he believes that this lawsuit is going to fail. He claims that they just don't really have any legal claims that are going to be successful in a class action lawsuit. He said the uh, machines are not deceptive. You just have to do more work to get your coins and that people are voluntarily leaving them behind, and that's a big difference than deception. It's kind of similar to the point I made. And that the printout at the bottom of the tickets that are advising you to take it to the cage might be enough to legally get away with it. 
I'll let you know if there's any further movement with this. I hope it works. I hate this practice. The first time this happened, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I still hate it. That's why I actually went up and got the change. I mean, I'll confess I I did the first one so I could do a funny Twitter picture about it. But I really was going to do the second one and not do a Twitter picture about it. It just irritates me. It's like, I think to myself, that's what they want me to do. When when I'm going to throw the ticket away, I go, no, but that's what they want me to do. I can't. They're expecting I'm going to say, ah, this isn't worth it. They can keep my 75 cents. And I say to myself, no. No. You're not going to get it from me. It's not worth my time, but you're not going to get it from me. I'm a guy who spent five months in the year 2000 fighting for 55 bucks from a tow company. You think I'm not going to take a few minutes to walk over to the cashier? For about 2% that amount? Of course I will. Okay, would you like a little bonus topic since we're talking about being a cheap Jew and getting what's mine? We're going to throw in a bonus topic because this show has not had enough comedy or entertainment. And while what I'm going to talk about is a real story, I think that it is something that I should tell just to lighten the mood. And we're kind of getting near the end of our topics. We've got uh, three topics left, but none are all that long. It's only one forty-nine in the morning, you know, only. For most people, this is way past their bedtime, but I will tell you a bonus story, something I did not plan to tell you. It just came to mind right now, so forgive me if I am a bit uh, unprepared. But fortunately, it's a story from my own life, so it's pretty easy to tell, especially because it is a recent story on what is a an impromptu version of... Uh, you're looking for me to comment here. You just throw this on, and and you expect me to introduce this. You don't even give me any warning. You make me look like an imbecile. Uh, bollocks. All right. Uh, Colonel Nigel Fabersham here. This is a Druffy Time Theater. I'm only doing this because Dandruff allowed me to do the intro to the last show about the Queen. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you the reason that show is so highly rated is because of my tribute to the Queen... And not because of his nonsense about Ebony Kenny. I mean, who really cares about that? Well, on with it. Thank you, Colonel Fabersham. This is an unscheduled Druffy Time Theater. Just came to mind. What the hell? We have no Mojave Desert in Las Vegas history this week. We have no Druffy Time Theater on the schedule. So we're going to do a Druffy Time Theater. It's been a little while. I was at the Cosmopolitan earlier this year, and I went to a restaurant there that I like, that I've been to before, and I was with uh, two other guys, and it wasn't cheap. We, we had a fairly expensive meal, and then when it came time to pay the bill, the server said, do any of you have an identity card, which is their rewards program, even though it's now an MGM property, it's still using its own rewards program and may continue? I said, yes, I do. And the other two people, one of them lived pretty far out of the area and doesn't come to Vegas or other gambling venues very often. So he he had no interest in the points. It wasn't going to do him any good. The other guy was a non-gambler. So the only person who really had a use for the points was me. I said, okay, yes, me. I, I have my identity card. I'd like to put it on there. 
So then we gave him the uh, the credit card to charge it, and it was it was the guy who doesn't gamble put it on his card, and I just gave him cash for my part. So we we didn't want to hassle with a few cards. We just had one guy use a card, and the other us gave that that guy cash for what we owed him. And the guy took it, and he said, "All right, well." There it is. Um, just bring this down to the identity desk, and they will give you the points. So I did. I brought down the receipt to the identity desk right away. I went right down there to do it. And the Cosmo identity desk told me that I cannot have these points because the credit card used was not in my name. This was about $30 worth of points. If it was like two bucks, I would have let it go. As cheap as I am, I, I was going to let it go if it was a few bucks. But it's like 30 bucks worth of points. So I didn't want to lose that. I can use the points in the Cosmo for whatever. I, I can use it to uh, to eat or, or whatever else I want to get there. So I wasn't going to give that up. But we had earned these points. And you can say, well, I only earned a third of it. Well, yeah, but the other two guys had no use for them. They weren't going to be back to Vegas anytime soon. They didn't want them. They wanted me to have the points. So they were basically assigning those points to me. And there was no question that I was part of the meal. Also, the server never told me that to redeem it, we have to make sure that it's uh, on the card that's being paid. He said nothing about this. He, he just said, uh, okay, you know, here's the receipt. Just take it down there to get the points. So I was annoyed. Like, I know this for the future. I'm never going to make that mistake again. I'm either going to pay cash or I'm going to use my credit card and have them give me the cash if it's me getting the points. By the way, if these other guys wanted their own points, I would have, you know, we could have split the check or we, we could have uh, worked out something, but they didn't. They absolutely didn't want the points. So I, I really want you guys to understand I wasn't feeling entitled to the points to take them all. The other two guys did not want them, had no use for them, and wanted to give them to me. Anyway. It wasn't even a matter of getting a third of the points. The identity desk said, no, I cannot have any points that the number of points I could redeem from this receipt were 0.0. So I said, no, this isn't fair to me. I said, what is the concern here? Let's just figure out the concern. Is the concern that maybe I found this receipt on the floor and now I'm bringing it here to get $30 worth of points. And they said, well, we're not accusing you of anything, but yes, that is our general concern why we don't just let people bring receipts in other people's names. I said, okay, I'm glad you said that because that's what I thought was the concern. But guess what? We can solve this because I'm not bringing you this receipt from last week. I was just there. I was right up there. I just walked down from there. And in fact, um, if you call up right now, you can ask the server... If we had this conversation with him about how to redeem them, this literally just happened like five, ten minutes ago. It should be very easy to establish. And uh, I was also at a pretty visible table there that the host desk could see easily. They can easily verify that I was the one at the table. So just call the restaurant. They will verify that I was at the table and that these points are points that uh, I can use. And they said, no. They will not do that. They will not call the restaurant. This is the policy. I can't have the points. And I said, oh, my God, this is so frustrating because I earned these points. I'm not looking for any freebies here. I'm not saying give me points for my trouble. I'm saying give me the points that I earned by dining at this restaurant. And I paid real money for it. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't give me anything. 
And they couldn't explain it. I said, if the concern is that I am bringing you a receipt that I'm not entitled to use, that this wasn't actually me eating there, ask the restaurant. Call them right now. Ask the restaurant. Now, was I holding up a big line behind me while I'm demanding to make phone calls? No. There was nobody in line, nobody else at that desk except me. So they couldn't even say that uh, this is going to waste too much time and they can't make phone calls right now. There was absolutely nobody else to help. And there were like three reps there twiddling their thumbs. So I said, can I have a supervisor, please? Okay. And she goes back and disappears for the longest freaking time. Waiting, 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 waiting. No supervisor comes. She doesn't come back. I ask somebody else to go in and uh, see what's going on after a while. That person does go in there and find out and comes back and says, oh, well, they're talking to the restaurant. I said, okay, good. Okay, so at least the time is being used for something that might solve this. At least maybe they're not bringing out the supervisor like I asked, but if they come out and say, okay, no supervisor needed, we're giving you the points, I'd say, okay, cool. So I wait, I wait, I wait. It seems like forever. I don't know how long this phone call was. Like, how much is there to talk about? Say, was this guy of my description sitting at such and such table? They actually had the table number on there. Do you remember him? And did he have a conversation with the waiter about the identity points who told him to just bring down the receipt and get him? Like, that should be like a one-minute conversation. For some reason, this is dragging forever. But whatever. I feel pot committed at this point. I, I don't want to walk away, even though this is wasting a lot of my time. I didn't think it would take this long. I really just thought they are going to give me the points when I came down there. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally... The woman comes out and says, yeah, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do for you. (laughs) I said, oh, my God. What was all this time for? What was I waiting for then? Well, we, we called the restaurant. Okay. Well, didn't they indicate I was there? Well, yes. Okay. Well, then why can't I have the points? Because it's against our policy. I said, okay, then why did you make the call? Why did you call the restaurant for all this time? What were you doing in there all that time if you had the predetermined answer that it's just against your policy? Well, we wanted to talk to them. We wanted to find out exactly what they told you. I said, but yeah, but did they tell you that I was never instructed that it has to be my card? That they just said, you know, just bring this down and they'll give you the points? Well, no, we didn't ask that. We just asked if you were there and if you were at that table. I don't know what took so long there. That's all they asked. And if there's anything they can do, and they said no, and uh, so, sorry, we're not giving you the points. So I'm getting so frustrated here. And I said, look, guys, I was once a top-tier card here a number of years ago. And this doesn't make me want to come back and and, and put action here again. If you're going to screw me out of $30 worth of points, I legitimately earned. Again, I'm not looking for anything extra. I'm not looking for customer service credits. I'm looking for the points that we earned by spending real U.S. dollars in this restaurant. This wasn't a comp meal. It was a meal that we paid full price for, the full menu price. And by the way, one of the two guys was with me for this, so they can't even say that I'm... uh, appropriating everybody's points. Uh, I had one of them right there with me who was happy to tell them that uh, the points should go to me. They didn't care. Against our policy, we don't do it. Sorry. I said, look, I understand this for the future. I will never make this mistake again. And if you ever see me asking for this again, feel free to deny me. 
I understand this. I will absolutely never let this occur. If I want the points to go to me, I'll make sure to either pay cash uh, or, or get a split, split check or, or get a credit card uh, in my name to pay for it. But I, I'm not, I, I don't want to give it up this one time. There's no reason I should have known this. And if you have verified that I was the guy up there, why not just give me the points? Like, what are you accomplishing here by holding these points away from me? If you believe I was there and you believe everybody had no problem give, giving me these points who was at the table with me, then what is the issue? And they said, because it's against our policy. <laughs> but they told me, the restaurant, maybe they can help you. Go back up there and talk to them. I said, this isn't the restaurant's issue. Well, the, guy, the waiter should have told you that you needed to use your own card. So this was their fault, and maybe they can make it right for you. I say, but this is your program. This is up to you to fix here. You can tell the restaurant to advise people of this in the future, but this is, this is up to you to fix. This isn't the restaurant's problem. I agree the waiter should have told me this, but this is not their problem. This is really your problem here. And now you, you verified I was really there. You verified that uh, these guys at the table are okay with giving it to me. I was even willing to have the third guy come down. They, weren't, they, they said they don't need that. Just their policy. It was in that guy's name. Can't do it, even on a one-time basis. I never got that supervisor. I finally just walked away in frustration. So did I give up? No. You don't be better than that. I, I did not give up. I, I was so irritated by this that I called the restaurant like a day or two later. I think it was the next day. I called the restaurant and I said, look, guys, I'm not like a super regular customer here, but I, I do come here probably about twice a year and I spend a lot of money. And I just got cheated here by the identity desk. I earned these points. These points have real value of $30, which isn't huge money, but it's not nothing. And because the server didn't warn me that it has to be in my name, the credit card, to get the points, he mentions the points but doesn't say that. And then identity just will not help me. They won't use common sense. Is there anything you can do? I'm not blaming this so much on you guys, but you probably have more influence than me. Can somebody here please call the identity desk and put in a good word for them to make an exception? And I was speaking to the assistant manager, the only manager on duty when I called. So the assistant manager said, yeah, okay. And they called up. They told me they'll call me back. Well, they did call me back. They called me back in about 10 or 15 minutes. And I said, okay, well, what did they say? They said, okay, good news. The identity desk has agreed to give you a third of the points. <laughs> I said, what? A third of the, well, who gets the other two thirds? Well, nobody. The, the other two thirds get confiscated, but you were there uh, with two other people. So they thought it's fair to give you a third of the points. I said, yeah, but the other two people are gone now. They've left Vegas. They can't even get the points if they want them. They didn't even offer a third, a third, a third. They said they're giving me zero. Well, yeah, we understand that's not ideal, sir, but that's all they offer. That's all they'll do. And I spent 15 minutes on the phone with them, and that's all they would do. I tried to convince them otherwise, and they won't budge. <laughs> okay, let's stop for a second. Let's stop for a second here. Think of all the man hours that were being used to deny me my points that I rightfully earned. The person at the identity desk whoever they were talking to behind the identity desk when they went in the back. 
the people at the restaurant they initially called to ask if I was there. The assistant manager of the restaurant who called and had a 15-minute conversation about my points, only to be told that the most they'll give is one-third. So I'll get about uh, 10 bucks. All of this to deny me that other $20 worth of points. So I said, I don't want to accept this. It, it just, uh, I said, the only way I'll accept this, if, if the restaurant wants to just give me the money on the other end and say, okay, our server should have told you this. Next time you come in, we'll give you a $20 credit. Fine. But uh, I, I don't want to eat this. In some way, I want to be made whole. It's just the principle. And so the assistant manager said, okay, I understand. Uh, I will leave a message for the manager to call you. So now the manager's got to get involved. Now the, now the top manager of the restaurant's got to get involved. Over this stupid, silly matter. Why doesn't someone take freaking ownership and just say, okay, here's the points. If this ever happens again, you get nothing. Now get out of here. Why couldn't someone do this at some point? Of course, I get no call back. So I call the restaurant again. and uh, I get the actual manager this time who was there. And he said, oh, yes, uh, I'm aware of this. And uh, actually, my assistant manager, after talking to you, called up a second time and spent another 15 minutes on the phone and was still told no. (laughs) And I said, come on, now you're the manager of a fairly prominent restaurant here at the Cosmo. You're telling me that you guys here, that you don't have the power to tell them on a one-time basis to do this? It's hard for me to believe. I know you're different departments, but this is not a lot of money we're talking about. And this was a real expenditure. This was a real check. And these points were never redeemed in any way. So it's not even like they're giving anything extra. He said, no, I totally understand. And I said, do you see how many hours are being wasted on this? Like uh, how much time of your assistant manager has already spent half an hour on this? And, and then there was the call that night. And then there's the people at the identity desk. Like, why doesn't someone stop and say, wait a minute, we're, we're expending a lot of effort and man hours on preventing something that we should have given in the first place. He said, I totally agree with you. For whatever reason, they're just being really, really stubborn with this. So let me call them one more time and see if I can talk them into it. I haven't spoken to them personally. It was only my assistant manager. Let me see if I can talk to them. So he called them and then called me back uh, maybe an hour later. And he told me that they finally agreed that on a one-time basis, they have agreed to give me my $30 and that the crisis is over, I finally have my $30 in points. Which I haven't really verified her on my account. He just told me I'm getting them. I never bothered to check. So it's possible I got screwed. But is that awful? Is that like an ordeal? Like, yeah, at any point I could have walked away from this. I realize that. But it just became a situation where it felt like I was just a step away from getting it. And it was just pissing me off because I earned these. And if my two friends wanted to assign their points to me, let me collect them all, they they should have been able to. And they could do it. If they had the policy that each human being is entitled to the fraction of uh, the points they are for what percentage of the party they are. So if there's three people, you're entitled to a third of the points. And if the other two don't want them, the tough luck, 
Fine, I accept that policy. But had I used my card instead of that other dude using his card, I'd have gotten all the points in two seconds and there would have been no issue. It was the fact that it was the other guy using his card that just completely ruined the whole thing. And they could not fix it. And if I were demanding no every time, no matter who pays, I want to come down here and do this, then I'd be very unreasonable. But I said, just this one time now, I understand, but just this one time, give me the freaking $30 and I'll walk away. Now, I'm going to give Caesars credit for something here. Caesars rewards supervisors have the power to plop $30 in RCs in your account in situations like these. Any type of situation which is hard to solve, where a relatively small amount of RCs can fix it. When I say small amount, I don't mean pennies, but I I mean something under $100. The supervisor, if they think it's justified we'll just drop it there and say, okay, it's fixed, it's done, goodbye. They can do it. And they have done it. I've had problems solved that way before, that the supervisor just puts RCs in my account when there's some kind of error that's difficult to fix, but they acknowledge is an error. But at Cosmo, they just wouldn't do it. They couldn't even logically explain why this made any sense. If they knew that I was part of that party dining and if they knew the other two people were cool with me having the points and if me using my credit card would have entitled me to the points then where's the concern and if i promise this will never happen again where's the concern it, it made no sense very very customer hostile so this really was a case of a business that did not have people empowered to just make a decision to end a small problem and that's very important to have at businesses You need to empower who's ever in charge to say, yes, this makes logical sense. Let's not overthink it. Let's just do it. That doesn't mean you just authorize people to steal from you or get things they don't deserve. But if the story makes sense, instead of worrying about the bureaucracy and and, and what the technical rules say, if it makes sense and it's a small amount of money, or in this case, a small amount of points, not even money, then just give it and be done. And they lacked that here. They lacked that at identity. And at the restaurant, the assistant manager spent half an hour on it to just be told no over and over. I I feel bad for that person to have to make that call. I didn't realize they made a whole long second call like this. Can you imagine that person spent a half hour of their time arguing with identity by giving me uh, my full points? It's insane. So I'm glad I ultimately got it, but wow, what a freaking mess. It'd be funny if I didn't get it, though. It'd be funny if I check my account, it's not even there. Uh, Now, after the show's over, I'm going to check this. Now I'm making myself paranoid that they never gave me the points and I'm I'm just like, I walked away happy. And at this point, there's nothing I can do. I, I can't go back at this point. This is something from back in the spring. But oh my gosh. All right, let's move on. Hope you enjoyed that little uh, ordeal with the Cosmo Identity Desk. Back to our regular schedule. Poker Paint is back in the news because they are getting cease and desist notices over their continued actions of taking other people's photographs and then generating electronic artwork based upon those photographs, which you can't do. That's a violation of civil intellectual property law. So he he won't go to jail for this, but he could be sued and successfully sued because he's very clearly violating intellectual property law. We're almost at the year anniversary... Really, actually, we are at the year anniversary, the exact year anniversary 
of when Poker Paint was called out. It was actually on September 24th, 2021. We are past midnight. It is September 24th, 2022. Hmm, what a year it's been. So exactly a year ago, Eric Harkins, a photographer for Image Masters, tweeted to Poker Paint, it's been brought to our attention you are reskinning copyrighted images, including ours, without prior consent or license. Please cease and desist all sales of images or reach out to the original photographers for license permission. So it's very simple. That professional poker photographers, ones who do this for a living, they take pictures of poker players, which then get sold to the players, uh, printed somewhere, whatever. Uh, These are the property of either the photographer themselves or the company that has hired the photographer. And they can, in some cases, be used under licensing agreements, but you can't just take possession of these. Now, if you want to right-click on one of these and save it to your computer because there's a cool picture of yourself or maybe a cool picture of a a person you're a fan of playing poker, nothing's going to happen because you're just saving it for personal use and it's uh, publicly published. But if you are to then try to commercially profit from these images, then it can be a big problem. It could even be a big problem if you distributed these images on your own. And I don't just mean linking to it on your website. I mean, like, if you actually uh, made a a website uh, of a collection of of poker images that other people took, even if you weren't profiting, they they could complain. But it's especially a problem if you are attempting to resell these images in some way or use them for any other commercial purpose. So definitely Poker Paint is doing that. Poker Paint is taking existing photographs of poker players that are taken by professional photographers and then is changing the way they look and and making them look more like artwork and and colorizing them differently. They're kind of interesting pictures. They're kind of cool. I, I kind of like the style of these, but the bottom line is he's using somebody else's work as the basis of this. And the work I'm referring to is the picture itself. And there's a lot more to taking these pictures than you might think. You don't just walk up and say, okay, uh, here's Phil Helmuth, let's take a picture of him. Okay, here's Phil Ivey, let's take a picture of him. Here's Daniel Negroni, let's take a picture of him. Here's uh, Fedora Holtz, let's take a picture of him. It's not that simple. You're looking for a good moment that will look good when published. So maybe you're taking a picture of them betting. Maybe you're taking a picture of them reacting to a hand that they win or lose. Maybe you're taking a picture of them sitting at a table in a way that you think would look cool for publication, even if the people are not really trying to pose. There's a lot of different ways you can take pictures of people at the poker table that will be more interesting and come out a lot better than just an amateur snapping photos of of a poker player they see from the rail. So there is some skill that goes into this, and also... These people take a lot of pictures and select the best ones and and publish those. And the bottom line is whether you like it or don't like it and whether you think the work is good or bad or whether you think it's it's difficult or easy, this is their work. And you can't just take it and then modify it and then resell it as if it's yours. So that's what he was doing at first. He was both uh, selling this as artwork and also making NFTs out of them. Remember, this is back in 2021 when NFTs were very big. What a difference a year makes there. But he didn't get any permission. And once Eric Harkins brought this up, then a bunch of other poker photographers jumped on him and all had the same belief that they didn't want this done. Joe Girone jumped on him and uh, 
Danny Maxwell jumped on him, and Haley Hotsteltler actually showed a conversation she had with him where he did ask her permission, and she said no, and he used her pictures anyway. So that wasn't good. That was worse than all of them. The one who was pressing this the hardest over time was Danny Maxwell. But you know what? It's their right to do this. This is their work, and it was being used without their permission. So at first, Poker Paint kind of weakly argued that he should be able to do this, and they're saying, no, you shouldn't, and nobody was taking Poker Paint's side. And then Poker Paint really took a beating on social media when Daniel Negreanu and other high-profile figures in poker were taking the side of these photographers, which is very predictable because the behind-the-scenes poker workers are usually not making bank, and they're kind of seen as like the working-class people of poker. And when there's someone who is screwing with them in some way, they're going to be very unpopular in the community. And the players who are doing very well, like Negranu, are going to have a lot of sympathy for them and is going to speak out on their behalf, which which is good. It's good that Negranu did that. It's good that the other ones did that. And it also makes sense that the photographers themselves, that they were calling this out and some of them were making a pretty big deal of it. Well, Poker Paint then pivoted, and partially because I was giving him advice. I, I, I was talking to Poker Paint privately because he's a 25-year-old. I think he's 26 now. It's been a year, but he was 25 at the time. His name is Brent Butts, B-U-T-Z. And all jokes aside about his name, I talked to him, and it seemed like he was kind of a naive young guy, and he just wanted to do this artwork, and he wasn't understanding the intellectual property issues surrounding it. So, okay. And I, I tried to explain to him that, yes, it's wrong to do this, even if he didn't realize it, that now he does realize it. Now he needs to take it all down and, and create his original work or get permission from these photographers and, and offer to share some of the profits to them to their satisfaction. So he said to me, and this is all privately, he said, yeah, that's a good idea. I understand your point, and we had a good conversation. I I just did this to be helpful. I wasn't trying to take sides, and I didn't really publicly comment on this much, except on uh, Poker Fraud Alert. But on Twitter, I didn't really throw myself into it much. But I I was trying to convince Poker Paint to just talk to these photographers and apologize and and not be hostile towards them and say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it, I'm young, and and let's make a deal. That's, That's what I told him to do, and I said that'll be mutually beneficial for everybody involved there. So he said he was going to do that, and I I was kind of optimistic that this was going to work out. Well, it didn't, because they tried to talk to him a little bit, but they just decided that, number one, they couldn't trust him, and number two, they just didn't like him, and number three, the the terms he was offering wasn't quite good enough. It's all combined. They're like, no, we don't want to work with this guy. We, We just want nothing to do with him, which is their right. Well, the problem was that Poker Paint took the... What he took from this was that they're being unreasonable because they should work with him because he is offering to give them a piece of it because he's offering to give them more of a piece of it if they don't like what he's offering. That Why won't they negotiate back? Why won't they give him a chance? It's not fair. He should be able to. And I kept telling him there's no should involved with this. Either they want to work with you and license out their intellectual property to you or they don't. And if the reason they don't is because they don't like you, then oh well, that's the way it works. You're not entitled to this. You're not entitled to somebody else's work that you will modify and then resell, even if you are willing to give them a healthy percentage of it. If they just don't want to work with you because they don't like you, then that's the way it goes. 
you can't compel them to, and even morally, it doesn't make sense that you should be able to pressure them into doing this. They can pick any reason they want for not wanting to work with you and just not work with you. So he's always kind of had a hard time getting that through his head. And I don't know why. I, I think it's kind of denial because at first there was a good reaction to his pieces. People were like, oh, cool, this is really nice. And and uh, David Lappin actually was uh, bringing attention to it, which is what kind of caused the whole shitstorm because that's what made everyone aware it was happening. But people were liking this until they understood that the source material was copyrighted photography. And the poker world kind of turned on him, and I think he, he kind of felt like everything went down the drain when he had these great dreams for what poker paint would be, and it's kind of hard to accept. Okay, but that's the situation. Nothing was unfair here, except to these photographers. So nothing unfair to you occurred, and if they don't want to work with you, that's the way it goes. So now it's been a year, and every so often this pops back up. He gets clobbered on social media occasionally, <laughs> usually by Danny Maxwell or, or somebody else whenever Poker Paint uh, releases something. On uh, May 19th, Danny Maxwell posted, retweets appreciated on this. Once again, Poker Paint is back to his old ways using photos he has no permission to use. I'm blocked from you viewing his page, so I won't be able to respond to him directly. And then he shows a picture of uh, Boosted J, a.k.a. Justin Smith, and uh, showing a, a picture of Boosted J at the table that was copyrighted and that he just used and uh, posted the same way. So Danny said with the 2022 World Series around the corner and the poker epicenter for the next couple of months, I'd ask people to avoid having any dealings with him or buying any of his, quote, art. So then people were bashing him. Then Haley Hotchdelter got involved again, and she said, Hey, Brett, I've left you alone for the most part. I just want to give you a suggestion that Googling images isn't the best route to go here. When you Google something, it specifically says images may be subject to copyright, which she's right. And Poker Paint, uh, totally not getting it, responded to Haley. Again, this is back in May. Why can't we just work together? (laughs) Because she doesn't want to. Because they don't want to. That's it. End of story. I forgot about this since then. Last four months, I haven't kept track of it. It's not the top of my mind, so to speak. Well, the beat goes on and on. Poker Paint now posts on a separate account. There's his personal account, which is at Brett Blaster, B-R-E-T-T Blaster, Brett Blaster, and also at Poker Paint. But it's the same guy. It's a, it's a one-man operation. And again, I don't even dislike the kid. And I've had civil conversations with him, and more than civil. We've had good conversations which I felt were productive, where I thought I'm like directing him to a, a proper path here to where everybody can be happy, and also directing him to understand that maybe this is just something he can't resolve and he'll just never use their images. And if they just don't want to, don't ever use their images. I like, if the photographers could read what I had to say, I'm sure they would approve because I'm pretty much backing their points here. And I've told him also, because he kind of feels like they're all ganging up on him and they're all friends and the people backing them are their friends. And I said, I'm not friends with any of them. None of them follow me. I don't know any of them. I know of them, but I've never had a conversation with any of them. So these are not my buddies I'm trying to defend. I'm totally neutral and I don't dislike you, but you're in the wrong here. You got to fix this. But it just seems like he can't learn. Anyway, uh... Some bigger organizations have had enough. 
It's one thing to take Haley Hotstetler's pictures or Danny Maxwell's pictures and know that those people may not want to put forth the money to sue you. I imagine they don't have very deep pockets, any of these individual photographers. But you know who does have deep pockets? Poker News, Poker Stars, Poker Go. Their pockets are pretty damn deep. You don't want to mess with them, especially. And apparently that's what he did. So this has spawned in part from an NFT that he gifted to Fedora Holtz, of all people, that he took an image that was on Poker News, that was taken by a Poker News photographer named Jamie Thompson. And I guess uh, this isn't even Jamie's work. I guess this is Poker News work, since they were hiring Jamie to do it. I don't know if Jamie's male or female, but whatever. This person took it on behalf of Poker News, who owns the photo, of Fedora winning a bracelet, and then Poker Paint did the exact same thing with modifying the image into his style and then calling it an NFT of Fedora Holtz. So what he did was he sent this to Fedora Holtz and said, hey, Fedora, here's what I did for you. Now, he did not sell it to Fedora. This was like a gift to Fedora Holtz, maybe to hopefully get him in his corner, what did Fedor Holtz do? Did he appreciate the gift? Uh, no. Fedor Holtz hid the NFT so people can't see it, and then he blocked Poker Paint on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a very well-received gift. Now, when that happens, when you've just done this for Fedor Holtz, admittedly he didn't ask for it, but we've just done this for Fedor Holtz, and you give him this gift. You're like, hey, hey Fedor, I, I just made this cool picture of you from your bracelet photo. Just wanted to give it to you. You don't owe me anything. And Fedor gives him no response, hides it from view, and blocks you. That's when you take it down. That's when you say, okay, he clearly doesn't want to be part of this. He doesn't approve of this. And I'm going to do away with this. We're going to forget this whole thing happened. So Poker Paint didn't complain about it at the time, but Poker News became aware of it. Maybe Fedor told them. I don't know. But on September 19th, Brett Blaster, remember that's the same guy, tweeted, I'll have to delete the NFT I gifted to you, Fedora Holtz, even though you hit it and blocked my Poker Paint account. And he puts a laughing emoji. I don't really care that you did that. Just giving you a heads up. <laughs> Why do you have to give him a heads up? He didn't want it. He did the equivalent of throwing it in the garbage. So do you have to really say, hey, Fedora, I know you threw this away, but... Uh, I fished it out of the garbage and now I have to throw it away? Like, do you really have to let him know that? Or, like, like why even do this? I, I think he, maybe he was looking for sympathy or something. And he posted the cease and desist notice that he got from Poker News. So I'll read it to you. It says, Dear Mr. Butts, We are Intellectual Property Council for iBus Media Limited, doing business as Poker News, Poker News is the world's leading poker website, providing poker industry news, blah, 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 blah. Poker News is dedicated to the effective management of its intellectual property assets, and it recently became aware of Poker Paint's actions by selling the below infringing image of Fedora Holtz on the website OpenSea. And then they show the original image that they took and the infringing image that uh, Poker Paint went and redid. 
As you may be aware, Poker News owns the original image by photographer Jamie Thompson. Accordingly, Poker News has exclusive rights to this image under copyright laws of the United States, and Poker News has reserved all of its copyright rights in the original image and has not authorized Poker Paint to reproduce, publish, provide, distribute, transmit, display, create derivative works of, or otherwise make any use of such works. Therefore, Poker Paint's use of the original image is a clear infringement of Poker News' copyright rights in violation of the Federal Copyright Act. There is no question that the infringing image has substantially similar or is substantially similar to the copyright-protected works of Poker News, and that Poker Paint intentionally copied the original image to sell on OpenSea. So even though he gave this away to Fedor, he's also trying to sell it on OpenSea. Importantly, Poker News controls all rights to the original image, including the right to create derivative works such as the infringing image. In fact, we understand they routinely misappropriate the intellectual property rights of others by creating unauthorized derivative works to sell on your website and other online marketplaces. Poker News treats copyright infringement as a very serious matter and enforces its rights fully against infringers. We therefore demand that you and Poker Paint, one, immediately cease and desist from all further production, reproduction, publishing, distribution, transmission, display, performance, advertising, licensing, and sale of materials that infringe Poker News intellectual property rights, including on your website. Destroy all such materials in your inventory or otherwise in your possession or control, including all copies in electronic or printed form. And number three, provide Poker News with a full accounting of all infringing images sold, licensed, or otherwise distributed on all proceeds and all proceeds therefrom. Mm. We ask that Poker Paint or its counsel, I don't think it has counsel, promptly provide Poker News with a written confirmation that Poker Paint will comply with these demands. If we do not receive a satisfactory response by the close of business on... Friday, September 30th, 2022, Poker News is prepared to take all steps necessary to protect its valuable intellectual property rights without further notice to Poker Paint. Uh Uh-oh. Getting pretty serious. Poker Paint is specifically advised that any failure or delay in complying with these demands will likely compound the damages for which Poker Paint may be liable. That's the portion he showed, which is most of it. Mm. But that's not all. That was Poker News. But Poker Stars got into the situation as well. So here's the one from Poker Stars. Oh, this is actually a very similar letter. This was of uh, Bill Perkins. And they wrote really what is almost the identical letter, except just substituting the other information where it was different. So the Poker Stars sent... A very similar letter. I won't even read it because it's uh, the same thing just with Poker Stars substituted for Poker News and Bill Perkins substituted for for Fedor Holtz. So it is the same law firm who's doing this for both. It's interesting that they're representing both. Uh, I believe Poker Stars owns Poker News. I think that is the reason that they're using the same counsel. I, I heard that Poker Stars quietly bought Poker News a number of years ago. That's probably why. It, it is the same attorney based out of Atlanta named Ashley Klein who wrote these letters. So he got hit with uh, the cease and desist letters for both. And then, according to an article by Haley Hintz, he was also hit with a cease and desist letter from Poker Go, but that one has not been published anywhere. But reportedly, they sent him another 
cease and desist letter, and it's just not clear what they were demanding of him, but probably something similar, because he was accused of taking images from Poker Go's broadcasts and making those uh, same type of pictures. So I gave him some advice in response, and he liked my tweets. He's not offended by my advice, but it seems like he believes my advice is good, but then won't take it. It's very weird. But I gave him advice, and I said, look, you know, you, you just got to give up on this. You may not like it. You may think it's unfair, but you got to give up. This is the way it is. This is the way it goes. You're legally in the wrong. And he said, well, I may hire some of my own photographers, he said back to me on Twitter. And I said, good, do it. That's what you should have done. That's what you should do going forward. Yes, hire your own photographers. Make sure they have the proper permission to take these pictures at the World Series. They have to get a media pass and be able to do so. Or take the pictures yourself and get the appropriate permissions. And then it's all fine. Then make all these pictures you want. And I think he can even do this without the permission of the subjects because when they're at the World Series, they are giving permission for these pictures to be taken. And also this could be construed as fan art. So that could also be something in his defense. So the poker players would have much less of a right to object to pictures taken of them at the World Series being used for commercial purposes. I mean, if you look at it, that's what Poker News does. And that's what uh, a number of entities do that are taking pictures of you playing poker if they choose to publish them. They're not doing this for fun. They're doing this for a commercial reason. And you consent to that when you play at the World Series. So I think he'd be in the clear there if he has people taking pictures or doing it himself that have a media pass and have the authorization to do this. And then he can modify them whatever way he pleases because he owns the work. And then he can sell them. And then there shouldn't really be a problem. I can't say that for sure. I'm not an intellectual property attorney. But I, I think he'd be pretty much in the clear there. But he can't take pictures or stills from videos that belong to other individuals or companies. I don't know why he can't get this. It's been a full year. He still can't get it. So, well, that's that's the, that's the latest. He's probably going to get sued if he doesn't stop this very soon. It seems like he understands he's not supposed to and then does it anyway. All right, let's uh, move on here. If you want to call or text 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Is the number to reach me? I got a text from the 818. Wow, what a story about identity at the Cosmo. Wish I had your persistence. Story too funny. I'm glad I entertained somebody here with that. I sometimes worry I'm going to frustrate the listener. Like if they picture it happening, that they will get frustrated by proxy by listening to me tell the story. But at least this listener found it funny. Okay. Let's talk about something that happened in Pennsylvania. Because in Pennsylvania, a casino got in trouble for allowing minors to gamble. Uh-oh. This is always a big concern of casinos because they can get fined. They can have licensing issues. They've got to be careful about minors gambling there. And when they throw minors out or ID people suspected to be minors, they're not doing it because they care about minors gambling. They, they just care about their license and getting fined. So this occurred at the Mount Airy Casino, A-I-R-Y, the Mount Airy Casino in the Poconos area of Pennsylvania. And they were fined after kids from ages 11 to 18 
were found on the gaming floor of Mount Airy. The fine could have been worse. They only paid $160,000. Now, this is not a gigantic casino, but you know, 160k that's not a terrible fine. It's not going to break them by any means, as you might guess. But the, Pencil- the Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board claims that they found three incidents where individuals between 11 and 18 got access to the casino floor and gambled. An 18-year-old gambled at two different slot machines. Two 13-year-old girls gambled at slot machines with their mother. And then, this one's probably the worst, an 11-year-old girl gambled at 10 different slot machines while both parents were present, and then she cashed two vouchers. I wonder if she got the change, though. I wonder if she got the change or she got shortchanged, too. I wonder if they shortchanged an 11-year-old. I don't know how this was found. Maybe security found it and they self-reported. I don't know exactly how this was uh, believed to have occurred. But the Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board is saying that it did occur. And they are paying a fine of $160,000 on a second fine of $100,000 because they did not do a timely filing of 32 corporate or individual renewal applications by the due dates. So that this wasn't related to the minors, but that they uh, had some issues with filing uh, licensing paperwork and they were late and they got fi- fined another 100000 A spokesman for the Mount Airy Resort said the ownership of the Mount Airy Casino Resort respects the decision of the gaming board, and we are always working towards further improving our processes. That means they know they're guilty. Let's talk about how big of a deal this is. So an 18-year-old gambling on two slot machines, okay, whatever. You know, he's 18. There's even been some who have argued that the gambling age should be 18. When you're 18, you're an adult for everything else. But you can't drink your gamble. And that's been a long source of debate in the United States. And other countries aren't like this. Like in Canada, it's just 19 for everything. You're a legal adult at 19 and you can do everything at 19. You can gamble, you can drink. You're an adult at 19 there in Canada. In the U.S., there's two stages of being an adult. Three if you count things like rental cars. So at 18, you can have full adult rights and make your own decisions but you're not allowed to order alcohol or gamble. At 21, you can buy alcohol and gamble. And then at 25, then you can do things like uh, rent cars or do uh, other age-restricted activities. Anyway, how bad is this really? Well, it's understandable how this can occur if they just don't have security constantly roaming the floors looking for this. The 11-year-old may not have been as visible as you might think because it's possible that her parents were blocking her. I'm sure her parents realized that she wasn't supposed to be doing this. Or maybe they were dumb enough to think that she could because she was with them. But it's a decent chance maybe they were kind of standing and blocking the way so they couldn't see who was playing. It doesn't say that. I'm just theorizing maybe this would happen. But in both cases of the young kids doing it, the 11-year-old and the 13-year-olds, they were with a guardian at the time it happened. 
So this wasn't uh, kids with a gambling problem. It was probably like, oh, you want to spin the slot machine for me? And the kids were spinning it, and then they hit the cash-out button, and they probably got the little thrill of, okay, we'll bring this ticket over to the machine and cash it out. Oh, look, here's money. I'm sure it was like that. So it wasn't so much of kids who had developed a degenerate gambling habit by age 11. Now, I'm not saying this should be allowed, but it's a matter of how serious it is. It's a matter of how outraged we should be as outsiders to the situation. I'm not saying the casino shouldn't have been fined. I mean, if it's in their licensing requirements that they have to make a very strong effort to keep minors off the floor, and if they fail, they can get fined. Well, okay, they failed and they got fined, and that's why they're not challenging it. But how bad is this really? Well, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think it's a huge deal. I don't think it's the smartest thing for parents to bring kids to the casino and gamble with them because this can lead to the kids having a gambling problem later, especially with slots, because slots are a big-time losing proposition, and that's the last thing you want to teach your kids that they should aspire to do. But this is more of a a parenting issue than a casino issue to me than if the kids go do it on their own. And truthfully, if you talk to anyone who enjoys gambling that didn't find gambling later in life, ones that were aware of gambling and went with their parents to places with casinos when they were kids, just about everybody will have a gambling as a minor story, including me. So in 1987, as I think I've told before, I learned somewhat video poker strategy. It wasn't perfect by any means, but I had a general idea of of what to do. I forgot how I learned it, but I I learned it somehow. Of course, I I couldn't go on the internet and download strategy then. I I didn't buy any books, but somehow I learned it. I I don't remember how, but I, I learned it somewhat. And I was 15 years old, and my family stayed at the Las Vegas Hilton, which is now the Westgate. They stayed there a lot at that point in the mid to late 80s. And I didn't say to my parents, hey, I'm going to go downstairs and gamble. And I don't remember where they were, but I left the room. Maybe they were gone. I don't know. I was 15, so it's not like they had to take care of me. But I left the room at some point, and I went downstairs, and I found a video poker machine that was kind of in the corner and that was facing the wall. So this way, nobody would see my face because I was tall enough to be almost the height of an average man. And I just had a young-looking face because I was 15 and didn't look old. So... I played on the machine for a while. I was smart enough to keep hitting cash out whenever I hit something because they cannot confiscate my money, even if I've won it in the machine, provided I have the money in my pocket at that point. If it's in the machine, then they can confiscate it. So I was aware I might get caught at some point, didn't want to get my credits confiscated. I didn't think about what I would do if I hit a hand pay. But, uh, whatever, I, I kept doing it, and uh, eventually... I think I did this for a few days before they caught me, but eventually a security guard approached me and he said, "Uh, can I see some ID? And I said, I left it in the room. (laughs) And he knew what that meant. So he gave me a whole lecture about how I could go to jail for this and a whole attempted scare tactic to get me to leave. And I said, okay, I'm sorry. And I walked off. Fortunately, he didn't like detain me and try to find my parents. So all in all, it actually wasn't that bad. I just got a lecture from a middle-aged security guard about 
what a terrible violation this was, but uh, ultimately nothing was done to me. My parents wouldn't have been mad, but they would have been annoyed that they would have had to be tracked down. And I'm not sure how easy it would have been to find them. They didn't have a cell phone in 87. So I, I may have had to wait hours being detained by the security at the Hilton until they got me. But fortunately, it didn't happen. They just told me that uh, not to do this again or I'll be detained. And I said, okay. And I took that seriously. However, before that happened, I also was placing sports bets, which is pretty amazing that I would go up to the sports book, go to the counter, and, and I was placing small sports bets. It was only like 10 bucks, but I, I was placing small sports bets. And if they won, I would give them to my dad to cash out. And my theory was that if they stop me from placing it, well, then it's no big deal. I don't lose anything. They just uh, don't let me place it. And if they do let me place it, then okay, then I have my ticket. And if it loses, it's worthless. And if it wins, I give it to my dad to cash. So my parents were aware I did this. And since I was betting like 10 bucks and because I was, uh, we were only going you know, a few times a year, it wasn't like uh, this was going to start some terrible habit. So, it was, you know, my dad cashed it, no big deal. And I forgot if I told them about the video poker play, but even if I did, it wouldn't have been a big deal. And I'm not sure if I told them I got caught <laughs> and got the lecture, uh, but I did stop after that. That was the last time I gambled as a minor or even under 21 once I was caught as a 15-year-old and given that lecture. The Hilton, uh, I don't think, got fined over this. Now, maybe they self-reported, but there was I didn't see any incident report taken. It kind of seemed like the security guard just wanted me to leave and not do this again. And I guess in that he was successful because I left and didn't do it again. But thinking back to this, do I think that this was something awful? No. Do I think the Hilton really should have been fined? No. I wouldn't have cried for them if they were, but... You know, I, I I was actively trying to avoid getting caught. I, I went to the back and tried to not show my face and face the wall and have them mistake me as, as an adult. So how much is the Hilton really at fault if, if I attempt to circumvent getting caught like this? So from a moral standpoint, I, I don't really see that this is a big deal. But I understand why the fines are being done because if they don't do the fines, then the casinos won't attempt to prevent this. So the fine is kind of to light a fire under their ass to make them take it seriously. And, and same with uh, potential licensure suspensions that can happen, that they have to feel there's a consequence, otherwise they won't even try to keep the miners out. So I, I do think they should try to keep the miners out. I'm not just saying it should be a free-for-all where miners can gamble. I'm just saying that most people, at least... In my day growing up, maybe, maybe the miners today, it's different. But most people in my day growing up who went to Vegas w with their parents, uh, they they did gamble somewhere. And in many cases, their parents knew about it and, and nobody cared. It wasn't considered a big deal. And if you don't believe me, ask people you know who were uh, going to Vegas or other places like Atlantic City with their parents in, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And they'll probably have a story for you like mine. Tell a friend who listens to this show and also posts on the forum said that he played at a very young age, except this was not in the U.S. He said, I was playing slots in Merv Griffin's casino on Paradise Island, that's in the Bahamas, at the ripe old age of 11. In retrospect, it probably wasn't a good idea. Tons of stories like that, I'm sure. By the way, I don't think that this leads to a later gambling addiction. I do think that parents taking 
their kids to gambling venues a lot and then gambling there will kind of set the example and the kids will eventually want to do it themselves. But I, I think that's a lot more where the gambling desire will come from, not just the kids get to do it every so often when no one's looking. I think it's just seeing their parents doing it over and over. They're like, hey, you know, when I'm 21, I'll do it myself. And, and that was my attitude. I was fascinated from gam- with gambling from a young age. And my parents were only low-limit gamblers, recreational gamblers. They, they were not uh, gambling addicts by any stretch of the imagination. And they, they liked the whole atmosphere of Vegas back then. They like, went to the shows and they went to meals and they, they would do a little low-stakes gambling and, and stuff like that. And they don't really do that anymore. They, they don't gamble anymore and haven't in decades. But when they were younger, they did some low-stakes gambling. But I was very fascinated by this, even back when I was like six years old in the 70s. And I thought, okay, well, one day I'll be old enough to do this myself. And that was what made me want to get into gambling myself, to get into playing blackjack and to casino advantage play and to poker. That's where the motivation came from. And I didn't have a desire to drink or do drugs but I did have a desire to gamble when I was old enough to do so. And, well, I am. <laughs> I am and I do. But it wasn't related to my being able to play as a 15-year-old before I got caught. It was more just kind of seeing it, being in the presence of it a bunch of times, and it just seemed cool to me. It's possible without being in the presence of it, it would have seemed cool to me anyway. I don't know, but uh, that's the way it is. But, you know, I've never become an addict to it or anything or done anything harmful gambling wise turned out fine in fact if that didn't happen you wouldn't hear this show right now well finally we have a trio of unfortunate deaths in the poker community i never like to report these it is inevitable with a community of so many people especially many of whom being old or semi-old, that we're going to have deaths that we will have to report. It's inevitable that some of these deaths will be people who are young. What's interesting here is, despite the fact that two of these three deaths were young, that none of these seem to be related to drugs or alcohol, which tend to be the reason that people in poker die early. But that was not the case for any of these. So I'm going to talk first about Jan Suchinek, who was a European poker pro, and taking a look at his Hendon Mob results, he had $1.185 million worth of caches. The best cash he had was $142,000, and he was from New Zealand. That is where he passed away. His name on Twitter, and his Twitter account still exists, was Perpetual Check, but Check is C Z E C H. So maybe he's a Czechoslovakian, I don't know. I know he is listed as being from New Zealand, and that's where he passed away. And he was only 55 years old, so that's pretty sad. Actually, I guess he was uh, 
also living in Australia for some time. So I'm not sure exactly what nationality we'd consider him. He uh, passed away in New Zealand. Uh, I'm seeing some reference to him being an Australian. Then he had that name Perpetual Czech. So I don't know if he might be Czechoslovakian as well. I, I don't know. But uh, his best finish was at the main event. The 142K was in 2016. He finished in 49th place. He was good friends with Dara O'Kearney, who was, I've mentioned a few times on this show, and he's an Irish poker pro. And he wrote a tribute to Suchanek, who I guess is a Czech citizen. I see that. A Czech citizen who grew up in Canada and then went back to Czechoslovakia, then to New Zealand, and then to Australia. So yeah, this guy's residences were all over the place. He was known as an aggressive player who tried to build big pots, and people liked him, thought he had a charming personality, according to Dara Kearney. He did not win a bracelet, but he actually came close that was not his biggest score because it was not a huge field event and the buy-in was only 1500 but uh, he finished in second place in the $1,500 six-handed mixed game tournament, and the winner was one Bryn Kenny. So his failure to defeat Bryn Kenny, heads up, uh, denied him the bracelet, but he came very close. But how did Jan Sukunek end up dying? because I believe he was 55. Well, he started having stomach problems early this month. So prior to September 2022, he seemed fine. And being in his mid-50s, then you wouldn't expect that he would pass away anytime soon. But he was telling Dara Kearney that he was having uh, stomach problems that were getting worse and worse, and then passed away. When the stomach problems were getting worse, Dara was saying that he was worried that uh, this was something pretty serious and maybe life-threatening, and I guess he was right. I don't know exactly what stomach problems he had. It's not all that common for just stomach problems to cause a death in your mid-50s, but uh, there must have been something else going on and, and showed itself that way. There's a number of ways that uh, you can have stomach problems that are life-threatening. It's just usually just if you get your stomach hurting out of the blue, uh, you're not going to die from it at that age. But you know it can happen. People were not expecting this at all. This was not someone who was sick for any real length of time. So that was the first death. The second death I want to talk about is somebody I knew for a short period of time and had a friendship with for a short period of time. I didn't know Jan Sukunek, so this is just someone I read about after his passing. I didn't really know much about him prior to hearing that he had died. But Kat Hulbert is someone I talked about on this show once. I believe it was in uh, late 2016 or early 2017. And that was because there was an article published that was quite interesting about her time in gambling. And people really liked the article, and it's still available. So this article was on BBC.com, which, of course, is the BBC. It's a 
UK-based site, but it's called How I Got Rich Beating Men at Their Own Game by Cat Hulbert, dated December 6th, 2016. It was an interesting and kind of amusing article about what it's like to be a female in the gambling world. Not just poker, but poker and gambling. She even took a little swipe at Skolansky there. For 40 years, a well-known gambling author would, for fun, make bets at the poker table about whether the cocktail waitress would be able to answer commonplace questions. Questions like, who's the vice president, or what is the longest river in the U.S.? One day, this guru, who smelled like blue cheese... turned to where I was sitting next to the dealer and placed a bet about whether I would know who said, I think, therefore I am. When I answered correctly, I have a degree in philosophy, he said, you're the smartest woman I've ever met. This is the sort of nonsense I had to put up with throughout my entire career. That a brilliant mathematician and poker author was so afraid of women that he felt compelled to denigrate them didn't surprise me. A friend told me he even kept a copy of How to Pick Up Women on His Nightstand with sections highlighted in different color notes. (laughs) I believe all this, too. So she doesn't name David Skolansky, but it's pretty clear that's who she's talking about. I like how he smelled like blue cheese. That's a nice description. She said he's a well-known gambling and poker author who's a mathematician. So it doesn't take... uh, a lot to guess who that is. And you can't blame Mason for this one because Mason would not have had a book on his nightstand of how to pick up women. That's, that's not really Mason's uh, thing. I don't know how long Mason's been married to his current wife, but uh, chasing women was like not what Mason's known for. Mason is not known to be a pervert or someone disrespectful to women at the table. He's just kind of a grouch. <laughs> this, this was totally uh, Skolansky. Anyway, so it's a pretty long article. It's interesting. You get to see pictures of Cat Hulbert at different stages of her life. You can see some older pictures that go way back, maybe to the late 60s or early 70s, where she clearly looks younger. You get to see some more modern pictures where she has like pink hair and looks newer where she's an older woman. But it's a pretty interesting read, and everybody I've sent this to likes it. Again, this is written in 2016. But who is she? And what is really her story? I'm not going to read you anything further from this article. But I will tell you that she was a 1970s and beyond gambling world figure who lived in uh, Atlantic City... Vegas and LA and was involved in both the poker and gambling communities. So she's really old school, someone who was uh, associated with a lot of figures of those communities back in those days. And there were not that many women involved back at that time, as you might imagine. And whatever abuse or sexism that women experience now at the table you can imagine how much worse it was in the 70s and 80s when men could talk that way to women and it uh, really wasn't looked down upon. So uh, you know, to be a woman, a woman at the table in those days was pretty tough. And there were not uh, lucrative sponsorships you could get because you were 
a young and fairly attractive female. That didn't exist. That was a later thing during the poker boom. So she didn't get that either. By the time the poker boom happened, she was already getting older. But how did I know her? Let me get to that. I was on the Interpoker Network in the mid-2000s, and those were very good games. Now, you had some tough players, or a lot of tough Scandinavian players, a few tough American players there, but it was kind of an out-of-the-way network, and a lot of the really good Limit Hold'em All-Stars from Poker Stars didn't make it over there. So, like, from what I remember, none of those Minnesota guys were on there, at least not until much later. And uh, so it was basically me and, and a few other Americans who knew about it and a bunch of good Europeans and, most importantly, some megafish. And when I say megafish, I mean megafish. I mean guys who were just awful, dead money, like really, really bad players. And they would play at high stakes all the way as high as 300, 600 limit. So you could make a lot of money off of these players, but the game would only go as long as these players would be there. And it was very blatant back then. Like the fish would sit, the game would instantly fill up, and then it would run until the fish was busted. And then when the fish was busted, the game would die. And in fact, if the fish sat out, then everybody else would sit out. And I told a story once before that occurred on there where one of the fish actually objected to this. One of the fish thought that there was collusion against him he said, how come when I sit in, everybody sits in, and how come when I sit out, everybody sits out? And everybody was afraid to say anything. And he's like, I know you guys are cheating me. And I'm like, crap. This guy's got to get an answer. He's never going to come back. So I said, I'm going to tell you the truth. The reason we are all sitting in when you sit in and sit out when you sit out is because you're new, and any new player is assumed to be a bad player. So everybody here assumes that since we don't know you, you must be bad. So everybody wants to play with you. Well, that was the truth. The only thing I left out is that we knew he was a bad player from his style, but he was new and we were sitting in to play with him. So he said, thank you for your honesty. It makes sense now. Okay. Hope you guys don't think I'm too bad and sat back in. Everybody else was afraid to say anything, which I thought was stupid because uh, if you say nothing, then they think, incorrectly that you're colluding against them, which we were not. Nobody was colluding against them. The guy just wasn't good, and the rest of us were. So I said, okay, yeah, sometimes sometimes you just got to tell the truth and, and say, yes, we're sitting in because of you, because you're perceived as the worst player. But I, I said it in a nicer way by saying he's the new player, so that's why you're assuming it. That's the only modification I made. On that network, the important thing was to identify when a fish sat and get into the game before it filled. And most of these games were six-handed, so you didn't have very many spaces to, f- to fill up. These days, this is referred to as bum hunting and looked down upon, but you have to remember the era when this occurred. In the mid-2000s, there was no talk of bum hunting. That term didn't exist. This was very accepted practice in the mid-2000s to do, especially in the Limit Hold'em community. So ask any of these good Limit Hold'em guys who were around back then, online, ask if that was looked down upon, and and unless they're lying to you or don't remember right, it was not. It was considered totally fine. Anyway, she was playing in some of these games for a while. I forgot her name. I remember it was in all caps, but I think it was a feminine name, but not like outright feminine, but it kind of implied it was a girl. And there was a chat box back then, so you could all chat with each other, of course, because you know, I just told you the story where I chatted with the fish. She wouldn't play really high. She would play as high as 5,100 limit, 
but nothing higher than that. But she would rail the other games. She enjoyed watching the other games that went all the way up to 300, 600. I played in them all from 5,100 up to 300, 600. And when she was in the 5,100, I talked with her in the chat. And at some point, she told me who she was and said her name is Kat Holbert. And I had to Google her. I didn't know anything about her prior to that. But then I, I Googled her, and of course, I didn't see this article I was reading you from because that was 12 years later. But I, I did see various things about her. I saw some pictures of her. I learned that she was an old-school gambling and poker figure. And then that was pretty interesting. So we talked, and we got along very well. And uh, whenever we saw each other on there, we'd say hi. And... One day I was sitting there at the table after the fish left, not the same fish that I was telling you guys about, but one of the fish left and we're just all sitting out. And I said to her, you know what I wish existed? I wish they had something called Donk Alert because I was lucky to see this game going, but had I come to the computer five minutes later, I would have missed it. I wish there were a service that could look for fish that sit down and call me the second they sit so I could run to my computer and sit down. Because there weren't people, like, staring at the games. It didn't fill up within seconds, but within minutes it would fill up. So as long as someone called me as soon as they saw a fish sit and the game going, if I ran to my computer, I I could definitely get into just about all of the games. So I was just joking. I wasn't asking anyone to do this for me. I was saying, I wish there was a service called Donk Alert that would call me up whenever... I whenever a, a fish was seen sitting in the game. So she said back, well, I can do that for you. And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to burden you with that. And I'm also talking about something that would be like all day. And I, I wouldn't want you to just stare at the games all day and call me up when a fish sits. I, I, I wouldn't expect you to do that. She said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm here a lot. I, I like watching these games. It's interesting for me to watch. You know, I play 5,100. I, I do the higher ones I don't play, but I really enjoy watching them. So I happen to be looking a lot. And if I see it, I'll call you. And at first, I'm kind of wondering, okay, you know, is this woman trying to angle for money? Like, I'm waiting for the next thing to be okay and then give me 10% of your winnings. I, I was waiting for something like this. And then I was waiting to kind of figure out, like, what I'd be willing to give. Because I actually would have been willing to give something if she asked for it. Uh and and I even asked her, I said, okay, so you're just going to just do this? And she said, yes. And I said, you don't want anything returned? She said, no, I don't want anything returned. Uh, I, I just enjoy doing this for friends. So I said, oh, that's nice. Wow. What a nice woman. So she became my own personal donk alert, which I really appreciated. And sure enough, I would get these calls from her saying, oh, I see such and such person sitting in the game. And, and I would get in the game. So this was great. I was even considering, you know, if, if I did well in these games to maybe offer her something anyway and uh, at least to, you know, do something for her for doing me this tremendous favor. But I was very, very appreciative. One of my friends told me that he thought the reason she was doing this was because she had some kind of romantic interest in me. Now, we hadn't met she hadn't seen what I looked like, and I was not yet known in poker outside of my Dandruff screen name. There was no connection between Dandruff and Todd Wittellis or Todd the Live Player or anything like that. 
I, I actually purposely kept that secret at the time. So in 2004, there was no association with who I was in real life. It was kind of a mystery who Dan Druff was. But she did know my age. I, I did tell her I was 32 years old. And at the time, she was uh, like 50, 51, something like that. So substantially older than me, almost 20 years older than me. And I had a girlfriend at the time. Uh, even if I didn't have a girlfriend, I would not have wanted to date a woman of that age when I was 32. That just wasn't what I was into. Uh, but she never brought anything up like that. There was never any kind of like uh, overt flirting or any kind of you know backdoor ways to, to see me in person. Or she didn't say, let's go out to dinner sometime. Nothing like that. There, there was never any kind of sexual or romantic overtone to the whole thing. So I, I thought maybe my friend was just jumping to conclusions. I never saw any evidence. Uh, is it possible that uh, she liked younger guys and was hoping that uh, this would lead to this? Uh, yes, but it's also very possible this had nothing to do with it at all, and she just liked my personality online and uh, and was feeling like she was developing a friendship with me and was just doing something very nice. I, I, I don't know. I'll never know. But uh, that's what was happening. So you may wonder what happened from there. Why... Did I not have contact with her for the past 18 years, and now she's passed away? But what happened between 04 and today? And why have you never heard about my association with Cat Hulbert? Sounds like we're, we're getting pretty close, right? She's calling me every time a donk sits in the game, and I'm very appreciative of it. And I think she's very, very nice. And, you know, aside from not having any kind of uh, romantic interest, both because I was with someone and because of the age difference, uh, I, I definitely had an interest in, in being her friend. And I also thought she was an interesting person from her history in poker and gambling. So I would have very happily been her friend aside from the, what favor she was doing me. And in fact, that's why she was doing the favor, because we were, we were talking a good deal online uh, prior to her offering this when I just offhandedly made a joke about Donk Alert. So what happened? Why, why are we not associated at all? Why does no one know about my friendship with Cat Hulbert in 2004 except for those I've told about it? Well... A friend of mine, who I knew from outside of poker, but also was a poker player, and was known to be associated with me online. Again, people didn't know who I was in real life, but they knew that me and this other guy were, were friends. And she knew this somehow. I forgot how, but she knew somehow that uh, the two of us were good friends, me and this other guy. For whatever reason, he didn't care for her very much. And I didn't understand why, because I liked her, but he, he didn't care for her very much in the first place. But... He wasn't rude to her, but he kind of just didn't like her that much. And then one day, she, he took a bad beat against her on in that 5100 game on Interpoker, and he laid into her. He started being really insulting to her, and most of the insults were related to her being old. And she was pretty sensitive about this. You know, she was, uh, she had just turned 50 or so, 50, 51, something like that. So she was sensitive about that subject and and he was really hitting her hard with it and he was acting inappropriate i mean you don't insult someone like that when you take a bad beat and that's all she did she she didn't insult him she was she put a bad beat on him and he, he lost his temper and and went off on her and, and and making insults about her being old so i see her online that same day and she types to me your friend ruined it and i said what she said ask him and I said, I don't understand what happened. I didn't hear anything. Just know your friend ruined it, she said, and then wouldn't talk to me. 
So then I called up my friend. I knew who she was referring to. And I said, what the hell happened here? What happened here with Kat? And he told me, he admitted the whole thing, that he took a bad beat. He lost his temper. He didn't like her in the first place. So, so he let loose on her and made a lot of insults, mostly about her age. And I said, idiot, why did you do this? Why? Like, you just made me look bad by association with you. Like, like you're not just insulting some random and he said, I know, I know, I, I shouldn't have done it, but uh, I thought that she would separate it, that she would just hate me and not you. I said, no, of course not. You were, we are known to be good friends. If, if you say these type of things to her, of course she's going to think badly of me. Yeah, I realize that now. I'm sorry. I wouldn't have done it if I had thought about that. Uh, well, the damage was done. So I said, okay, do not insult her again. Say nothing to her ever again. I'm going to try to apologize to her and... and hopefully fix this so i i had uh, some way to message her i forgot if it was an instant messenger or if it was email i don't remember anymore because it's been 18 years but i i contacted her in some way with an apology for my friend's behavior and i explained to her that uh, not only am i mad at him and did i yell at him for this that i had no idea that this had happened until she told me and that i was very upset about it and I've talked to him and he's never going to address her again and that he f- feels bad about it. And, uh, you know, can she please forgive this and, and can we still be friends? And she didn't answer me. No answer. So I got the message. And I stopped contacting her in any way. So, like, if I saw her online, I didn't uh, say anything to her. Pretty soon after that, she disappeared from Interpoker anyway. I ended up seeing her once at... Hollywood Park, where she spent a lot of time in those days. And I think she even has some kind of like class she would do for women to learn how to play poker. She was actually one of the uh, early pioneers of the advocating for women in poker thing. And I think these classes she did for women at Hollywood Park was, was one of the things she did along those lines. But I saw her there, not teaching one of the classes. I think I was there for a tournament. But I saw her there... She ran up to some guy who was around her age, as I said, you know, probably early 50s, and uh, ran up to him, and she she was kind of flirting with him and had her arm around him. They, they may have been friends, but uh, she's pretty heavily flirting with the guy, and this was not a good-looking guy. This Not only was he her age, which is now around my age, but he was not even a good-looking guy for that age, but she, she was being very flirtatious to him, and... Uh, I didn't know their previous relationship, but they weren't dating or anything. It just kind of seemed like that was her personality. And I had thought of going up to her and saying, you know, I'm Dan Druff from back then. It wasn't even that long ago. It was probably like a year later. So I'm Dan Druff from last year. I'm really sorry about what happened. I thought of like apologizing in person, but I thought to myself, you know, I made myself clear in the email about how apologetic I was and and she didn't respond. So the message she was giving me by the non-response was, Nope, I want nothing to do with you. So I didn't want to hassle her in person and make it awkward or anything. You know, she she made it clear that uh, because of my friend's actions, she didn't want to talk to me again. And okay, I respected that. So I, I did not approach her. And so we never actually met. I saw her in Hollywood Park, but I did not go up to her, say anything to her. She was never at my table. So that was that. And I never saw her in person again after that. And I had wondered, like, you know, if, if this hadn't happened... Would we have been friends for many years? I don't know if possible. 
And I had kind of forgotten about her until 2016 when this article came out on BBC and I posted this article on Poker Fraud Alert and gave a uh, brief version of the story I just told you. And people read the article and liked it. And then, I, again, I kind of forgot about her. And then it was announced that she passed away this week after a long battle with cancer. So, unlike Jan Sukanek and the last person we're going to talk about, this was a death which was not a surprise to those who knew her. Richard Munchkin, who is a longtime Advantage player who also has the uh, Gambling with the Edge pod- Gambling with an Edge podcast that's popular, uh, he knew her from back in the day. He said, sorry to say Kat Hulbert died today. This is September 20th after a long bout with cancer. She was a longtime professional blackjack player and poker player. She is maybe the most interesting interview in Gambling Wizards. So when I read that, you know, it made me feel sad. This was someone I didn't know for very long, and, and definitely the budding friendship did not end very well. I don't blame her for this. I blame my friend, but, you know, I, I, it, someone I didn't know for very long. But still, I, I had a good experience with her up until that thing that happened at the end, which wasn't her fault. And when I heard she's just not here anymore, that she had a long battle with cancer, which is a bad way to go because you suffer badly in the final months or sometimes years of your life. I don't know how long the battle was, but usually when they say long battle, they usually mean years. So it's probably the reason I haven't heard anything about her since late 2016. Maybe she was diagnosed with cancer five years ago. I don't know what kind of cancer it is. She was only 69 years old at the time of passing. That's too bad. It's a young age to die. And I haven't seen her uh, since 05, but she wasn't someone who looked unhealthy. She was not overweight. She just looked like uh, a a typical middle-aged woman at the time. And as I said, didn't have a weight problem at all, didn't look unhealthy. I think she just got unlucky and got cancer in her 60s, and uh, that did her in. That's too bad. Like Whenever there's someone I once knew and I read that they died, it it makes me feel bad, especially someone that I I once had uh, very positive feelings for. So rest in peace, Kat Hulbert, who passed away this week. Google her Kat, and then last name H-U-L-B-E-R-T. Interesting woman for sure. And read that BBC article she wrote. I think you'll enjoy it. The last person who passed away associated with poker was the most surprising of the three. Someone I did not know, but someone who was fairly prominent. Ivan Liao, L-E-O-W, passed away at the age of 39, and he was the co-founder of the Triton Poker Tournament, which is uh, a high-stakes poker tournament. That was, in fact, the one that uh, Ebony Kenny just played and did very well in. So the Triton Poker Tournament, uh, he was one of the co-founders of it only 39 years old, and his death was completely unexpected. He was not sick at all, just a normal 39-year-old guy who had a lot of money. (laughs) And uh, he died from a heart attack. He just had a heart attack and died. Now, this is always a danger hanging over the heads of males who are middle-aged, that 
males will have abrupt heart attacks, sometimes ones that kill them, without much warning. And this will happen at a younger age than you would expect. But usually this hits males starting from their mid-40s on. Most males don't have that, obviously, but there's a much higher chance you're going to have this happen if you're male than if you're female. Uh, Unfortunately for me, this tends to happen more to males who are tall and ones who uh, weigh over 200 pounds. But uh, it, it can happen to other males as well, and often with no warning or no apparent health problems prior to that. There are some signs that it might occur if you have a very high cholesterol or a high, very high blood pressure or other issues that would show up in tests but don't really show up symptom-wise. I don't know what the case was with Ivan Liao, but he wasn't even 40 yet. He was 39. He was born in 1982 and had not yet turned 40 this year. And everything seemed fine with him. And on September 17th, Ivan Liao just had a heart attack and died. This happened to be during the Triton Cyprus events, which were running between September 5th and September 19th. As a result, they canceled the last Triton events to mourn his passing together. Triton Poker said in a statement, Ivan was a hugely popular member of the Triton family. He was warm, generous, and enormous fun both at the table and off, a loyal friend to us all. He was a fantastic poker player with a lifelong passion for the game. Ivan was a very special person who lived life to the full, always smiling and loved the game of poker. He will sincerely be missed by his family, friends, and everyone who had the pleasure of meeting him. His age was initially listed as 41 when he passed, but it was later corrected to 39. I'm not sure for the, the reason for that confusion but he was apparently 39. He won the high roller in Sochi at the Sochi Casino and Resort uh, in Russia. And this was a 6 million rubles event. Now, rubles are not dollars, of course, but he entered a 6 million rubles event and ended up cashing $1.1 million, not rubles, but dollars, by winning that event of uh, 29 entries. He made the final table of the previous event, this is again four years ago, of the $3 million ruble, or $3 million ruble high roller. He's known to have had a uh, aggressive play style, and in fact, he was in almost every hand at the final table of the one where he busted and did not win. So he's one of these guys who was just entering a lot of really high-stakes tournaments and had a lot of money. Uh, The Triton series probably made him some good money. His actual legal name was not Ivan Liao. That was his Americanized name. His real name was Sang Yi Liao, and he was from Malaysia. The last cash he had was at this last Triton event in Cyprus. He finished 12th at the 25K No Limit Hold'em 8-handed and cashed 59K for a profit of 34000 He cashed in several other events in uh, 2022. It looks like he stuck mostly to playing events in Asia, such as uh, Macau. I do not see any World Series of Poker caches in Las Vegas. 
he did play as well at the King's Casino in Rosbadov in the Czech Republic. But for the most part, he stuck to Asia. Overall, his Hended Mob has over $13 million in caches, with his best cash being $2.46 million. And that was at the 250K high roller event in uh, Europe. And this is at the SHRB Europe main event. He finished in second place for $2.46 million. Now, I don't know if he was overall a profitable tournament player because even though he has $13.1 million worth of caches, he's entering these very high roller events that are sometimes six-figure buy-ins, and you can imagine how quickly that adds up. So he may or may not have been, but obviously he was a very wealthy guy, and he just enjoyed playing poker. He liked having an aggressive play style. Obviously wasn't scared money. He was the opposite of that. And the Triton Poker Series was very successful, and he was one of the co-founders of that. So shocking for them. I'm sure that's never what they pictured possibly happening, was that Ivan Liao, during the Triton Series, was going to die of a heart attack. I mean, the guy was 39, seemed healthy. And I'm looking at pictures of him. Much like I said about Cat Hulbert, he wasn't overweight. He wasn't someone you would picture having an early heart attack. This was uh, just a normal... Asian guy who was around 40 years old. Unfortunately, he got hit with his heart attack, which can happen. It is possible that he had some kind of undiagnosed hereditary issue which caused this heart attack to occur. Often when the heart attacks occur before age 40, that is the reason, though he's very close to 40, so it's hard to tell if this was uh, a heart attack that was just kind of bad luck that happened in middle age, or if it was one due to a hereditary problem, or maybe kind of both. I had a classmate who actually was a classmate for a very long time. He went to all of my schools uh, from elementary through college. I didn't really see him much in college. We were never friends, but we got along. But anyway, this guy was a very athletic guy, and you would have never pictured him as someone who was going to die early of a heart attack. But at age 31, just out of nowhere, he just died of a heart attack. Not drugs. He just died of a heart attack, and it turned out he had a previously undiagnosed congenital issue that killed him at age 31. It was very sad because he had two kids that he had just had, and these two young kids never really got to know him. And Really sad story. He's a nice guy, too. But it wasn't related to lifestyle. He just had this congenital issue he wasn't aware of. Usually by the time you get older, it will have shown itself by them in some way. So the older you are, the less chance there is that you are unaware of a congenital heart issue. But yeah, 39, it can totally just hit you if you're not aware you have something and there's no symptoms and you had no reason to suspect symptoms or suspect that this issue is there. So I'm not sure why he had this heart attack at this age. Pretty unusual. But unfortunately, Ivan Liao has passed away at the age of 39. He is the 67th all-time on the money list as far as Cash's lifetime in poker. And yes, this is skewed because he enters super high roller events, but he still was 67th on the money list. And... He was well-liked among the high-stakes community and 
the Triton series is well liked, so he was respected for having started that. That's pretty sad. Someone I didn't know, but you just think of this guy who's 39, everything's going great for him, and has a successful business, and then just pow, you're gone. That's all I have. Sorry to depress you with the death stories at the final segments of the show. But at least I did it at the end. I could have depressed you the whole way. Well, we're back on Friday, if you haven't noticed. So we'll stay on Friday. So the next show is projected to be on the final day of September, September 30th. So the good news is, for those of you that don't like the eight-day gap that you have between shows, that's not going to happen, because it's only going to be seven days. We're back to doing it once a week. It kind of didn't feel like more than a week, though. I know eight days and seven days are pretty close, but it kind of felt like a week. Sometimes it felt like less than a week. I'm like, wow, eight days already? Okay, well, let's do it. Hopefully we'll get the poker room working next week. No promises, but uh, hopefully we can get it working. Remember, if you have had money confiscated by PayPal, especially in the last four years, but even more than four years ago, go to paypalclassaction.net. Completely free. You will never be charged anything. You're not putting yourself on the hook to owe attorney's fees later. Nothing. You're committing to nothing. You will owe nothing. It's a free roll. So definitely go do that if they did confiscate money from you. Or if you know others who've been in that situation, let them know. Let's hope that in the coming week we don't have three more deaths in the poker community. That's pretty harsh. And all of them under 70. Two of them under 60, one under 40. And I will keep you guys aware of where I am with the whole process with Nevada Gaming, with maybe getting these guaranteed prize pools really guaranteed. I'm going to give it a shot. Well, that is all I have for you this week. Thank you for listening, whether you're a new listener or one who's been around a while. And feel free to contact me anytime. 775-372-8355, even if you've never texted me before. Good night, good morning, and shalom. Shalom.